You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Bracken, I see you have a new uh, piece of wall art hanging on your on your wall. Yeah, keeping it real close to me. This is my baby. This is my brand new road bike. Yeah? Yeah. No, there's something special about that road bike because it, it's not meant for a man. Not not any man. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> it's a woman's bike. <laughs> Let's be upfront about that. Um, it has remarkably similar geometry to a men's bike. And it was $900 cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the bubblegum pink is going to stand out. Well, they, they said the color was Merlot. And I feel like that sums me up. That's a classy color. Is it actually Merlot? Is that the color? That's, that's what it's called. Yeah, it's really maroon. And that was my high school color anyway. So I feel like that's marketing at its finest right there. Merlot. I'm more of a Cabernet guy. Okay. I'm a Aldi Lambrusco. I don't even know what Lambrusco is. <laughs> Go to Aldi, get their Lambrusco. Six ninety nine for a, a liter of cola. <laughs> It'll change your life. All right. What? Uh, so tell me about the bike. I'm actually I got a high end road bike myself, so I'm kind okay, of okay. So this is not high end. This is their highest end entry road bike. Okay. So a one hundred five group set, um, carbon fork. It's aluminum uh, alloy body, but it is. It feels like carbon. I've ridden in carbon, and you know when you tap with your fingernails on carbon. And it yeah. just feels, that's how this aluminum feels. It's like that hybrid aluminum that feels like carbon. So I, I'm super impressed. It's well under 20 pounds. And uh, I got it shipped for $6.99. $6.99? No, I mean $6.99 total to my house oh. rather than list price of $15.99 without shipping. However, it came at a cost. <laughs> which which is I well I bought from a bike store but I used their eBay they they put up an eBay shop in these times yeah so I ordered through eBay and I haven't apparently used eBay since I moved to our new home and so it shipped to my old uh, duplex oh and it would because of the type of shipping insurance that they put on it I wasn't allowed to make modifications to the shipment. I couldn't divert it. I couldn't sign for it in advance and let someone else pick it up. I couldn't have it shipped to um, any anywhere else. So I had to drive out to Lake Geneva uh, yesterday, and it was delivery window was between eight thirty a.m. and eleven thirty a.m. <laughs> so you hung out in Lake Geneva for three hours. I got there at eight to be certain, and it showed up at like twelve fifteen. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> so I just sat there for you know four four and a half hours waiting Worth for this it. thing to arrive everyone like in the neighborhood just staring at me because i'm just in my car in front of the house hanging out for four and a half hours <laughs> well, you, you didn't use anything productive you didn't do anything like well i, I did know. i was like i was working and like i did a couple of coaching calls and I, I was just this guy in a car in front of their house and they didn't know why and i had had the the, the arrow bars shipped there as well and they had arrived the day before and i I couldn't get a hold of the people because I still have the number of the lady who lives next door. So I texted her and I'm like, hey, could you just find out if the package is there? And she's like, yeah, they didn't get back to me. So I walk up to the front door and I see a lady through the window sitting on the couch reading something. And I <laughs> knock on the door after being in front of her house for like two hours. 
and they never answer. So I ring the doorbell and they never answer. I look over and she's not there anymore. So she just wouldn't come to the door. And I went back out in front of her house in my in her car in my car and sat for two more hours. She probably thought you were trying to talk to them about our Lord and Savior or something back in Maybe. But I had to be creeping her out because she knew I was there. She intentionally didn't answer the door. And then I proceeded to sit in front of their house for another two hours in my car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little screams creep, man. I still only have my arrow bars, but I've got the bike. So does that bike come with like a built-in uh, wine glass holder then with its Merlot coloring? I think I'm going to use my camel pack for that. Oh, yeah. You want to, not enough liquid in a glass. No. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Well, congrats on your new bike. I have a, uh, I have a. I have a Trek uh, Madone from back. Oh, you in the do day. have a Madone. Yeah, and I um I bought this. I got a new job back in 2010, and uh, the job I did not start yet, but it was a salary in which I can now afford this bike on a payment plan. Well, I ended up quitting that job three weeks into it because I hated it, and so I had a four thousand dollar bike. I had to pay for it. it. Took me like <laughs> at that time, it took me like two years to pay it off. It was stupid. I still have it though, and it's great. Yeah. Yeah, so you're what, what frame size are you riding? I think like a 56. I'm on a 56 too. Yeah, I'm pretty big. I'm pretty big. I want to yeah. be all bunched up and racy yeah. on that yeah. thing. You are. Uh, tell, yeah. us about the, tell us about the brake handles real quick. Tell us about the brake handles? <laughs> yeah, tell me about the brake handles. Am I missing nope. something? You told me because it's a woman's bike that the brake handles are. <laughs> so I was looking on. I was looking for a reason not to buy a woman's bike. And everything that I read about it, like some guys on forums, like I work at a bike store, I fit men to women's bikes all the time. It's the same grade, everything like it's, it's, it's right. It's the same specs. You're fine. If anything, it has a little bit longer reach and lower stack, which is perfect if I'm riding a slightly smaller frame anyways. And then the kicker, like, but sometimes they make like the reach to the brakes and the gears a little bit smaller for a woman's hand. (laughs) (laughs) Sold. (laughs) You got me. That was really, yeah, you should never go back to a man's bike. No, I, I can I can reach the brakes with with all my fingers now. That's amazing. Instead of just like your middle one, <laughs> yeah, I had one of those like dinosaur trash grabbers. I had to use to <laughs> squeeze the brakes on my old bike. That's nice. That's nice. Um, all right, Bracken. Guess what today is? I'm your guest, Bracken. It is your time to shine today, Bracken. It is your big special day. Like a butterfly coming out of my chrysalis. Were you, I don't know, your chrysalis? You weren't, uh, you weren't able to sleep last night. You were so excited, I bet. Oh, man, I've been practicing my lines all night. <laughs> I bet. I have a few <laughs> no cards I'm going to flash up to the screen for cues that I want you to ask me because I have a really good line ready. Okay, and yeah, teeing me up to ask you very flattering yeah. questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we thought this would be fun to do. You know, I, I know a lot of you probably know Bracken. For, he's been around a little longer than I have, better than me. But maybe a lot of you don't know either of us very well. And so this episode and the next Friday's episode, we're going to do get to know your host episodes. If you're sick of us talking, I'm sorry, you're getting more of it. And we're starting with Bracken being the man of the hour right now. I appreciate that. First first of all, Kirk, I know you're you're running the interview, so I'm not going to Jack Bauer or Matt B. Davis this thing. Oh, but, thank you. So worried about that. But I am for I'm going to lead you into one question first, and then you can then you can go do your thing. I'm going to sit back and okay. stay out of your lane. Um, I would like you to share with the listeners your in-depth scientific method for deciding which of us went first in our interview process. Oh, yeah. This is a science, people. So uh, Bracken really enjoys using photos of me for the uh, small uh, 
episode icons or I use, I use them on the Instagram. And I look back and the last three photos were of me, Bracken. So we need a photo of your smiling mug next because it'd be too much me if we interviewed me first. It'd be too many of you in a row. He, he texted me last night and said, hey, we're going to go with you uh, based on the fact that we've used more pictures of me. Well, and hey, I, that's irrefutable. That's NC, and he didn't. Yeah, he didn't rebuttal. So I was, and, good and it's because you're just better at social media than I am. You have pictures of you doing every activity that we talk about on the podcast, where I have to like stretch to find something where I fit that topic with a picture of myself. Yeah, you need to step it up on social media, Bracken. Yeah, and you're a victim of your own success. So, all right, that's it. Terrible. I'm here to be. I'm here to be uh, dissected. Dive yeah, in, Kirk. We hear that now, and we'll see how this goes. I am an open book. I, uh, all right. Um, Bracken, why don't you introduce yourself to the people? Who are you, Bracken Cracker? Well, I am an ex-elite <laughs> obstacle racer. <laughs> don't say ex. Uh, I am Bracken Crocker, co-host of this glorious podcast, a mm-hmm. running and obstacle racing coach, uh, an aspiring athlete, husband, father of three, and a Midwestern boy, which you cannot tell by my dialect. It's true. A- I am- I have more of a Midwestern accent. Uh, what do you mean, aspiring athlete? It's been a minute. <laughs> it's been but you, have, but you have intentions of. I have intentions of being a really good athlete someday. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna get into that later. If that's okay with you. But see, yeah. for you, I wanted to. I, I think it's interesting. So Bracken and I, listeners, uh, we haven't gotten to know each other until like the last three years, really, three or four years. So Bracken and I don't go that far back. Um, I know you, but I don't like, I wasn't there for like your drunk idiot moments in college, or I wasn't there when you were a kid, or I don't know those stories. I don't know like your upbringing. I know you from like Bracken Spartan Pro, who I looked up to and started to follow on Instagram and then got the balls to reach out to to ask for coaching Bracken. And now we become buddies because we just fucking get along. But isn't it funny looking back at that? It is funny looking back at that. Oh yeah. I remember, I remember when we first started working together and I remember even being a little like nervous about uh, about reporting in and wanting to impress you with my 5K time trial off the bat, and all that stuff, just like any other new athlete. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, man. And then you, then you found out the truth. <laughs> hey, I did find out. I got some stacks from Jack Jack Bauer, but I am only I think I'm only two and four against you all time in races. Did you know that? I got some dirt on you. Okay, let's let's get to that later. Then I'm, we'll get to I, that later. I'm trying to think of what those two are. We'll get to that later. Where I beat you? Yeah, uh, Jacksonville last year and uh, Minnesota Mountain Stadium, Mountain Stadium. Oh yeah, or, or uh, Mountain. Sorry, race, mm-hmm. sprint race. Um, but anyways, we'll get into that later. So for you, man, I look at you as like one of the few like true athletes in this sport, and I also feel like your love for this sport was. You would have chosen other avenues of athleticism or athletics, possibly, if you could have. And this running thing, you almost just couldn't deny the fact that you were decent at it and had to pursue it. But you had other loves, right? So I want to go back to, like, as a kid, like, um, did you know you were always a good runner or was it always a byproduct of your athletics? It was both. Uh, Running for me was, like... When you hear about people who were friends their whole life and kept coming back to each other and finally got married. That's how running was for me. Like okay. I was always tempted by everything else, but at the end of the day, running just kept like telling me like this is the truth for you. So I okay. early on, like I ran everywhere. I was that kid that loved running. My parents, when uh they, they tell me this all the time, they love this story that like sitting on the steps or getting sent to my room worked okay, but the best punishment for me is they'd made me run around our neighborhood. 
So like if I was just being out of control or wasn't listening or whatever, they'd say, all right, three block, three laps are on the block. And by the time, like I'd run first lap, if really mad at them. And then second lap, I'd try to run faster than the first. And by the third, I'd like forget that I was in trouble and I'd come home and I was just a great kid again. Uh, they knew that it wasn't to like get rid of Penta. It wasn't an actual punishment. It was both. It, it was like, he needs a redirection. And we also know like, this is <laughs> like, I guess <laughs> exercise was my love language at that time. You were a little squirrely <laughs> as a young kid. I don't think I was a little squirrely, but I was obsessed with physicality. Like, okay. I, I was the, I was the kid that was just always outside doing something. We have pictures and videos of me when I, before I could walk, crawling in the backyard with a baseball bat, hitting a ball back and forth. And like, I learned to walk and I was trying to like dribble a basketball up and down the driveway. Like I I just, I always had a ball or or some sort of implement in my hand or I was running or I I was just a very physically active kid. And I was in a physically active family. I can relate to you on that outside thing. When I got in trouble, um, my mom would ground me outside. (laughs) She'd be like, get the F out of my hair. You just go burn some energy. So I, she like, you can't come in the house, pee behind the shed and you need three hours. And I ground it outside just to work that off. So, um, all right. So you're like six months old and you're dribbling a basketball. Trying to. Yeah. Yeah. Just that's the way it was. Yeah. And it's what I was surrounded by. Everyone in my family was an athlete and it was never pushed upon me, but that's just the environment we grew up in. I didn't know any different. You're one of four. One of four, yeah. Two sis, two older sisters. One older sister. I'm second oldest. Then my brother, and then we have a younger sister. Okay, and why don't you tell everybody? You come from a pretty special uh, breed, we'll call it. Tell us about your siblings and how they're all athletes as well. well I mean, first off, my mom was a uh, state champion in volleyball and an all-state sprinter in high school. Oh. She was. Uh, she played shortstop on a men's team when that wasn't really allowed, and she was one of those people that would have had the full ride to college, but they weren't doing much women's athletics at the time. Oh, um, my dad took a full ride uh, Division One Northern Illinois University and played quarterback, and um, went undrafted, but had uh, tryouts with the Cowboys, the Niners, the Bears. Signed a contract with the Bears for a little bit. Played in the CFL, so he was a stud as well. His uh, one of his wide receivers in college was his brother. Um, like that, it's just everyone in the family was athletic. My brother, my mom's side had runners. My dad's side had basketball and football players, and we were all kind of like that mix right in between. Mm. My older sister was on the U.S. Uh, national rhythmic gymnastics team. At 12, she moved to uh, uh, Illinois, not Illinois, um, Atlanta, Roswell, to train at the Olympic Training Center, and then also trained in the Lake Placid Center and Colorado Springs. So wow. she moved away to be a professional gymnast starting at 12. Um, my Dang. younger brother ran in college, uh, did the Spartan thing for a little bit. My little sister, my little sister, who is like, what, 25 now? Still your little sister. Um, plays pro ball in Spain. She's entering, she just signed uh, back with this team for her fourth year of playing professional basketball in Spain. So like everyone in our family does something and that's just the environment we grew up in. So really, I mean, if Macaulay wanted to pursue, pursue this uh, Spartan thing, you could be the least athletically inclined human in your family. Is that what you're telling me? Like realistically, I could be the least successful athlete in our family. And he's a, he's a better, he's a better runner than I am. He's just, his passion hasn't aligned with his talent in, in sports ever. Okay. So what sports did you grow up playing then when you were, let's go back to, you know, now you're like just a kid, young kid. What what were you playing? 
Uh, gymnastics was the first thing we did. My mom was a gymnastics coach. And so we grew up in the gymnastics gym, like from two till 13, I was a, a gymnast really? uh, traveling out of state doing gymnastics. I've always admired like gym, being a male gymnast is like a secret, like aspiration of mine. Yeah. I always thought that was just such a badass sport and such a true, like at a display of fitness. So that's what you did for years. Yeah. It, it started in like fourth or fifth grade. I started playing soccer. I played baseball my whole life. So baseball and soccer and gymnastics. Um, but I, I got to the point in gymnastics where it was kind of like I had to choose or get off the pot. I was getting to the point where it was two to three hour practices, five days a week and um, competition season was long and it was commit fully to gymnastics at the expense of all other sports or commit to all other sports at the expense of gymnastics. And for me, it was an easy choice. I, I was getting to the point where I was starting to get to things that were scary for me in gymnastics, you know, release moves, um, a lot of time in the air. And I was never super comfortable with that world. Uh, gymnastics is one of those things too, isn't it? Like from what I understand, like if you're going to commit to gymnastics, it is your life more, probably more so than any other sport. The amount of time those kids spend yeah. in, the, in the gym is insane. And I'd watch my sister. Uh, uh, do you know the name uh, Chelsea Memel? I don't. Okay. She was the Olympic gymnast from, from my hometown. We grew up together. So I'd watch my sister go to Olympic trials. I'd watched my, not, but I don't have trials, world championships for gymnastics. I'd watch Chelsea uh, go to the Olympics and a world championship. She was a world champion. I'd seen what it was to do and I didn't want any part of that. And huh. I, I wasn't that good. I, I, I would have topped out at a regional level, but uh, I was, I was like l literally getting afraid of the, 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 the moves and the skills I had to do. And I was also at the stage where I wanted to play team sports. Uh, you're a little tall for a gymnast too, actually. I wasn't, <laughs> I grew very late. Uh, I, I had a good build for a gymnast at the time, but yeah, I, I would have outgrown that. So at that point, I in seventh, eighth grade, um, eighth grade, I quit and and took up basketball. I left for so I could start playing basketball, and uh, and that was it. The basketball, um, that bet you that's something you were playing in, like your driveway like, growing up. You knew like you were decent at it. I that's all I had ever done was played in my driveway, and my dad worked with us with whatever we wanted to do. Like I was never pushed one time, but if we wanted to do something, we received unlimited support in that. And so he worked with me all the way up to tryouts, like lefty layups, offhand dribbling, you know, every post, I was four, like seven in eighth grade, <laughs> like post moves, baby, like everything I could possibly teach me. And so, so I could show up and make up for the years that I hadn't played organized ball. You know, and I didn't even touch on this. You, uh, you grew up in Milwaukee, right? West Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. West Dallas. Okay. Which Moved to West Dallas in high school. Okay. Where were you before that? Milwaukee. Oh, you were in, in Milwaukee proper? Yeah. Nice. I lived in Milwaukee for a while. Outskirts, but it was still Milwaukee proper. Got it. So now you're uh, you're playing basketball and that's all you're playing? You're just solely playing basketball? No, basketball, now? baseball, soccer. Everything. Um, right. And then I started running track in seventh and eighth grade too. Which sport were you the best at before you hit track? Uh, probably soccer. Yeah. Midfielder? Yeah. I was I was a end line to end line midfielder. Yeah, all right. Good I man. Played on a, a pretty subpar team, and I just got to just go wild. Just freaking <laughs> run, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um. But I was also I was a pretty good baseball player at that age. Okay, so you were focusing on a lot of stuff, and then you went to track and field. Tell me I went about to high that. school. Um. I open enrolled into West Dallas for high school because we were going to move there. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and so our soccer team hadn't won a conference game in four years. And mm. I love competing and I hate losing. And so I started running cross country because I refuse to play. Losing. You hate losing more than I think anybody I know. I, it's it's almost not almost. It's a it's a negative part of my persona. <laughs> I only know that because after a race that you don't you're not happy with you're gone. You're gone. Suddenly there's Bracken is not at the facility. I know, you know yourself well enough to just get out of there. Yeah. And and it's, and I've taken some flack for that. It's not a, it's not a, Oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go pout thing. It's a, I, I, I'm not mature enough to fake it well enough to be pleasant to be around. And I generally come back to the facility after an hour or two, but I need to get away. It's something I've I've gotten better at, and it's been better since being a coach, where I can like stay and just go watch one of my athletes like in the open race or the age group race, and then I can kind of get away from my own self pity there. But yeah, I have a I really my entire life I've struggled with losing, so I quit soccer to avoid losing, and I start I took up cross country. Some would say that was a smart decision. You weren't setting yourself up for failure. That's right. Yeah. And I wouldn't say it's a matter of maturity, lack of maturity, by the way, Bracken, to leave a race if you're not happy with your performance. I think that's a display of maturity to know yourself well enough to get out of there for a minute, cool down and come back. For me, I got to go right to the beer tent. I got to be like, I just needed two beers to just like tolerate my own situation today. That's how I do it. Yeah. And the thing is, I know I'm going to I'm going to whine and complain or like vent and no one wants that. Mm-hmm. half the field had a bad race like no one wants to hear everyone talk about it and the people that did well they deserve to be the ones telling the stories and like having people talk to them I don't want to like bring everyone down so I can go do it by myself for an hour or two and then come back and be like a productive member of society or I can just mope around all day and I wish that wasn't me but it is yeah I kind of the same way too I just you blast some Miley Cyrus in your car and then come back to the uh, venue so high school I, I took up cross country yeah, you took up cross country to avoid being a loser. Mm-hmm. All right, what? Well, so what happened? Um, I was I was moderately successful. We didn't have like a huge history of success in our program. We'd had a few outliers, state qualifiers throughout the years, but um, we didn't have like this really productive program. And there were three of us, two two buddies of mine who came in as freshmen, and we were all moderately successful. And that kind of like started. We 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 were also like not total out like rejects in our school. We weren't mm-hmm. like the top of the food chain, but we were close enough that running started to become acceptable throughout that time, which was kind of cool. So I could <laughs> I could run cross country and not be like a total outcast for it. What was what what were you like? What kind of guy were you in high school? If other people had to be like, that's Bracken. Bracken's this dude. How would you label yourself? Which I hate, of course, the high school labels. But how would people perceive you? I don't. I really don't know because I was I was two totally different people in high school. I came in at five foot, one half inch, 102 pounds. I was basically a little kid with grown ups around me, you know? Okay. So I was like probably this little kid who probably tried a little bit too hard to be funny and fit in, but I was also pretty athletically talented. So like I was on every team and uh, a contributing member. So I was like in the realm, but like I was an outsider because I was a little kid. And then I grew up as a, throughout high school and then I became whoever I was. But you know how at high school is like your roles get kind of entrenched early. So I feel like high school was a holding pattern for like me becoming who I was later where I knew like, all right, this isn't me. This isn't my, my ceiling. But like when I get off to college, I can finally like spread my wings a little bit. I feel like cross country is sort of a sport of misfits in general, but there's there's always like one or two 
true athletes that will come out to either like facilitate another sport or to just stay active in the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, was that kind of how you looked at it? Yeah, I, I said that, but I was way too competitive to be that. Like there, there was the moment practice started, like I was a hundred percent in on cross country. And then the moment it ended, I was a hundred percent in on basketball. And the moment that ended, I was a hundred percent back in on track. And the moment that ended, I was a hundred percent in on baseball. Cause we played summer ball in Southeastern Wisconsin. So I, I, I could play all four sports with only like a week or two overlap between track and baseball. Do you feel like your uh, hand in a number of cookie jars limited your potential in any or all of those sports? It limited my potential in all of them because I yeah. never trained in an off season for anything. My off season just was another season. Like summer was your base building time. I was playing baseball. So I, and I didn't have like the drive to work. I had the drive to compete. So my ceiling was limited in all of it, but my passion was like super high for all because I never burnt out. I just went from one season to the next. Then it was like, boom, refilled passion. I'm all in on this sport. There's something to say about that, actually, just coming back in with renewed vigor. And it's also, from a runner's standpoint, you're not going to peak too early in the season, that's for sure. I raced my way into shape every year. I hammered intervals, and I raced my way into shape. And that's what almost our whole school did. We had very few people. In fact, you were you were kind of like talked about behind your back if you trained in the offseason for running at our school, because why would you commit and take it so seriously when there's so many other sports to play? That's the way we looked at it, unfortunately. Yeah, that is unfortunate. So you would literally just do baseball practice all summer and not run a lick. And then you show up to cross country practice and your first day of running that year would be like that day. I'd, I'd run a time or two per week. There'd be some weeks I'd run three times. Then a week I'd run once. Sometimes my running was like, I'd run a mile over to my buddy's house and we'd play three on three basketball all afternoon. And then I'd jog home at night. Okay. No, I was active all summer, but I wasn't training for cross. And this whole time, you're like, I am going to be an athlete of some sort in my life moving forward. Like, I still plan to be an athlete. I firmly believe that I was going to be a college baseball player and then find – because I, I always found a way. I was never the biggest, strongest, fastest. I was the craftiest. I was the cagiest. Like, I always found a way to succeed. And I thought, like, I'm going to find a way onto a college baseball team, and then I'm going to find a way to get drafted. And I was like fairly like certain I was going to play minor league ball. That was my that was my goal. When did that dream come crashing down, Bracken? <laughs> my, <laughs> uh, in college, yeah, I kept it all the way through college. But in high school, I, like, I was I was I was I wasn't a dominant physical baseball player, but I I played varsity for uh, four years. Oh wow! Um, I I got brought up at the end of my freshman year for a varsity tournament, so really three and a quarter years. But I started the next three years on varsity as an undersized kid until I grew in. Um, I was all conference. I, I I was good enough. You know, batted well over four hundred, pitched, played short. Like I, I did enough that I was like, all right, I have the tools set to play in college. Stud. I've been around you enough and just doing stupid things like doing forty meter spear throws and other things to know that you probably move as or more athletically than anybody that I know. I compare you to like a Hunter McIntyre who moves the least athletically out of any athlete I know. <laughs> and it's true, by the way. That is a true statement. And I He's know a straight-line powerhouse, but he do not make him break out a straight line. <laughs> try, try to watch Hunter McIntyre play basketball. It's, you'll be on your back rolling. Um, anyways, so point being is I've seen you move and you are a freaking stud. You can move in all planes of motion and make it look effortless and easy and fluid. So I don't doubt that for a second. 
So why I, I just want to hone on the baseball thing because I know you talked about that a lot in the past. Like what? Where did that go wrong? When did when did that happen where you actually had to like wave the white flag? Well, it kind of started earlier. It started in cross country my senior year. I took cross seriously that senior year. I wasn't in great shape coming in, but I raced my way into good shape, and I had finally grown. I was probably five ten, five eleven by this point. Started to uh, started to fill out a little bit, and coming into our conference meet, I was finally like one of the guys that could maybe like do something for the team. Um, I'd, I'd finally started running in the 16s, which on our cross country courses was okay. And, uh, the day before our conference meet, we did a morning run. So we'd have 24 hours to recover. And I rolled my ankle and I had to like hobble back, walk the last two miles back to school, spent all day, like icing it in the trainer's room. I taped it up. I ran and I was terrible at conference. So then I had one week until regionals. We do conference regionals, qualify from regionals to state. In um, track. Across as well. Oh, you did? Yeah, we have to qualify to state from regionals. That's how much older I am than I'm from Wisconsin. I ran the Wisconsin system. We yeah. did not have to do that in cross when I did it. Interesting. We went right to sectionals. Everybody went to sectionals, and then you just qualified out of sectionals to state. Oh, sorry. I called it regional state. It's sectional state. Same okay. thing. We had one meet qualification go. Um, and we were we were Wisconsin's D1, D2, D3. Division one is the big one, and then it trickles down. So we were D1, big schools. Um and I got to sectionals a week later and my, my ankle just wasn't right. And uh, I taped it up and coming in with a quarter mile to go, I was in sixth place. Um, they still take top, top five then? Top five go. And I was right with this one guy and we kicked all the way in together and I just couldn't get up on my toes and kick. And I, mm-hmm. that, was, that was such a dagger for me because I was a kicker. I was always the kid who was out of shape. So I always just hung around as long as I could. And then I'll kicked everyone. And it came all the way down. We both leaned at the line from 500 meters out. We kicked all the way in and he beat me by like, a, like one hundredth of a second for the final spot to state. And then our team took third top two go. We took third by two points. That's so brutal. So I missed on both. And I, I, I spent like a half hour just wandering in the woods crying. I have a question. Yeah. That kid that beat you by hundredths of a second, was yeah. he on one of the two teams that were in front of you? No. Because if he was, that would have been a two-point offset if you would have beat him. They would have but, had one more, you would have yeah. had one less, and then the team would have went. Our four and five runners both gave up like two or three spots down the stretch, like in the shoot. Ugh. Um, but anyways, he, he he was Mark Mitchell. He run on, He went on to run at, I believe, Stevens Point. Okay. Um, anyways, I just like wandered in the woods, just like I was just devastated, like – Mm-hmm. I was so close to going to state, which is a big thing in high school. And, mm-hmm. and I knew I could have, but like the ankle, the ankle was the issue, but it was the, it was the tip of the iceberg. The real issue was that I was the least prepared kid there. Okay. And I shouldn't have needed the ankle to like, I, I should have been able to run on one foot and get there. Cause we had a weak sectional. Mm. And so anyways, I got done with that and I decided I was going to train. So all throughout that winter, I, I, I had an awesome schedule because I was way ahead in my credits and everything. We had block classes, 90-minute classes. So I took back-to-back study halls, first and second block, and dropped them. So I had uh, three hours of no class to start my day. You didn't go to school until like 10 a.m.? I'd go to school at 6 because my dad taught in the district. I'd go to school with him. He'd, I'd lift in the morning. Then I'd go out and I'd run three of the days, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the other two days I'd shoot because it was during basketball. And then I'd go and I'd eat breakfast like in the commons. And then I'd 
play Mario Kart or watch movies in the science lab. Like that was my morning. <laughs> but boy. for the first time ever, I ran in the off season during basketball. So I was practicing every night for basketball mm-hmm. and then running three to four days a week and lifting three to four days a week. And I got to, to my basketball finally started. And then I, I went from like 5'11", 135 to six foot 155 over that winter. And I was fast from basketball. And I came out mm-hmm. and I won the indoor mile that year. And won the outdoor mile, outdoor two mile, um, and 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 I ran. I ended up running four twenty six that year. I'd run four fifty two the year before. Oh my god, that's a huge improvement. Yeah, I went from like ten twenty four two mile. I ran one two miles a senior at conference. I doubled mile two mile, and that meet I went four twenty six nine fifty two. Wow. Um, and then we went out in like five oh six for the two mile, and I just cranked her down the last two laps. So like I was starting to run semi quick for our division. And, um, and I realized, man, I might end up running in college. And then again, I got to sectionals. We, I, I ran the, the 3,200 meter relay, the mile and the two mile at sectionals, just cruised them all just to get through to section or at regionals, got to sectionals and coach was like, you just go all in on the mile. And if you feel good, double back in the two, but we had had a group of guys. We'd been to school for four years together and we wanted to run that four by 800 meter relay. So we decided I'd anchor that. It was either run it lead off or run hard and get extra rest or run anchor and just do what I had to do to survive. Yep. I ended up having to close in 58 to get to state. Oh, wow. And like 21 minutes later, the mile ran. Mm-hmm. And I was in the pack for three laps and I got spit out the back. Uh, so uh, Andrew Voss won that one. Oh, yeah. I know. He's, yeah, he was an Oshkosh guy. Yeah. So he and I both run 426 that year and we were looking to like duel and get after it. And I like spit out the back, jogged in at 441 and uh, scratched the two mile. So again, I ended my season on a huge disappointment. And that kind of like, that ended up being like the theme of my life athletically. I'd fail (laughs) forward. I'd have a huge disappointment. But those motivate you ultimately, I assume, to go back and get it right. Yeah. And I was always the underworker. So it took like a big disappointment to like learn, access the next level of motivation to start practicing more. So I Mm -hmm. got a taste of it one winter of working, I went from 452 to 426. And that was like a three to four days a week running. I'm like, okay, all right. Like I kind of get it now. And I, that 426 got me into college running. And so at that point I put baseball on hold and I shouldn't say the 426 got me to college running. Oh yeah. That was I, I weaseled idea. my way into college running. 426 is good enough to get recruited by division three schools for sure. But I didn't, I didn't get recruited by anybody. With that mm-hmm. extra hour and a half I had after working out my senior year, I sent out 182 athletic resumes to any D1 and D2 school in the nation where I thought I could run. So I took a look at every D1 and D2 school's roster in the nation, looked at their previous year's milers results, and sent out an athletic resume to every coach who I could have made their team if I improved a little bit. So I sent out like 182 of those. Hustling. I got four and- letters back. And with those four letters, of those four, I got two phone calls. Of those two, one person effort offered me a half scholarship, which was Campbell University. And where'd you go? Campbell University. <laughs> That's right, I, you did. I, I nailed my ACT. So between the the uh, the ACT scholarship and the uh, the half running scholarship, I got my college pretty much paid for. So I went down there and and ran. You know what I like about this, and, and this seems to start to be a theme, the more people we talk to on this podcast, and you're, you fall right in line. It's like, this isn't, like, nothing's laid out on a silver platter. Nobody's rolling out the red carpet. You're taking your lumps. You're coming back. It's, it's the failure and the constant banging your head against the wall that brings you back. It's the process. It's the staying hungry. Like, 
it's not, I mean, yes, you got a taste of success and that's what's, that's obviously was a catalyst as well. But like, this doesn't sound like a super smooth process. No, but it was what I, what I said, like, I always found a way I was always going to like use some trick or like finagle my way into some success. And I thought I'm going to do that with college. I'm, I'm going to have a college scholarship. And if I have to send out 182 letters, like I'm going to get someone to say yes to me. Um, I want to jump on Campbell University in a second, but I also want to know what were you doing out? What were some of the things you were into, Bracken, like outside of your athletics when you were like in this high school phase? What were you doing? Not a thing. Not Nothing. A thing. No, I. You weren't smoking weed or out there getting hammered. You weren't doing any of that stuff. To this stuff. day, I've still never smoked. And I did not drink a drop of alcohol in high school. So you were on the straight and narrow. You were, I mean, you were, you were focused on something athletic. Yeah. I didn't have much desire to, but I also like every day after school, I went to practice every, and I practiced hard. I was a, I was a competitor. I always practiced. Like I didn't work in the off season, but the moment the whistle blew, I, I worked as hard as anyone I'd ever seen. And I'd come home exhausted. I'd eat dinner. I'd do my homework and it'd be like nine o'clock and I'd mm-hmm. fall into bed and I'd wake up and start it over. And then weekends were competitions. And I, I know other people found ways around that. I just never, I just never did. I just decided, and, and I didn't have an off season. Like mm-hmm. basketball started up right after cross and track and baseball actually overlapped. I had one day where I ran a four by eight, went and pitched three innings, came back and ran the two mile. Come on. Because it was at the same facility. Like I, oh, yeah. we overlapped for a week and a half or two weeks. Like I just didn't have time. I guess summer I could have. And I, by that point, I'd gone three quarters of the year without it. And I didn't feel like it kind of became a pride thing. Like, no, I don't. I'm, I'm going to see if I can make it through high school without doing that. Yeah. And knowing you, you have such like a, like you're a very type A personality, at least on one end of your personality spectrum. Like you're a doer, you're like, I don't know, you, you kind of put gusto into everything you do. I'm surprised like that just didn't catch up with you on like the party scene in high school or something where you, cause I feel like you have the personality for it if you wanted to choose to go that way. Yeah. It almost, it, it kind of became like a, this, I'm, I'm going to not intend, I'm going to, on purpose, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And, and luckily I had a couple friends who were, who were able, who wanted to do the same thing and none of us were like ostracized for it. It was just kind of known like, mm. yeah, they're, they're, they're not going to come. They're not going to drink with us, but they'll like come hang out and that's okay. And people uh, yeah. were kind of cool about it. That's great. Yeah. I was like when I was like, we had open campus lunch and stuff in high school and like my, like the guy who gave me a ride was, would smoke weed every lunch hour. And then mm-hmm. we'd go here and I was just kind of there. Like they were, they respected the non-participation. They yeah. got it. Yeah. Um, all right, dude. So you went to college and I guess Campbell university didn't last very long. Did it? No, it was a really strange situation. The coach down there was, was just a, an odd man. He really was. Is that why he chose you to start with? You think he's an odd man? I think that he did not recruit at all. And if someone was going to do his job for him, that was one less item on his checklist to do. Mm. He he was a strange man, and um, we didn't get along. I I don't know. I was always a little too lighthearted for him, mm-hmm. and I also didn't have the performance to back up to my lightheartedness. I mean, realistically, I was out of my depth at D1. I was, I was not prepared, and he was not prepared to um, accommodate anyone. Everyone trained like a 10K runner. That's it. You all instantly bump up to 70 or 80 miles, and you all run the same workouts. And when you get to track, if you're a faster guy, you'll run the mile, and your speed will carry you through kind of thing. Right. And I, for the first time in my life, got a running injury. I had IT band issues, which were just debilitating. Mm. Like, it's not a real injury, but it doesn't matter. I couldn't you can't walk, get away from it. I couldn't walk downstairs. 
Like I, I couldn't do anything. I rehabbed three, four times a day, every day for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it just didn't get better. And I eventually, uh, didn't run my, I didn't run track. I ran one indoor meet, uh, started the next one, couldn't even get through my warm up, And that was it. And, uh, he's like, all right, well, we'll, we'll redshirt you. And I, during that time of rehabbing, I started lifting and I got down to 139 pounds that year. So I was six foot 139 after graduating six foot 155. Mm. And, um, by the time I got to the end of the year, I was like 160 and I, like my body was just craving calories and it was craving work. And so I ended up lifting like four days a week and I put on weight and I started, uh, throwing a little bit. And by the time I got back home, I had a couple talks with my parents and just realized I'm not going back. So I emailed them, let them know, um, asked for athletic release. And I started training every day. I started hitting, throwing, fielding every day to get ready for, I was going to try back out for baseball. Oh man. Little did you know in this whole process too, you're kind of setting yourself up again for OCR success by running and lifting and all that stuff without yeah. knowing it. Yeah. And this, this is, this is when I changed as an athlete that summer. So I was working a manual labor job, which I loved. I loved it. And I was outside all day long working and I'd bike there and I'd bike back. It was 11 miles each way. And then I'd lift a couple days a week and every day I'd either hit, throw or field. And my dad was great. He'd lift with me. Um, he'd pitch to me anytime we drive out to the field, he'd, he'd throw 200 balls and I'd hit, or he'd hit me 200 grounders and I'd field, uh, he'd catch for me as I pitch. Like he just supported whatever I wanted to do. And then I just ran a lot of like 30 and 40 yards burst sprints to get ready. So I was up to like over once I was like 175, 180 by the end of this and went to, I went uh, to our local, our university at UW Whitewater and I tried out for baseball. Yeah. And uh, I got cut. <laughs> no, I thought I thought I had had a really good tryout. Um, I was in. I was taking a gym class, uh, exercise walking, <laughs> with uh, <laughs> with the assistant coach. We got along great. He's like, "Hey, it's doing great." And when they made final cuts, I thought I was on the team, and I wasn't. And I, I went to him like, "What? What happened?" He's like, "Well, you know, head coach has final say, and you know, he's there's some returning players he wants on." And in my mind, it was I deserved to be on that team, and the mm-hmm. coach took me for one of his boys. And in reality, the assistant coach is probably being nice to me. You know, I, I don't know, but Dang. he's like, I had a teammate of mine who's now the head coach at lacrosse and I know they're looking for a middle infielder still. So at term, I transferred to UW lacrosse. Man, still pursuing baseball, still but just. I, I didn't know anything different. Like my whole life was predicated around competition. Well, I'm just it, thinking like, man, you moved down to North Carolina. Yep. Then you come and you enroll in Whitewater in Wisconsin for another crack at athletics that mm-hmm. doesn't go well. So then you transfer to another school. Now this is on your, this is on your first year and a half of college. First year and semester. First, so this dude, well, all I'm hearing, man, is like how you're fucking wired. Like yeah. you are not like, you're still just walking into walls here. And you know, well, I firmly shit. believed that I was like, I still believed I was going to like, ha- I knew like if I, if someone just lets me on, I'm going to do what I always do. I'm going to be put in this like backup role and then I'm going to find my way into the starting lineup and I'm never right. going to give it back. Because of talent, work and, ethic. And, and, oh. and I was a gamer. I all my entire life, I'm able to do things in competition that I can't in practice. Okay. Just needed the chance. Across the board. And, and I think pretty well on my feet. Like I'm able to do the things that like you dream about doing in a competition. I can usually like pull it off. 
in like, especially team sports, like moves and, and, and scenarios. Like I, I generally capitalize on those things that are in front of me. And, uh, and I just knew like, if I get in the starting lineup, like I'm not giving it back. I, so I, I still knew I was going to be a great baseball player. So I went up to lacrosse and I'm trying out. And again, I think I'm having a really good tryout. I took a, I was in line for, um, we're doing short hop drills where the coach is standing not too far away and he just hits a really hard short hop at you and you got to mm-hmm. knock it down. And then guy in front of me wasn't paying attention and the, uh, and I didn't have my glove on. I wasn't paying attention and he missed it. And the coach, the coach got under it a little bit and hit a line drive instead of a short hop. The kid wasn't paying attention and missed it. And it hit me right on my throwing hand on my thumb mm-hmm. and fractured a bone in my thumb. And I'm like, well, th- this is, this is not happening. So I, I got it taped. I didn't tell anyone. I went over, got it taped up and I just continued tryouts. But my throwing hand was taped up and that's your, I don't know. So swinging hurt, throwing hurt. And uh, maybe I wasn't good enough. Maybe I was limited, but I got cut there too. And this isn't the same, like you literally went through like a week with the trout at Whitewater. Then I went through a whole term there. Whole term. Okay. And I transferred at term to lacrosse. Man. So now twice now you didn't make the cut. Now where's your head at, man? Where are you, what, where's your head at? So this was the lowest point of my college. Um, I had started partying by this point. Mm-hmm. And you know when you met Lisa somewhere around there, your wife? Not yet. No. Okay. So I'm at lacrosse now. I live in the baseball house with five other baseball players and I'm not on the baseball team. Every day they go to practice. Every day they come home. And I just started partying more and more. I started Mm -hmm. drinking more, um, lifted a little. I did like the college thing where I'd drink a bunch and then the next day go in and do like buys and tries and chess. Were you going to get in fish bowls in lacrosse? No. I mean, I was, what was I, 19? Too young for the bars. Yeah. Um, but it was just like, I was aimless. I played a lot of like pickup basketball and I didn't run a step, but I'd lift. And I don't know. I, it was just, I spent that whole semester, like the rest of that term. And then the next, uh, next part of it all the way through winter, just like, and then into spring, like just doing nothing good with my life. Is that still the low point of your athletic career? Would you say that time period? Honestly, I'd say it's tied for right now. Oh yeah. Okay. Which I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah, we'll get to you. So we got to spring and uh, I was going crazy, like restless. I was, I was trying to find things to occupy my time classes. I wasn't taking anything challenging. I was, I was just like aimless. One day I got done like lifting or playing basketball and I came home and I got in the shower and I'll never forget this. I got in the shower and I looked down and I'm like, what is that? And there was something below my belly button that had never been there before. Uh, a gut. It was the start of a belly. <laughs> there was something there. And I had never seen anything there before in my life. And I turned the shower off. I toweled off as quickly as I could. I put on a pair of shorts, put on a pair of shoes, and I went out for a run. Okay. And it was so terrible. It was like 90 degrees out and humid. And I hadn't run. And now it's going on like nine months or maybe even a year, probably a year without doing a, 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 a run run. Yeah. And I just went out at probably like 640 pace, like casually down at Campbell, we'd probably run 610, 620 on most of our easy days. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason I was always hurt. <laughs> but, <laughs> and I made it like five minutes at that. And I was just so hot and sweaty and terrible. It was just, it was a terrible run. And I got back home. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. 
but I will never, I cannot feel like this another day. And I just started running every day. And then I started hanging out with, uh, after school with the guys who were like the gray shirts in D3, their, their version of red shirting and started running with them. The guys who can't practice with the team, but are trying to stay in shape. And I started running with them and I found myself at parties at like two, three in the morning, like having to leave a party, but I'm underage and I'm drunk. What I started doing is I'd bring running clothes to a party in a little mini backpack and I'd get to the end of the night and I'd change into running clothes and I'd run home. Uh, I found like students who walk home in their going out clothes get underage. Like it's obvious Uh, you've been drinking. mm -hmm. Someone running in short shorts or tights at two in the morning just looks like a weird exerciser. And so I just run home from every party and I'd found, I found out like it'd be three in the morning, I'd be drunk and I'd be just like grinning and flying, just running tempo pace every time I ran, even if it was like a mile home or two miles home. And I was just enjoying it. I realized like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I got to get back to running. So I transferred again. Again. So you transferred back to Whitewater because that was the college I actually wanted to be at. I didn't want to go to lacrosse. I just wanted to play baseball. Okay. So I transferred back to Whitewater and uh, tried out for the team. That's your so- spring year, sophomore year? That would have been, I transferred back in uh, my sophomore year. I started my fall sophomore term there and practiced with the guys in fall. And then in December, December 9th that year, uh, ran their alumni meet, which is your tryout for the team. Okay. And that is where we would maybe say your now day running career began. That, that, yeah. All of that laid the groundwork for now. I, I went through my putting on strength and muscle phase and I went through my aimless stage and I then I put in a fall of base building with the team and mm-hmm. I discovered I had foot speed for the first time in my life. All those 30 and 40 yards burst sprints and box jumps and plyo and lifting and 20 extra pounds of muscle. I, uh, I all out in a relay, I split 55.5 in a 400 in high school and I split 50.2 in my first relay in college. I just dropped five seconds in a 400 by putting on 20 pounds and and working on burst stuff. And I met Lisa and I met Lisa at that track meet, that first tryout. Oh, you did? Yeah. Everything's starting to align now, Bracken. Yeah. You're not walking into walls anymore. You're walking through doors. That's right. Doors started to open up then. Yeah. All right. So I want to spend just a little time on your college career and then I want to jump forward to to today and and things like that. So uh, college, you started running fast, man. Tell me about it. Uh, Moderately fast for D3. I... I ran 155 indoor that first year and made all conference um, and kind of petered out there. I still didn't have enough base. We did a ton of speed work at Whitewater and that was kind of it. And then that next year um, ran 154 and then the next year ran 153 and graduated never having made nationals. I always... You hit the marks though. Did you hit provisional marks for Nats? Uh, I'd usually hit Provo, and it'd be nowhere close. Um, really? What did it take uh, to get in in the eight? That in your years? Fifty-two ninety-nine, uh, fifty-one ninety-nine one year, or fifty-two five. Like it was always fifty-two mid or under. Okay, pretty quick. Uh, that's indoors as well. Uh, indoors was usually like fifty-three flat, fifty-three okay. one might get in. So I went as part of a, a DMR. I mean, first year actually, I went as part of a DMR. I ran the 1200 leg and just shat the bed. It, the nationals was a really, really intimidating place for me. So anyone who's never run an indoor national meet, you are confined to the building during, during this. So like we did our warm up outside a little bit, but that day, I think it was like 10 below and it was sleeting or whatever. So like you were confined to the building and we were, every team was in a basketball court. That, that was it. 
And so it was mm-hmm. like, you could warm up in there. And I was totally thrown off. And then since I was leadoff leg, I was in that, like the corral area where mm-hmm. you have to have your spikes on and your jersey off, on and your warmups off like 15 minutes prior to your race. And then you're just standing there in this room covered, surrounded in sheets so that there's like no outside mm-hmm. that noise getting in. And it's just like a, a holding pen and everyone's a stud there. And I was my first year running college track and I got out of that corral and you get one stride and then the race starts and I lined up in the wrong lane and they had to call everyone back and announce like whitewater <laughs> shift to lane four. And I ran a, the worst race of my college life. I just kept getting like bumped to the outside and spit out the back and every straightaway I'd try to like move back up. And by the time the last lap came, I had nothing left and I handed off in second to last. Was, was that how many matches do you have to burn in a race? It sounds like I burned be all of them before the bell lap. Jocelyn. And we had a bunch of studs. We had Brian Butzler running the mile. He had to run 406 or 404 that year. They brought us back to like fifth, and I got – I was an All-American that year. <laughs> so, <laughs> the least deserving ever. Brian Butzler went to Oshkosh. He was part of my recruiting class as a freshman. Yeah. We were in the same recruiting class, yeah. So, anyways, that was my first nationals. My senior year, we went back, and I earned it this time. I ran leadoff leg, handed off, tied for first. Um, we were on national record pace, and we had a miler closing it out that hadn't run slower than 410 that year but he had run a 152, 800, like 16 minutes before in prelims. And our coach had not filled in an alternate. And so he had to run it. Mm-hmm. When I handed off, I handed off, I looked over, he was sitting in the first row of the bleachers with his spikes not on yet and his head in his hands trying to recover. Oh my God. He went out in 61, like 62, and ended up running 436 and we took last. Bah. So like That was the end of my senior indoor year and outdoor, um, I didn't make nationals. So again, like, I had some success throughout the, the 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 time, but I ended on failure again, just like high school. That's usually how it ends for everybody, by the way. Not very few people end on top. No, but I didn't accomplish any of my goals. I didn't even qualify for nationals my senior year as outdoor. So, uh, so that was it. Like in that, I ended angry and I ended upset. And it's probably the reason I kept working out. And that fall, I ran, I ran my first Spartan race. So like, I transitioned right into it. Dang. Yeah, it seems like uh, you keep fuel on the fire with like more like I need to still like accomplish something I'm setting out for, like for real. Do you think that like you always would feel that way though? I don't know. Are you, are you like the guy that you're never going to be satisfied? I don't know. Probably. I always wonder the guys who like go undefeated for years, could I do that mentally? Like, would I still have drive or is it because I've always been like the little dog in the fight? Is that why I have a drive? Mm-hmm. I've never known because I've never been like the greatest. I've never had an like just easy win after easy win. So I don't know what it would be like if I'd have drive or not. Okay. I just like hearing, man. I like hearing that you've been, you've taken, I mean, you've worked hard and you had some success along the way. Like we're, I'm not overlooking that. But like you still kind of just like still have like you're taking your lumps. Just like when we interviewed back, like we interviewed Hobie Call and Hobie Call gave up the whole dang dream because his marathon trials were a, a catastrophe and Hunter McIntyre's doing drugs, probably laying in a ditch somewhere thinking like, what am I even doing myself right now? And you're still at this point where you're like, I'm still like, I've had these letdowns and you just keep like, that's a fuel yeah. and it's in a sense, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, I, I left high school as a, on a D1 scholarship. And I graduated as a division three athlete who never qualified individually for nationals. So like I had success along the way, but like big picture, I hadn't accomplished what I'd want to accomplish. Yeah. Do you still feel like you have some things that you need to accomplish that like, do you feel course. like? Yeah. yeah. I feel like I've never once in my life hit my ceiling. 
So you don't think winning so winning stadium series championships that's not enough for you? No, because it wasn't against it wasn't against the guys who are doing it now. Like when I was at my best in the sport, the sport hadn't peaked yet. And even well, when I was at my best, I still think I was training at about 70% of the level that the top guys were training. What would it take for you to, what would it take for you to be satisfied? It would take me being in my best shape for an entire season. And that's it. Then then you would just know I'm as good as I thought or it's over. You know, wanna, that is over. I want to jump into Spartan here in a sec. Um, knowing you as a friend and as an athlete, when we talk about the best fitness you've had, I believe it might have been maybe that 2014 or 2015 U.S. National or M- what are they, NBC series, we called it back then, where you were fighting for first and shoulder to shoulder with Cody Moat in some races. You were hitting podiums. Was that 2015? 14 and 15 were my two best, probably. Is that the best fitness you think you've had so far? Yeah. I'm trying to – now the years start to run together. The year after that, I was in better shape. Okay. I was Um, curious. That that was my most successful year, I think, in terms of the guy. Like you said, I I was running with Hobie and Cody in sprints and, and that kind of thing. I was making podiums. But the next year, the sport was bigger. And I was in better shape. I, that was my first year living in Colorado. Like I had been there for a year and I had started to figure out how to train at altitude. And, and I was, I was as fit as I've ever been in my life right there. Okay. Um, we're going to that in a sec. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but you found a Spartan race after mm-hmm. college and no one, no, it's hard. No, it's weird about the Spartan races, Bracken, your first Spartan race. No, what I think the hardest obstacle is, what is the, the over, under and through. Don't you? <laughs> I think that is a hard oh. obstacle. Man, what a tough one. Before I just sound like an idiot, can you can you tell the people why I just said that about the over-under and through? I, I failed the over-under through at my first race. Bracken failed the over-under and through at his first race, folks. Uh, so <laughs> there's no, it doesn't get much worse than that. Okay, continue. First of all, a guy I ran with in college, my best friend in college, he stood up in my wedding. He was at my um he was living with my parents for a few months when he first got his first business job in Milwaukee. Um, he moved in with them for a bit until he found his own place. And okay. Lisa and I um, were either engaged or married at that point. And we would come in and hang out with them on the weekends and uh, just give them crap. Because he he had run 150. He had been a conference champ. He had been All-American. He had, he had a chance to run with the Indian Invaders. I don't know if you remember that. It was a semi-pro like farm team. I heard for- guys trying to transition from college to pro running and he turned it down to go in the business world. And I just thought, man, this is your last chance to pursue pursue something. You you might as well go after it. Got your whole life to work. And he didn't do it, but I gave him a bunch of crap for it. And then he started like, you know, not looking like a runner anymore because he's living a normal life and he was lean in college. And one day Lisa and I engaged all afternoon, like every time he like grabbed some food, we're like, you really, (laughs) I don't know, man, like Cobb, you're, you're starting to pack it on. Like, You've got to just start running again. This is this is a bad look for just you know good naturedly, but giving them crap for for not running. And so we left. He went out for a run, and a drunk driver hit him oh. and knocked him unconscious for like eight minutes. He had like thirty some stitches. He broke his leg and tore his ACL. So that was still we were just uh, we were still dating at that point because that would have been my last year in college. He had graduated a year earlier, okay. and um, and so he had like a thirteen month rehab. <laughs> And throughout that time, like halfway through, he realized he needed a goal for rehab and he found a Spartan race and he signed up for it. And he was like, you got to go, you got to do it too. And I felt ungodly guilty, like so guilty that he had gone out for that run. 
because I'd goaded him into it. So I'm like, yeah, absolutely, I'll do it. But I knew he wouldn't do it. So I didn't sign up for it. Yeah. And like two weeks before, he's like, all right, you ready? And I'm like, oh, man. So I went online and every wave was sold out except for the first and the last wave. And I don't want to wait around until like one. So I signed up for the first wave. Didn't know like that was an elite wave or anything like that. Uh, what year is this? 2011. Oh, back the beginning. Wow. And uh, looked around the start line like, man, it's a bunch of crossfitters and soccer players. I'm going to smash these people. And like 200 meters in, 400 meters in, uh, we get to over under through. And I didn't know what it was. And everyone starts like going down to go under this thing. I'm like, look at these unathletic runners. <laughs> I heard them. Because <laughs> uh, at that time, it was just like a sawhorse that you went under one, over one, and then through. Um, <laughs> you hurdled the under. I hurdled the under. Okay. Like, I'm going to come out like 20 seconds ahead just because they're going to all crawl under this. <laughs> what <are> they? <laughs> the guy's like, no, no, no. Burpees, burpees. What do you, what, what is that? He's like, you, ha- you failed that obstacle. You have to do 30 burpees. I'm like, what is a burpee? Oh, come on. You knew what a freaking burpee was. I had never heard of a burpee in my life. You didn't like look up Spartan Race on anything and find, was there anything out there, I guess, even then? I doubt it. I'd like watched uh, uh, whatever they had had, but like there wasn't anything about that. So he like told me, I'm like, I'm not doing 30. I'll just redo the obstacle. He's like, you can't do that. I'm like, I'll redo it in 15, 10, 10, 15 burpees and redo. He's like, fine. So now you're negotiating. (laughs) I partnered down to 15 burpees, which destroyed me, my arms and redid the obstacle. And now I'm in last place. (laughs) And so I just like, desperately just like hammering through these like woods and ravines and like off-road stuff I'd never done before. And it was awesome. (laughs) And it it hooked me because I got smashed by this little guy. And I thought like, I got to come back and I've got to win one of these things. Where was this race? In Illinois in Marseilles. Is that like the Chicago race or something? It was, but it was, uh, it was an incredible venue. Okay. And who is this little guy that beat you? I'll be of course it was. Of course yeah. it was. So you worked. Great. So you worked your way all the way back up into what second. place? Yeah. Oh, you came all the way back to second. All right. You got um, a taste. And and I was. I have never been that destroyed up until that point in my life in a race. It was like my body was unbelievably tired. And I got an email after saying I qualified for their inaugural World Championships in Texas in December. So this was September. No, this would have been like October or November. I had like eight weeks until until the race, and I'm like. $10,000 for an eight mile race in Texas. The, the guy who's the best, I took one place behind him. Like I'm going to train for eight weeks and I'm going to smash this guy and get $10,000. Yeah. So I did. I just did nothing but compromised running. It was my first like introduction to that. I just did nothing but interval work or tempo work with constant compromised running in there. And I got out to Texas and I got smashed again. <laughs> I thought you took third place out there. No, I DNF'd. Oh, I was uh, Hobie and Josiah Middog. Uh, Josiah was a world champion Xterra triathlete at the time. Spartan brought him into race Hobie, and those two just went at it, and they dropped me. And me and Jung Young Pack went back and forth for eight miles and uh, for third place. And I got to the Tyrolean Traverse, which was literally 50 meters from the finish line. You got done with that. Mm-hmm. You did the At the time, it was the Traverse Wall, not the Z Wall, and you crossed the finish line. And at the time in Spartan, certain obstacles had – were mandatory completion. You had three attempts or you were disqualified from the race. And I failed the Tyrolean Traverse three straight times. Why? Uh, I, I had no grip strength. It was like 40 some degrees and raining. 
and I'd been mm-hmm. out there for over an hour. I'd never done anything like this. And I was so spent. I'd worked so hard that day. And I, the first time I was halfway across and Jung Young just finished it. And I, in my mind, like my race brain told me, okay, you cannot get across this and across the Z wall first, but the Z wall, we had run on Sunday that year, the last wave of the day. Mm-hmm. to make everything really challenging and it's because they thought people would stick around and the, Z, the traverse wall was covered in mud and I thought he's going to fall off that if I can save my grip now get off this do my burpees here faster than he does his burpees on traverse wall I can get across traverse wall and maybe take third because there's no money right. for fourth right so I dropped in the water I like quick waded across and the guy's like all right you have two more attempts I'm like oh man you thought it was burpee out So I went back and now I didn't have the grip strength. I got like three quarters of the way across and my grip failed. I fell in. And then the third time I tried going over the top and I fell. And, uh, and I, that was it. Like the whole crowd, everyone stuck around to watch the race. It's all cheering for me. (laughs) And then I got the pity applause and Lisa just like walked up to the car and we drove back to the hotel. Did Jung Young Pack end up getting across the traverse wall on his first attempt? Yeah. So it didn't matter. I mean, you went to podium. Nope. At least but, there's comfort in that. But again, it was like, that was the culmination of my year. I thought I was going to win a bunch of money and I had as bad of a failure as you could have. So like, I couldn't stop the sport. I had to come back and get redemption on that. Bracken, who is coaching you? Me. Who came up with your workouts? <laughs> Me. Where did you come up with these workouts? How does this where you're, is this where you're, cause you're a fantastic coach Bracken and, and is this where it began for you? programming your own training at this point? I got done with Illinois and I just thought about all the terrible feelings I felt during the race and thought about ways I could simulate that in a, in a training run. And then I got done with, with Texas and I was like really, really distraught over how bad I had done. And I'd wasted my own money. Like there was no pro team. I just flown down there with Lisa, like two air flight, two air tickets, hotel, rental car. And, and I got nothing out of it. So I just, I wrote down like everything that happened, went over every obstacle, wrote it all down, and then started designing workouts that would get me better at those specific things. And that's when it started. Like Bigfoot, that workout, uh, um, KDE, um, I got all those, that started that summer. Pretty simple, right? Like take, I mean, really, when you just dumb it down, like take what the race requires of you and then find ways to train it effectively. Like it makes sense. Yeah. And you, but you were innovative in that sense at the time because not many people were doing this. Maybe Hobie Call, but you yeah. didn't even know what he was doing at this Hobie time. Hobie and Jung Young definitely were. I'm yeah. sure a bunch of guys. Alec Blennis was around, Elliot McGuire. I'm sure they were all doing mm-hmm. it, but like social media wasn't what it is. And we didn't know each other really. And yeah, we were just learning on the fly. So you're going on nine years of uh, OCR-specific compromised work. Uh, almost almost a decade, man. It's crazy, isn't it? You're getting old. Yeah. Yeah, old balls. Um, so let's uh, so let's jump. So so with the Spartan thing, obviously that's when you got your hook, and that's where the the modern day Bracken Cracker that you all know that was uh, where it spawned is that yeah. season. So that that beat down there spurred me on. So starting that next March, I went from March through September on one big build towards the Killington World Championships. I researched the course, the elevation, the obstacles. I watched everything I could watch. I I scripted out like a 26-week training plan, and I followed it to the T. I thought, based on this, based on what I think I can do, I think I can finish this course if I nail everything in three hours. So I scripted everything around having the best possible ability to, quote-unquote, redline for three hours. So I did 
beast workouts. I did everything I could do to simulate this. I uh, scripted out my the minimum water and calories I could carry and take in for three hours worth of work. I tested it out all summer, all fall. And I went out there um, and nailed the race um, and took third. Cody showed yeah. up. We didn't know who Cody was. Cody won, beat mm-hmm. Hobie. Hobie took second. I finished like nine minutes behind them. Um, and it took 259. So like, <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it. I nailed it. Who, and, are, who else was uh, in the fight with you that race? Uh, Anybody that we would know? There's a guy named Ben Nephew. He was a professional mountain runner for Innovate. Uh, there's a guy named Sebastian Monet. He was Canada's best racer at the time. Marco Bedard, he was Canada's ever, other best racer. He had won the year before. Um, Jung Young was there. Uh, Lee Earl Ruglin was yeah, there. Yeah. Alex He's Lennon. Uh, Megida. Um, okay. There were a bunch of, there's a guy named, I think Mark Husted was at that. He was a 147, 800 guy and like a 359 miler. Um, there, there were some people, but it, it didn't have the depth. But um, And then that was the day I continued on and did the ultra as well to get an extra grand. You know, I would have rather... I would have rather made my first uh, world podium at Killington. That speaks more volumes in Texas. Yeah, that that was that was to this day is one of the best race experiences I've ever had. I, a twenty six week prep for it, everything happened the way I expected it to happen, or the way I thought it could happen. Um, I told myself if one or two people break, I go with them. If more than that break, I go with the pack no matter what mm-hmm. happens. And we had a pack of six all running for third place, and we just whittled it down to two by mile 12 and then i broke away up the last climb and on the last descent and like coming down i like tears in my eyes like i had put together three hours of work and i'd done it and there was uh two spear throws in that race one halfway through and one at the finish line and when i ran up to that last one i was just like there is no doubt about this i'm gonna hit this and get my money and it was it was, it was just perfect you crushed those losers <laughs> I, I executed my training is what I did. And it was, it was, it was one of the most satisfying races I've ever had. Would that be the first true pinnacle you hit in OCR? When you hit that cross that finish line, you were like, hell yes. Like yep. I finally did something. Yep. And it was the first time I'd ever run a mountain in my life. I it was coming down the first descent. I was in third. I, I was in good climbing shape. I'd spent all summer running up ski hills yep. and, but I'd always used the down as recovery. And I mm-hmm. was going down thinking like, this is as fast as you could safely run down this thing. Like I'm fine. I look behind me. There's no one in sight. And like a minute later, a herd blew past me. I'm like, Oh no. (laughs) And so like, I learned how to run downhill that day. It was just a lot of awesome things happen. You should tell people real quick, just a quick blip on what happened when you crossed the finish line that day. (laughs) Uh, I crossed the finish line and I was doing my post-race interview and uh, I had a beer, had a banana in my hand. And then the guy's like, you looked really good crossing the line. You look like you could have continued on. Now that day, the Beast and Ultra Beast Championship started at the same time. So Cody continued on and you won both. And you could double dip prize. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe I could have, but I didn't train for it and I didn't sign up for it. I didn't pay for it. So like, and they had been very clear, like you have to choose before the start, which ones you're doing. And the guy's like, you can do it. I'm like, nah, I didn't sign up. He's like, no, I'm the race director. You can do it. It was uh, Michael Morris. Mike Morris. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, uh, like I'm kind of caught in my own confidence here. All right, I'll do it. So I, uh, but I needed an armband. They didn't have, I didn't have an Ultra Beast armband. And Alec Blennis had been part of a group that got lost on the Ultra Beast. So he's like, I'll give you my armband, man. So I took that and I took off up the hill. Like, I'm going to go get two grand more. And I made it 400 meters up that hill and the wheels fell off. Like, basically, <laughs> as I got out of sight from the crowd, the wheels just fell off because I had taken in the minimal water and calories mm-hmm. I could 
three hours of racing and I hadn't refilled anything. Alec had offered me his pack. I'm like, ah, it'll probably chafe. I don't want it. I'm good. And I realized first lap took me three hours. I'm minimum four hours on this one and I don't have water or calories. And it was the longest suffer fest of my life. You made it. You finished. I did. What did you finish in, in that ultra? Uh, I took third. So you podiumed in the ultra behind Cody? Second behind Cody. And I knew I wouldn't catch him, but I just told myself as soon as whoever third place catches me and bumps me to third, I'll just drop out. And eventually Jung Young Pack caught me and moved past and he was moving well. Um, and I was like, wow, oh, but I'm still, I'll still get a thousand if I finish. As soon as, as soon as someone bumps me out of third, I'll quit. Then I'll quit. And that just like kept me going. Like I'll just, I'm, I'm not finishing this race. I'll just go until I get caught. And finally, I got to like mile nine. I'm like, F this. <laughs> That's my money. I've been out here for like six hours. I am I am taking third place. And yeah, I finally finished up, took third, and Spartan stiffed me on that prize money. They never paid you? Nope. Oh, nope. man. I hate to hear that. Yeah, you-, yep, you can double dip. That's absolutely it. It was supposed to be 2000 for one race, 2000 for the other. And they, they cut me a check for 2000 total and never paid me. I was out man. there for like seven hours and 40 minutes. The last yeah, second lap took me 440. With no fuel, no water. Uh, halfway through, I was going delirious. My vision was going. I could. I was hearing like I was underwater. Uh, and uh, you couldn't receive help, but another racer gave me a power bar. And then I, I ate it in like two gulps. And like my vision cleared. And I asked him for another one. And he gave it to me. <laughs> and, uh, and my life changed. Like every bite, I felt like a video game, like my energy recharging. It was bizarre. I was so low and depleted that like... I took anything. I was drinking out of the lake. I found a I found a water bottle in the barbed wire crawl. They had nothing but purple foam left in it. And I took it and I filled it up out of the hose that they were spraying on us in the barbed wire. I shook it up and drank it. Like I was I was licking people's uh, goo wrappers they had left on course. <laughs> I was sur- I was surviving. What an epic day though, huh? You do it all over again. Um all right. And something I, I meant to ask you and and I didn't uh yet is you were working at this time right you weren't a yeah. professional athlete right what were you doing through all this because you were training full-time obviously but you were also working full-time right yeah i was a high school special ed teacher and a coach yeah you did that for a few years right yeah four or what, five years not to completely sidetrack where we're headed with this but why uh why why teaching why special ed what was uh I don't know. What was your passion there? How'd that play out? My mom and dad were both teachers. Kind of grew up in that that environment. I really liked that my dad was able to spend all summer with us um, growing up. He was always outside with us. Like, you'd be working on projects, but anytime, like, mm-hmm. hey, will you play catch with us? Will you shoot around with us? Will you go fishing with mm-hmm. us? Like, he always could. And I really liked that. And I wanted to, I knew I was going to be a dad uh, eventually. And I knew that I wanted to be an active dad. And so that, that struck a chord with me. And then growing up across the street from me, um, a boy two years older than me had uh, Down syndrome. His name was Tyler, and we just grew up together. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we were young, we were like the same. And then as I grew, he he remained, and I grew past him. And we went from like playmates to like buddies to like kind of like mentor caretaker role. Like I mm-hmm. in the summer, I'd help him uh, when he had to start going to high school. I worked with him on how to get to the bus. Like we did couple times a week we'd work on like flashcards and reading and things like that and just worked with him growing up um and it was just like part of my life i didn't know like what really was happening but by the time i got to high school i realized like i'm probably going to be a teacher and i think i want to be a special ed teacher 
Mm. And then in high school, we had this program that was called Irving Swim. Uh, there's this Irving Elementary in middle school um, where uh, it was a special ed school or they had a big special ed program. And a couple high schoolers would have this adapted phi ed class where we'd they'd bust the kids over and we'd uh, we did a swim class with them where we'd help them like change, help them swim. Yeah. Uh, and, and we it was like looking back, I don't know how legal it was. Like we were changing their diapers and like showering them. And we were talking about it the other week. Like it was kind of weird. Like I think that the teachers, the one teacher there totally just took advantage of us. And the stuff that he was supposed to be doing, he pawned off on us. Mm. So it's kind of sketchy, but like it, it cemented the fact that I wanted to be a special ed teacher. That's fantastic. How long did you teach for before you left? Four or five years. Okay. And you taught uh, special ed at what age level? Uh, high school, high school special ed. What yeah. kind of? I, I'm just. This is a personal curiosity. What kind of skills are you are you teaching high school level special ed kids? Uh, well, I mean, there's there's basically three types of special education. There's emotional behavior disorders. There's learning disability, and then there's cognitive disability. Okay. Um, and so, with learning disabilities, you're basically just teaching coping skills so that they can live their life in the normal world. So like your boss is going to expect you to do this. You have to be able to do this. Like they're, they're normal cognitively. They just have a learning disability. And so you're just providing accommodations and things like that. Um, With emotional behavior, you're teaching emotional coping skills and just ensuring that you don't blow up and ruin your own chances in society. Like you can't be your Mm -hmm. own worst enemy. And then with cognitive disabilities, that's anything from autism to uh, down syndrome, cerebral palsy, things like that. Um, And it's, it's basically the life skills protocol. So like whatever your capability is now we're trying to raise all your skills up to that capability and then push it, push it a step farther. So um, that I, I had a cognitive disability special specialty with a cross categorical license. So it worked with all, but that was my specialty. Okay. Was that satisfying work? Yeah, I really liked it. And especially the first school I taught at, I had like carte blanche. I could do whatever I wanted. And so we did really, really different things. Like our, um, I wanted to build some, um, some Spartan walls and training stuff. So like I, I put them in my truck. <laughs> like we, we, I took four of our students for, for our math class um, and science and life skills class. And we got into my SUV and we drove to the lumber store and I had them go measure out all the wood and price different things out by the square foot. And then we bought it and then we came back and went to the high school's wood shop. And now they had to make the measurements and taught them how to use a bandsaw and a circular saw and um, safety glasses and how to use a guard on a table saw. And we cut it all and then taught them how to use a, a screw gun and, and, and a nailer. And, and when we did that stuff and then we assembled it and then we did Fayette on it. You know, That's so like exactly. I was able to do real like we we took over the sh- the grocery shopping for the for the foods in the the baking classes. So a couple times a week, I'd I'd um, take the the school suburban, load my kids up, and we go to the grocery store, and they'd have to they'd each have a list, they'd have to shop. So I was able to do outside the box stuff like that, and that was a ton of fun. Yeah, if that's if that's not real world applicable, I don't know what is, man. Yeah. And now, and we were in a cool small community where the school uh, superintendent was an ex special educator, and the, it was a small community, so the parents were on board, and they're basically like, "We're going to throw away a lot of the academic criteria, and we just want them prepared for life." So it wasn't like I was doing paperwork and grading; we were doing projects and hands on in the community stuff. That's awesome. So you did that for you said four years. I did that for three years, and I transferred to. Um, to Milwaukee um, and taught at a different school for one year and then left. Okay. And then then you left that to become a pro athlete and coach. Kind of. Yeah. That next school I had, 
I had started to burn out. Um, it was an unhealthy district um, at the time. Poor leadership, um, weird hierarchy, and I was I was starting to run into a little bit of uh, uh, issues with the um, with the powers that be, mm-hmm. and I was not able to do the things I felt were necessary for the students that needed it. And instead of towing the line, I did the things I felt were necessary. Started to have some meetings I shouldn't be in <laughs> and that kind of stuff. And, and I was bringing work home with me. I was starting to be a, a worse husband and a worse parent. It was just, it was an unhealthy job position for me at the time. And it made it real easy for Lisa to say, hey, I think she should do OCR full time. Hey, you get your wife's permission there. You got to go with that. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like OCR was a hobby. It was a passion. And so I left all career decisions to her. She's the one who said, mm-hmm. I think you should go full time. And she's the one who said, I think it's time we move out to Colorado and start training in the mountains in that altitude. So wow. I wasn't going to make those decisions, but when she said yes, like I was going to run with it. You're as strong as the woman standing next to you, as they say. What uh, what year was that? Oh, man, that would have been probably 2014. So 2014, it was uh, you went from Bracken, multi-dimensional, still career-oriented, and trying to make the Spartan thing work to I am going all in. Yeah. 2014, this is my life. Year before in 2013, I'd made like twenty or $30,000 in prize money and started having some sponsors contact me. And I thought like moving out to Colorado, moving to altitude, training in the mountains, taking this seriously, like I can double that. Like uh-huh. that's more than I make. It's like I was only making like 40,000 as a teacher. Like I, I can replace that. No problem. So it was, a, I thought this is a stress-free move. Let's do this. Uh-huh. What year was the first year you were on the pro team? Uh, 2012, 2013, 2013. Okay. I had actually decided to stop Spartan racing after that Killington world championship. It was cool. I loved it. I had nailed a prep. Like it had come full circle. I'd put all this work. I took third at world championship and I got $2,000 for 26 weeks of work. And mm. I spent my own money to get there. And I thought like, it's cool, but it's not like, it's not paying the bills. It's not that cool. <laughs> so yeah, like, yeah, I'll yeah. Find something else. So I, I bought a bike, uh, got a membership to a Y and started training for a tra- uh, Ironman. Okay. Still training. Did you ever do one? No, I got seven weeks into that or nine weeks and Robert Colbo called me. He's like, Hey, it's Robert. You remember me? I'm like, Hey, Robert, how's it going? He's like, we're doing this, this, we're putting together this pro team. Like, what does that mean? He's like, well, like we'll, we'll like fly you play. I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, uh, quit cycling and swimming and I got back to training for OCR. So let's fast forward then. Um, cause I want to get to a couple things here. Um, when did you decide to start coaching and how did that happen? Well, I've been coaching at the high school. When I was in college, I went back, I was coaching, um, cross country at my high school. So I'd, I'd started coaching already in college. I, I wrote my own training my senior year cause I was student oh. teaching and I, um, couldn't practice with the team. And I, we had a guy took over the head program who had been a hurdler and I didn't trust that he knew how to, he decided he was going to, our previous head coach had been the middle distance coach. And so he decided he'd fill both roles and I didn't trust his training. So since I wasn't training with the team anyways, I just did my own stuff and I loved it. <laughs> I just yeah, like yeah, yeah. out on it. And I knew, I always knew I'd coach. I liked teaching. I liked coaching. I liked doing that. And I realized I love writing workouts. So it started then. I was coaching high school, coaching myself, and then coaching myself in OCR, and then just my buddies around me who wanted training plans. And finally, this guy like messaged me. He's like, hey, I'd love to, for you to write me a training plan. I was like, eh, yeah, sure, I could do it. He's like, I'll give you like $500 for a, a six-month training plan. Wait, like people pay for this stuff? 
And that was it. <laughs> I just was like, okay, I love doing this and I'm not making what I thought I'd be making racing. So let's, let's see if we can't start transitioning to making this a job. Uh huh. When was that? That was probably right around that time, 2014. Okay. And then it be uh, slowly but surely has blossomed into uh, what it has today, we'll say. Yeah, it was word of mouth for a long time because I was just like writing stuff and emailing it out and using like Microsoft Word and building like a table in there. And like it, uh-huh. it was taking a long time to write stuff. So I just, someone's like, hey, I know Mike and he said, you should try this. I'd be like, all right, we can try it for a little bit. And then eventually, uh, yeah, partnered with some people, started a coaching company, worked well for a while. Uh, burned up in flames towards the end and then started uh-huh. doing my own thing individually. That's how I found out about you word of mouth. I uh, ran my, my second Spartan race was the Minnesota Spartan race in 2016. Um, I took fifth there, did a set of burpees, but three of the guys in front of me were coaching with you. Yeah. I, remember and I was that. like, I was like that, that, that race murdered me. I never run up a hill in Mike my life. Ian and Garrett? I, I did beat Ian. I, I, I think I actually beat Ian in that race cause he started cramping, but okay. it was Botris was in that race. Who else? Somebody else, any O'Leary or Ruglin, but I know Mike Ferguson and Garrett Toll. Anyways, and so that's how I found out about you. And they had the they had in black magic marker. They had Apex Training or something written oh, on there. Right. It was yeah. just in black. It was so podunk. Yeah. It was just written on their chest in magic marker. And I was like, eh, well, two guys that beat me had that shit written on them. I should probably ask what that is. That's funny. Um, yeah, that's where it started. Um, so let's uh, let's kind of. I want to look at your. Your career, man. Um, and for those of you, I know a lot of listeners probably, you know, you guys have picked this up after we're going to call Bracken's heyday. And I'm going to call something right now. And I'm going to say that Bracken is going to have a second round of uh, what we'll call a heyday coming up. I think you, your best is yet to come. We talk a lot, man. And I know as soon as we get healthy and consistent, like I think you're going to be uh, beyond the Bracken of old beyond the 2015-14 bracket. That's honestly, if I had to bet my bank account, I would bet on that versus the opposite. So you have, I have... Nice of you to say. Well, the reason I'm saying that is I think a lot of listeners haven't seen you at your best because they've entered the sport in the last two years and you've dealt with injury and, you know, you were on constant podium threat in all the national series races. You were winning every stadium race you would run and blah, blah, blah. You know, all those stupid accolades, you know, all those wins and stuff. Yeah. Um, Bracken's the man, guys, and he's fast as shit. And I think it's going to come around full circle. But I want to um, I want to just dive into um, some of your highlights as an athlete in the Spartan world, um, because uh, most of our listeners are in the Spartan scene. So if you had to highlight some of your most your proudest moments in the sport in your career, now we're talking what an eight or nine year career. Um, what would be one or two that really stand out to you? Um, that really make you proud? Uh, Killington's still probably my most proud moment. Um, in terms of pure performance, that next year, 2013, was kind of cool. They had uh, they put a super sprint and beast championship on. And mm-hmm. they did the super, then the sprint, and then it culminated at the Killington World Championship. And I won the super, beat, awesome. Hunt, beat Hunter head-to-head, no burpees. I just ran away from him and then uh, beat him again, took second to Hobie in the sprint. And, uh, like that stretch of racing, I was, I was locked in mentally and physically. Um, mm-hmm. and then 2014, I had a stretch as well, but I don't know. Like I, I look back, I don't have a ton of races that I like stand out as I'm super proud of. Cause it's always like the what ifs I feel races I won, I felt like had watered down competition or it wasn't what it is now. And the races I didn't 
like took second or third or fourth, I always felt like, man, I wonder if I could have pulled that off. Yeah, but you can't compare then to now because you didn't, I mean, watered down competition compared to now, sure. And in five years, we're going to look back on 2020 and say, oh, the competition's even better in 2025 than it was in 2020. That's going to be a given in our sport, I think. That's true. But at the same time, looking back and saying like my greatest success came against the guys who are now beating, I mean, against guys who weren't in the sport and now the guys who are in the recent years have handled me. So now it's it's always hard to look back and say like, man, I'm so proud of that because I was proud in the moment, but it's hard not to look back and wonder like, am I better now than I was then? And I was just facing inferior people or was I a monster then? And I don't have that monster fitness now. It's always that second guessing game of when your mm-hmm. recent races aren't your best, what are you really most proud of? What is what is the last race that you've completed that you are True, that proud of that you can say that was my last pinnacle in, in all honesty the, the the last race i'm i'm super proud of the result was the city field stadium race um that was, that was last year early last it was, year it was the it? year before um okay. i won the series that year everyone showed up to that and we kind of talked like whoever wins this like might just be the best short course guy and i won that one who is there uh hunter kempson isaiah kent um I'm blanking on who else, but it was, you beat it was, them pretty handily. Some of those guys, you crushed most them. of them. Kempson and I came down to the wire. We were on box jumps. He got there one rep before me. I left one rep ahead of him. I bet you ran a 60 second last quarter there. I was flying. It was amazing watching you run that infield there. So it was, <laughs> awesome. it was but, so awesome. But even that, I wasn't in in great fitness for. I was really really tough mentally at the time. I had like I had done a bunch of kill myself workouts leading up to it because I knew I didn't have the fitness. So I got, I got gritty tough, but the last time I am like proud of my fitness and my race was, was the Montana sprint in like 2016, I think. Okay. That was, that was when I was in my best shape. And ever since then, everything has kind of always compared to that training block. And I haven't had anything remotely similar to that. Is that a race where you were chasing down Cody Moat and you were in the top three there for a while? That was the next year. Uh, this okay. was Killian Atkins. Um, Killian and Atkins were leading out. Kent, Trammell, Glenn, Novakovich. Um, Wasn't uh, – what's his fa- – um, what the heck is his name? Yatskow there? I don't know if he was there for this one or not. Okay. But I went into that one and I had a chat with Lisa the week of. I said, you know what? I know this is a stacked field and like, I know there's some studs here, but I just can't see three people all beating me on the same day. Like Mm -hmm. two people could put a race together and are better than me. Sure. But I can't see missing a podium. That's just, I'm in too good a fitness. I'm too dialed in mentally. I just don't think three people can all do it at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I took second there. Um, And I just knew like, I'm going to make this, like I I might win this race. And I, and I, I came close to winning it. uh, Atkins, pulled away from me on on the bucket carry right at the end. But like, I, I just knew, I don't care who in the world shows up. Like I'm, I'll fight you all. And that's Uh the last time I've ever felt like that. What do you think it would take? And, and guys, um, again, for those who don't know Bracken, I would like to rattle off a couple of stats. I uh, contacted Jack Bauer about you, mostly, honestly, to just get shit to make fun of you for, if I'm being honest. <laughs> I, said, I said, how can I embarrass Bracken? I appreciate uh, that. <laughs> yeah, that's, what, that's what friends do. That's love right there. Um, and by the way, uh, Bauer and Yancey, uh, Yancey Culp, I said I'd shout this out. They have their uh, GOAT challenge going on, the greatest of all time. It's like a uh, Bracken-style yeah. uh 
tournament. Go look at their pages and check it out. Bracken is one of the people in this uh, GOAT challenge. But uh, so, um, you know, all time, folks, Bracken has the fifth most podiums of all time. All time. And that's not counting a lot of podiums in recent years due to injury and not racing as much. So fifth all time still in podiums. And you're, that's amongst all the greats. The Killians, the Isaiahs, you know, Kent who raced a ton, uh, Kempsons who's raced a ton anyways. You're fifth all time. Did you know that? I did not. Um, do you know that you have podiumed Bracken in 20 different states? <laughs> do you know that? No. Uh, one person has done better than you, and that's Kent. He has uh, in 21 different states. He is, ah. he is podium. Um, you and Killian are the only two in our sport to have podiumed in all race types uh, and major series. If uh, major series races, I don't know if you knew that either. Just you and Killian. What, what does that include? Um, I think it's everything from stadium sprint, super beast, ultra. Um, I believe. I didn't get asked too many questions. Just you and Killian, yeah. You're also one of two people, you and Angel Quintero, who have podiumed in. Uh, I think VJ this year has now too, but in Mexico and the U.S. <laughs> um, so this dude is legit. I think you have 50, who I think you're 55 all-time podiums, which is nuts. 55 podiums? How many times do you think you've raced, you know? Probably 70, 80 races. 70 yeah. races maybe. I've probably missed 15 in my life. And you're running big series races. Bracken, of course, you cherry-picked for a while and ran some small races in between the big ones, but you didn't shy away from being competition. So it's not like you were podium in, in all little races. Living in the Midwest is great. <laughs> you go yeah, all yeah. Like, Doing your local races is cherry-picking because no one travels uh, to the Midwest. Yeah, it's kind of true. We don't have many races here, though, either. We used to. We used to have more. Yeah. Um, and you know what? I mean, you're how old? 31? 32. 32. You're not even, I mean, you're just hitting your prime, dude. Yeah. You got time. If you want to stay with this, there's no doubt in my mind that you're going to be another 50 on the list. Um, and you're two and four against me, which, you know, really says how. I'm two and four or I'm four and two? You're, you're four and two against oh, me, which really speaks to your, your uh, racing prowess. A lot of those came in my early years, I must say. That's true. So I, I'd like to go head to head with you a few more times. That would be fun. Um, I did hear, though, that you once lost to a man who took a shit in the middle of a race. I did hear that. It wasn't a race. It was like a CrossFit um, competition. Uh-huh. So you lost to a guy who had time to take a shit, and he still came back and beat you. True. Um, which I guess uh, you are you are 10 and 5 all time against Lindsay Webster. She's beaten you five out of 15 races. You have a 79. You have a 70, as far as time goes, you have a 79% win percentage against Lindsay Webster. Uh, but I should have just dropped out of those races where I dragged <laughs> it in. But I want to help make you feel better. I have a 78% <laughs> win, win ratio against Lindsay Webster. Now, I will say most of those came in my early years. See, this is I'm the thing. Like when you say, what are you most proud of? Like, am I a poor <laughs> racer if I'm, you are, if I'm Lindsay, losing to a woman? <laughs> Oh, and I wanted to say you're also 0-16 against Cole. Just I thought I should let you know. Yeah, I've never beat Cole. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I also wanted to let you know that I've beaten Chris Brown four times, and you've beaten him zero. So just wanted to let you know that, too, for what it's worth. Am I 0-1 against him? I, th- I think so at the altar at, <laughs> at, uh, at Spartan Worlds, yeah. Uh, um, just wanted to sneak those in there. But uh yeah, it's, uh, I got more, but they, they seem a little more irrelevant now. Thanks, Jack, for providing those stats yeah, for thanks, us. Thanks, Jack. Um, Jackass. Uh, so, Bracken, what's uh, what's what's next for you, man? What do you? I, I'm not I'm not just saying this if I didn't believe the fact that like if you 
get fit and stay healthy, you're going to crush. And I believe that there's enough time this year to do it. What are your goals for this season? What are you hoping to accomplish personally? I know you have to get healthy and all that factors in. But You asked me earlier, what was the lowest point in my athletic career? And I said yep. that point where I was out of work in college, drinking, gaining weight. Mm-hmm. And I said it was tied for this. And that's that's not hyperbole. This has been the hardest mental stretch of my entire athletic life. Um, okay. I've been so healthy my entire life. And now I've had a string of just stupid little issues that just keep adding up. And it, it is an excuse. And I don't like doing this. But I, I think it's important to talk about because I'm not the only person out there who struggles with consistency in training. I'm one of them too. And, and, and I know a lot of our listeners do because they message us about it. But I I just haven't had consistent training. By consistent, I mean like more than more than five days in a week for more than like a month straight. So Can you just really quick, I want to interrupt because I want you to just list off. Um, we're not going into excuse corner. That's not the point of this. But I think it's helpful for people to understand like, Trials and tribulations are freaking normal and stuff pops up. What are all the things you've dealt with in the last year or two? I'm a good lesson to learn how to not, how, how, how you shouldn't address things once you get hurt. So that Montana race I talked about where I felt bulletproof, I kicked a rock in the first mile and broke my big toe and knew it immediately. And I tried to rush back for the next series race. And I took two weeks off of running. And then I came back mm-hmm. to rate, to running like every third day. And I just kept rehearsing it. And I ran that next race and reheard it. And so I struggled with a broken toe for nine weeks. Yep. And then I developed Achilles issues from compensating the toe. And then I developed SI issues from compensating the Achilles and then the knee. And then I rolled an ankle um, badly right before the morning or the evening before a race. I rolled it badly, couldn't race, tried to rush it back, reheard it in the next race. Then I pulled a hamstring for the first time in my life playing a basketball tournament. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I dealt with that for a while. And then I've had a torn meniscus for the past year and a half that I finally just got surgery on. Yeah. And so it's just been like one thing after another. And yeah, that's excuse city right now, but like that's real life. And I've tried to train through everything and I can, I can with a hundred percent positivity is positivity with a hundred percent truth. Tell you that had I just gone back to the broken toe, and taken six weeks off, I wouldn't have dealt with anything up until the meniscus. All of it was resulting of one toe. And if I could just impart one thing, it would be like, take the hit now. Because like Daniel Cormier, he's a great announcer and a great fighter in the UFC. He always he and Dominic Cruz always say, you can pay now or you can pay later, but you're going to pay. And they talk about it with getting up off the ground when you get taken down. Like you can take a shot or two and spend the energy to get up right now, or you can get beaten down for the entire round and then the next round and the next round because you didn't spend it early. You get, you can pay now or you can pay later, but either way the bill comes due. Yep. And if I could tell the listeners anything, it would be pay now. Pay now. Pay now rather than pay interest for years and years and years. And that's what I'm dealing with. And this surgery has been a really hard thing mentally for me. I was supposed to be back running in three to four weeks and I couldn't run more than two or three days in a week through week seven. And my other knee in this, and Kirk, we haven't talked about this, but I'm going to need surgery on my right knee now. Wow, man, why? Stabilized my left. I've realized I have a tear in my right meniscus, but it wasn't as bad as the left and it was overshadowed by it. And right now it's telling me all the same things that my left knee told me in fall. 
So mm. I've now like been struggling with when do I do it? And it just hit me like pay now, get it done right now because every week I delay cuts into the next season. So what, what is my goal for this year? My yeah. goal is to get this second surgery done and oh. go through all of the rehab again and keep this insane level of frustration burning. All mm-hmm. this indoor work I'm doing is treadmill and the spin bike and the Stairmaster. All I do is watch old races. And mm-hmm. this is burning me up inside the fact that I can't do the things that I want to do right now. And it kills me to see people that I have beaten my entire career having success. I'm happy for them because I'm friends with all of them now, most of mm-hmm. them. But it kills me that I can't go out and do what I believe like is my rightful place in the sport to do. Mm-hmm. So 2020 is basically just a wash at this point. I don't okay. care if I don't get back because I'm going to get back when I'm healthy and I just want to get to the point where I can train every single day. And once that happens, then I hit my training metrics and that I want, and then I come back and find out where I stand in the sport. Yeah, there's. Uh, I say the biggest, the biggest talent an athlete can have is the talent of staying injury free. Mm-hmm. Some people, you know, fortunately are freaks who never get injured. In quotes, which I don't understand. Those people uh, have a talent that most of us don't possess, and so I agree with you there. And based on what you had said. And I say this all the time, like two or three days or two or three weeks off now, if you're, if you're babying something is better than two or three months or years of compromised training later. And I think a lot of people learn that lesson hard. And so I think it's very relatable that that's something you've dealt with because you had a, I mean, you never really dealt with chronic injury until three years ago. And it was a blessing and a curse. I was so healthy, but I didn't know how to deal with setbacks. I am. I feel for you, man. And I, I couldn't agree more that it's, it is better to take your lump sooner than later always and just address it right away instead of half-ass approach your training and try to make everything work with a Band-Aid slapped over it. Things don't pan out long-term that way. You can't heal a deep wound by sticking a Band-Aid on it. No. That thing's got to be stitched up and taken care of and sewed up and then given time to heal. And that's what you need to do. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and if I've learned anything about myself in all this retrospective looks I've been taking, like going back through my training logs, going back, watching all these old races, rewatching the races from last year. Mm-hmm. I am not the same athlete mentally that I was. I well, Why would you be? Why would you be right now? Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's true. But like I, at one point, I don't give myself compliments very often, but f- for a couple year stretch, I was a killer mentally. I showed up just craving the, the, the chance to break people. Because I knew no matter what happens, I'm not going to be the one that breaks. You might beat me, but it'll be because you're better. That is the only way you will beat me is if you are better than me, in better shape, and you execute that day. I knew that's the only way that like, and and people beat me all the time, but I never, I felt like I never lost to anyone that I shouldn't lose to or that I shouldn't get beat by. I felt like I always was the one that was going to outperform my fitness. Mm -hmm that I was going to be the toughest guy who I raced against. And that's not a knock on anyone else. I just knew that. I was so supremely confident. And then listening to Atkins talk, listening to Woods talk, listening to Hunter, I realized, man, I'm a shell of that mentally. And this this couple-year process has taken a toll on me. But we always mm-hmm. talk the only way to get that back is through quality workouts. 
Yeah. Those are the things that I've been missing in consistency. And those are the things that I just crave getting back to where I can train every day, nail some quality workouts and have some like deep pain cave once a week type stuff where I can rebuild that racing edge that took so long to craft in so, so short amount of time to crumble. Do you feel like if your career ended today that you would look at it as unsuccessful? Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm too competitive not to. I think it's I think it's been successful in the fact that it has showed me that athletics is not my end game. I have a passion for coaching, I have a passion for speaking, I have a passion for for being involved in other people's success. So I could leave right now and just be a coach the rest of my life and be satisfied with who I am as a person. Yep. But I would have no hesitancy to say, yeah, I'd be disappointed in my athletic career. That doesn't so you- no longer defines who I am as a person. And that's been a huge step for me. I can be disappointed in my athletics without being disappointed in me. And I never could do that before, but I'm not okay with that yet. I still need to have one last go around and know. Mm -hmm. Um, You still feel like you have a lot to prove to yourself and maybe others. Yeah. I, it sounds kind of bad, but yeah, I, I just, why is that bad? Because I I shouldn't have anything to prove. Sure. You should. That's like, do you always want that chip on your shoulder? I think that's okay. I just, I've said this before, but I just want to know. I just want to know where I stand in this current sport. If I come back and I put together a year of training and I have my mentality back and I go out there and I take seventh in a national race one, okay. I do the next one and I take eighth and then fifth and then, okay, I know I'm a top 10 guy that's, I'm just, the sport has progressed and that's a great thing for everyone. And I'm not a podium guy anymore at the biggest races, but I don't yet believe that deep down. I don't. Uh-huh. I see people doing things that I know I can do, and I know that I'm better than as an athlete. And that's a cocky thing to say, but you got to have some cockiness to be a good athlete. And like, I just won't give up that last like piece of cockiness inside of myself until someone stomps it out. And I won't like people have stomped it out, but I've had my excuse in my mind, like, well, it's I'm not I'm not at the point where I need to be. So until I can say I'm at the point I need to be and then they stomp it out, I just, it won't take. Well, there's something, you know, called cockiness and I would twist that and say self-belief. They're very different and yeah. I wouldn't describe you at cocky even in the smallest sense of the world word. it's just self-belief. Mm-hmm. You've earned that self-belief, I think, you know, and you're 32, I'm about to be 37 in a couple of weeks here. I did not find this sport until I was 33. Uh, I think I ran my first race at 32 and turned 33 shortly. Point being is like, I just got started then. Like, I know it feels, I'm not like I need to give you like father time advice, but like you feel like time's not on your side. You have plenty of time. Honestly, man, you do. And look at Killian, look at Woods, look at Moat, look at Hobie. Um, The biggest thing is, and we talked about working through injury and we gave this advice on one of our first podcasts is people lose fitness because they lose focus when they're injured. And you're a guy who has not done that. And yes, it's going to be a suck fest that first three to six months of truly getting back into race shape, but you will do it because you're staying, keeping the fire lit, even if you're beat up. And that's the important thing, you know, that, but just hearing that I think is important because like I said, I didn't even enter the sport till I was older than you are now. And, and those are the great things to you. And I'm thankful for, for, for having, you know, friends like you in my life. I've, I get calls from you. Ryan Kent called me yesterday and we had a good talk. He's, he and I have had like three really good talks throughout this. Like there are people in my life that are keeping things in perspective for me. And then mm-hmm. and Hobie was older than I am right now when I came into the sport. Like it's a good reminder that I could take an entire year. I could not come back till 2022 
and I'd still be younger than Hobie was when I first met him. Like, yeah, there, there is time. And, and that's what I'm starting to dwell on is take the time to do it right rather than mm-hmm. just keep patchworking together some frustrating training. You can, no. when you're really fit, you can go through a frustrating block and be fine, but you can't string years of frustration together. It just doesn't work. Yep. You can only take so many punches before your fitness actually does drop and you can't, you can't get that back until you can train as you used to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ryan Kent, not to dwell on him, but isn't he hustling right now with like working a side job and like, he's yeah. trying to make ends meet with this no racing going on pretty hard. I, I know we haven't seen much from him, but I got a lot of respect for him driving truck and delivering stuff and making it work. 10 minutes into our conversation yesterday, I said, you got to come on. We got to talk with you. This is, this is stuff everyone needs to hear. So yeah, I agree. He's a guy, he's a guy that, um, I'd like to hear more from. He's uh once you get to know that guy, he's a good dude and he's, he's got a lot of good perspective. Um, but we're not talking about Ryan Kent right now. So, um, Bracken, um, I guess the, the last thing I want to, we're, we're going, no, it's funny is we have our chats and we could talk forever and we're going on almost two hours here. And it seems like just like another day chatting with my friend Bracken. Um, so when are you getting this surgery, I guess, potentially, and, and, and you really are looking at the season as no racing, just so I understand. And right now that's not, you have no intentions. It's solely getting healthy now. Yeah. I'm, I'm putting zero timeline on it. If I get back out of surgery and my fitness comes around, I'll gladly race. Like I'll show up in Dubai and throw down. That'd be awesome. But if it doesn't happen, like I have no, I have nothing riding on getting back for a time. I have a fitness I, I need to be at. Okay. But you're getting your second knee surgery as soon as you can. As soon as I can. Is it, can you get that now with the current health situation? Or do you have I to don't wait? know. It's, that's a conversation today I have to have. Okay. Um, all right. And then the last thing I want to ask you, man, is can you tell the people, I know everybody that listens to this probably knows that we both coach right now. Um, just tell, tell us a little bit about your coaching and how people can get in touch with you and maybe just touch a little bit on your philosophy. If you, if you can, if you can just like sum that up in a quick, this is what we always ask our guests, right? Yeah. I want to know. I mean, do you have a training philosophy? I do. Um, and then how can people contact you about it and all that? Yeah. I believe that, that your aerobic development determines your scale, your scope as an athlete. And I believe in developing the aerobic, getting to the top of your aerobic ceiling as well as you can. And I believe in speed extension. I think that the vast majority of people we work with um, are lacking one of those two. They're either aerobic monsters who just don't have much speed or they have all the speed in the world and they can't maintain it for very long. And mm-hmm. so I like attacking from that point of view. Extend the amount of, uh, of, of power that you have and extend the speed that you have. Just over the course of cycle after cycle, get faster at longer and then reset and do it faster and longer again. Well, you know, what's funny is everybody says, well, I just don't have the foot speed. I hear this so much. Like I'm just not fast, but it's like everybody can run five minute pace. Everybody can sprint at five minute mile pace, whether it's for 10 meters or a hundred meters. It's just about being able to do that. Yeah. Efficiently or extend it over time. That's exactly correct. Most everybody has the speed they need in a, in a degree. It's more about the aerobic development uh, along the way. And as anyone who listens to the podcast knows, I, I believe strongly in compromised running and I'm not just talking for obstacle course racers. That's, that's a given. Obviously you have to be able to be compromised, but for every version of running stride breaks happen, whether it's from your arms fatiguing or uneven terrain or even hills for a road runner. I, I feel like there is a lot of room to be gained from marathoners, cross-country runners, obstacle racers, mountain runners, from just being raising your capacity for compromised work. 
Yep. Everyone's efficient yep. until they're not. And what happens when you're not? And I think that's that's where I have the most passion for in terms of devising workouts. What happens when you're not efficient? Like the, the old adage, <laughs> everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. Well, I believe in receiving that punch in training and, mm-hmm. and, and formulating your body's response to that. Yeah. And we're getting punched in the face, hypothetically, every obstacle we tackle, every, you know, uh, undulating terrain or hill we hit in a race, all mm-hmm. of that. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah. yeah, we have a lot of the same philosophies that way. As far as um, the services you provide uh, for the athletes, how do they get in touch with you? What's the best way to start that process? Well, this website is nearing completion, Kirk. We're getting a website. But it is not functional. And so uh, the gram message me on Instagram, message me on Facebook Messenger, or just email my first and last name at gmail.com for now. But Kirk, you and I both have running public email addresses that will yeah. launch as soon as the website launches. So that's going to be real nice and shiny. But yeah, message me and and we can uh, have a conversation and find out if it's a good fit. I, yeah. I'm not doing masses of training right now. I like working with people that interest me. And so yeah. I like to find out, it's kind of like dating. Are we a good fit? And then how do we move forward from there? Yeah. And uh, on the website, guys, as far as coaching with Bracken goes and myself, uh, we're just so you have an idea, we haven't worked out the, the intricacies 100%, but you will be able to choose your coach, either Bracken or myself. Um, and you'll find our offerings there. Or uh, you're going to be able to, so we'll call it coach with both of us, sort of a hybrid, uh, more group and group style um cost effective, but very still effective training plan. So you're going to sort of have three options uh, moving forward. But um, I think that sounds good. What else uh, What else did the people know about you, Bracken? Have I missed anything with you? A lot, of course, but anything you'd like to dive into before we sign off? I don't think so. I think I just want to reiterate that, that the concept of failing forward. Again, if, yeah. if there's one thing you take away from my athletic career, my professional career, is that I just constantly fail at things. <laughs> and it's always the inciting factor towards towards my next success. I have never had a success that didn't stem directly from a big failure. Going all the way back to middle school and high school and then college and then that quote unquote pro racing career. Um, it's just like one success opens me up to the next level of failure. And then I find out what I didn't know or didn't have, and then I fail on a bigger scale, and then I succeed on a bigger scale, and then I graduate up to the next level of failure. And mm-hmm. and it it starts depressing, and it winds up invigorating, realizing like I'm failing on a level that I didn't even have access to before. So keep failing forward. Yeah, that's very good for the people to hear. It's a great message. What's that quote? I never lose. I either win or I learn, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um I think everybody, I think every athlete goes through that. And I think you've just, you've taken your lumps and I just, uh, I'm team, I'm fucking team Bracken, man. I think, uh, I think your day is still uh, going to come back around. So I'm excited to see it. I, I hope so. I believe so. Yeah, man. Well, uh, I got nothing else for you. I actually learned a good bit about you here, Bracken. That was nice. Well, I have some people I'd like to thank. Who do you want to thank, Bracken? Well, first of all, Lisa, I if you had to design like a wife in a laboratory, like, <laughs> it, it would be her. And people talk about being supportive. There is no one on this planet more supportive than she is in every aspect. Our life is crafted around everything we want to do. And she will make whatever sacrifice or adjustment needs to be made for us to keep that lifestyle focused on exactly what we want to do from 
from the first step on, she has just been fully in the boat of let's pursue our dreams together and pursue that dream life. And I love that. She's honest about everything, but she sometimes I feel like wants it more than I do. Like she is just so dialed in with support. So I appreciate that. Second of all, Attack Fuel. They have fantastic products. They are my protein energy bar and uh, electrolyte sponsor. And I use them every single day. It's all um, vegan, if that's important to you. It's all natural. And it's so simple that it can't possibly cause any like GI issues. <laughs> I really like their hydrate product that comes yeah. in the, uh, the packet. That stuff is so good. Yeah, I like it a lot. Yep. Wearbands has been really supportive of me during my surgery rehab. They are, it's like a func fully functional gym in a, in a box. You have a belt, you have um, wrist or ankle um, straps you put on and you connect um, resistant bands to them and you can do dynamic exercises. And I haven't been able to load weight on my knees for squatting and things. And so I've been able to do a lot of band work. And even though my recovery has not been smooth, it would be a whole, I'd be a whole lot worse physically right now in terms of what I've been able to maintain strength and mobility wise without wear bands. So I really awesome. appreciate them. They're based out of Colorado. It's a guy just kind of grinding. It's not this huge corporation. And, uh, and I appreciate that. So check out. That's, it. That's in the video. Bracken just posted, I believe he had doing exercises. He's wearing his wear band belt and yep. bands. Yep. And then VJ Shoes, they've supported me for two years now, um, unquestionably. All three of these sponsors have been unquestioning during this uh, quarantine. Uh, sponsors aren't making the money they, they would normally be making if there were races and people at gyms and outside. Like people aren't using the same amount of protein and electrolytes and, and race shoes that they would normally use. And yet no one has asked me to take um, anything less. And that's, that's loyalty right there. And I really, really appreciate that. So if you have, if you're in the market looking for things, um, there's no better company to support than someone who is um, based in our country, supporting our athletes and doing it in a loyal manner. So check those three out. Yeah. And a lot of those companies too, what I find nice about um, the, the sponsors in our sport is there's just such damn good people behind the companies. I would not work with a company that doesn't have great people behind them. And I assume all the companies you work with are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like to, I, as you can see, if you ever watch me on social media, I don't pimp products really. I don't really have much I do because I, it just doesn't sit right with me. So I like to partner with good people and products that are supportive and useful. Um, you, you'll hear when we talk to Ryan and to some other athletes, we've heard the stories. There are sponsors that are pulling back their support. Um, and I get it. It's understandable. But the fact that these have not is a really, really cool thing. And again, makes my life a little bit easier. Awesome, man. Um, and where can people find you on social media? I don't know if you laid out your handle. Uh, just Bracken Crocker. There's not many people with my name, so I get to use it for everything. So Instagram, Bracken Crocker, Facebook, Gmail. How are you? Bracken Cracker. That's right. uh, Bracken, this has been good. This has been illuminating, man. It's been nice chatting with you. This is our longest episode yet. We're going to have to cut some stuff out of this. Keep the people on the hook. Next nah, week, I'll leave it in there. Next week, can I introduce our star guest for next week? Yeah. The one and only Kirk DeWint. We're going to get to know the other half of the podcast. That's right, baby. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Bracken, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. You're listening to The Running Public. All right, not even seven days ago. 
we were talking on this very podcast about time trials, how important it is. We put a call to action out there to do a time trial. And Kirk, you painted yourself into a corner without discussing it prior. You kind of just blurted out, yeah, I'll do one this week. And then when we hung up, you're like, shoot, uh, looks <laughs> like I have to do a time trial this week. And normally this might be the kind of thing you let slide, but you would put it out there that other people should hold them accountable. You even talked about accountability partners and you messaged me like minutes later saying, hey, am I crazy to think that I should just go do this right now? It's going to be rainy and cold tomorrow and it's nice today, but I just did mm -hmm. 17 hard two days ago. And yep. like, like a good, thoughtful coach, I said, <laughs> get after it. <laughs> you did. You did. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I think with a time trial, it's just one of those things you got to rip the bandaid off. It doesn't matter. Your excuses don't matter how you're feeling that day. If you're PMSing, if you had a tummy ache, if you like, you just got to go and do it. And so after our call on, we recorded the podcast for Tuesday on Monday. And literally after we hung up, I was like, Bracken, I think I'm on a time trial. And I followed through with the accountability piece. I needed a little help. I needed that push to go out and do it. Um, so I did it. And I'm glad I did. And we've had a few listeners now I've seen uh, finally show us some posts about they're uh, about to get after it too. So you helped me through it. Because honestly, Bracken, if I didn't send that text out to you and I didn't let you know that I was probably going to do this, I may have pushed it off a day. So it worked. It worked. It yeah. Accountability partners are a real thing in this world, people. And it's not just for life. It's for running, which also is life. Yeah. I had, a, I had a few clients actually reach out to me this week and say, hey, can we change my plan this week so I can time trial? And I was like, hell yeah, we can. Let's change, <laughs> let's change that up right now. I like that. So you didn't just time trial. You, you had a, a very good time trial. Yeah, I was happy with it. I was uh, I ran almost perfectly even splits at 509. I was really impressed with that, by the way. I was trying to impress you because you knew I was out there doing it. I sent you that text. Yeah, so I was happy. I ran 15.58 on the road by myself. And I interrupted you. you. Give the people your splits. 509, 509, 509. That, you, that, that's pretty consistent. Yeah, I got lucky. I got lucky. But I, uh, you know, I had, you know, it was actually a confidence booster for me in a sense that sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit where our baseline fitness can be at. And it's easy to think you're not in the shape that you actually may be. And so there's two sides of the coin. One side of the coin is you could time trial and be humbled, and then that should motivate you to train harder. Or you can time trial and be pleased and say, okay, like I can be smart and build with purpose and choice and, and not feel panicked. And now all of a sudden I feel like I'm in control of my training instead of behind any eight ball, even though I come off a recovery week two weeks ago. So for me, like it served a purpose. And if it went bad, it would have served a purpose that way too. <laughs> you notice I'm doing something weird with my hands right now. Yeah, yeah what, are you, what are you doing down there? I had to pull the old unbutton the top button of my pants because I was pushing too tight on my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you have a big breakfast? I did and I did not work out this morning. Oh, that must be, you look a little rounder in the face. I oh, I'm a bit what... rotund. Our daughter uh, needed some extra sleep and she came in and got me last night at like three and I ended up just cuddling her in bed till like eight. Oh, uh, so like, you've been up since three? No, 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 no. I, I fell back asleep, but uh, she sleeps really well if someone's cuddling her. So I, I slept in this morning, not slept in, I, I was awake, but I stayed there with her just to get her some sleep. She's been a crabby mess. But anyways, uh, I didn't work out and had a big old breakfast. Now my pants are a little snug. You're looking a little chubby. That's uh, your dad. with all these skinny I've been rocking in quarantine. <laughs> yeah, it must be. You um enough about my time trial bracken. You uh you no 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 not enough time. yet. I have one important comment to make about yours. Piggybacking off what you said about you can surprise yourself. 
as runners or athletes of all types, both like the media narrative, the fans narrative and our own internal narrative is, is what have you done for me lately? And mm. that not just hap- that doesn't just go with performances and races. It also goes with training. And you came off a build where you were talking, man, I'm, I'm popping some workouts. I'm feeling great. I'm going to take my down week and then rebuild. And suddenly after your down week, your body remembered, I'm finishing an off season yeah. rather than I'm pretty fit. And I recovered and regenerated for a week. And I've been there. You've been there. Other people have been. But it like you had a season in microcosm right there where you went from feeling pretty darn good about yourself to, oh, I got a time trial in my first week back to running. And that's a that, that's like a weighty feeling to have. But the good takeaway for people is that all your work isn't negated by taking a week or two down. And no. your time trial proved that to go run 509 back to back to back shows that you can obviously run faster than that if you like gunned your head if you were in a race or something like that. And that's a great place to be at coming out of a down week. But a down week doesn't spell doom for your fitness. It's just a reset. Correct. And sometimes those down weeks are a chance for your body to absorb the hard work that you've done up to that point. Like you can come out a few weeks after a down week, even more fit than you went into it because you finally gave your body the chance to to take advantage of all the hard work. Like you need to take down time in order to absorb your training. And I will say something about that. And I've learned this over the years is that um, I did three hard cardio cross training bouts the week of my off week from running very intense, short intervals on the assault bike that were, you know, half hour, 45 minutes total, but very painful. And I still got done with that week feeling very recovered, very refreshed. But like, I felt like I jumped right back into running and I didn't lose a step. I had renewed vigor for running. I was chomping at the bit, but like, I didn't get set back because I put a small amount of time into cross training that week at short, intense bouts. So it's just a testament that if you are taking a recovery week or you're banged up, I got a couple clients that are nursing injuries right now. And I said, great, we're taking the week off. You're going to hit these three key cross training bouts this week. You're not going to lose a step, I promise you. So just something to think about moving forward for you guys that a few strong cardio bouts on an off week, cross training cardio bouts can really sustain your fitness while still reinvigorating like you're running. Yeah, that's that's perfectly summed up. I love that. Um, not to spend too much time on my time trial. because I don't want to hear about happened. it. It hasn't even happened yet. Well, who does a hundred? Okay, so Bracken said he's going to do a hundred mile bike time trial, which is like that's like one of the more ludicrous things to choose because it's such there's a some rationale behind that. I understand you need to suffer, right? But I mean, Matt, I wanted- but also like eventually, my long term goal, my entire life, I've wanted to uh, to do an Ironman, but not just do one, but qualify for the Ironman Age Group World Championships in Kona. Whether mm-hmm. I go or not is immaterial; it doesn't matter. It's the the concept of going after that. And I want a baseline goal of how, like, can I keep in my like baseline fitness? Can I bike a split on a hundred miles that would be like in the ballpark of what I need to do to get to Kona? So it's just like a mental thing. But then also there's this concept, this uh, DIY gravel. Have you seen that hashtag floating around? Yeah. I don't know what that means though. So there's this, uh, this, this gravel bike extraordinaire guy. I'm blanking on his name right now, but go check out Ryan Atkins Instagram. He's, he's got some links to it. He's used that hashtag. This guy is, uh, a prolific racer and has decided he wants to get people to still do their races on the date they had scheduled so that they stay focused and don't lose out on all their motivation. So on mm-hmm. the day or weekend, within a week of the, the the event that you had on your original calendar, you would go out and you do that race distance. You try to match the elevation profile and terrain and you just do it solo. And then you tag him and post your results. And he's got a bunch of awesome sponsors and he's sending out like prizes to people and stuff, not based on performance, just based on completion. So Atkins did like a 
62 mile gravel bike the other day and it doesn't have to be a gravel race they, that's just his realm but any type of race for it and Lindsay uh did 100 yesterday and then uh aaron newell went out and did 100 yesterday just for fun so like i was wavering a bit on should i really do this right now but uh they both did it i feel like without knowing it they're my accountability partner they, mm. they got it done i can go do it I will add in there that Atkins also, I believe, then did a Killington sim yesterday. If yes, you look at his, so, anyways, people are hitting it. They're they must have listened to our podcast on Tuesday, Bracken, and then they decided to go time trial. That's what I'm thinking. I can't think of any other reason. No other reason. So, so okay, so there's hundred from the bike shop. Yeah, I got a call from the bike shop. The There were two things I couldn't get working on my bike. The chain wouldn't get to the highest uh, ring. One of my gears, just it wouldn't go up to that. And then there's some funkiness with one of the cables being a little too tight and short. So they, they got that sorted. I can go pick it up today. I'm going to dial in my position today. And then tomorrow or Saturday, based on the rain, I'm going to go out and, I guess, hammer 100. Yeah. <laughs> it's really going to be hold back for like 50 and then work hard for 25 and then hold on for 25. What uh, what do you have in mind? I know you have rolling terrain sort of where you live, but it's more flat than I would say a lot of other people in the country. What is your goal? Yeah. Like, what do you think if you can hold, let's say it's a calm, relatively calm day. Do you have like a pace in mind uh, that you'd like to hold? I mean, realistically, I want to average 20 miles per hour for the whole thing. But I just don't think that that's feasible right now. I've also never ridden this bike. I'm going to ride it like for a total of 30 minutes, just dialing in my position. And then I'm going to go out and see what you can do on 100. So. Wow. That's not like your best <laughs> idea you, know, you can have, but I like the idea of like new and fresh and just have some unknown. I think probably realistically on the terrain I'll do, I think 17 and a half miles per hour average over the course of this. Um, you know, it's a road bike. I'm not going to have any fancy doodads on it, but I think 17 and a half to 20 is my goal range. Yeah, I think that's fair. I know when I hop on the bike and I have not been biking for a while, even holding 20 miles an hour, if I'm going for like a 40 mile ride, 20 mile an hour is like a pretty good rate of work by the end of that thing. Um, if I'm not biking a ton, I know you've been biking, but it hasn't, you know, not, this not time biking, on the bike. Biking. Yeah, exactly. So I think even if you hold, I'd say if you held 18 and a half miles an hour for a hundred miles, that would be a stud effort in my opinion, 18.5. That's what I'm calling right now. Yeah, I'd be happy with that. Yeah. I did 50 the other day at like 17.8 average. And that included, um, that included like 60 seconds of not moving time. I just, it was a time trial. So I didn't stop the watch while I was futzing with stuff on the bike. And that was a steel bike. So I'd like to think that I could go faster with less effort on my bike. Uh, and then just double it. Yeah, easy enough. And uh, I would say, do you notice this on the bike rack? And when I go for long bike rides, I haven't since last season, but I noticed that the bonk on that bike is harder than any bonk that you'll experience once it happens to you, even more so than running for me when I bonk on the bike. So you just got to stay ahead of your nutrition, at least for me when I'm on I've the bike. I've never bonked on a bike because you're I gonna, don't you're gonna, like enough. You're going to this weekend. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. I've I've bonked on running and I can't imagine <laughs> it being worse if it, it is. is. Oh, man. It is. So I'm going to really slow play it. I'm going to listen to an audio book for the entire way out. So that I have to like stay under my limit so that I'm like paying attention to the book and rather than like trying to work. And then when I get around, I'm going to turn on a jam fest and then I'm going to try to get to work. What, okay, and then I'm so, going to come up short by like 20 to 40 miles. <laughs> okay. So what audiobook and what like Pandora station or Spotify playlist or jam? I listened to, for this one, it j just my, I had a Jack Reacher book on hold at our local library and it went through. <laughs> so that's, that's all dialed up. So some Jack Reacher by Lee Child. Nice. Just, just appear into some crime action mystery. 
and then Rick Ross station. <laughs> Rick, Ross. Rick Ross is my workout. If I have a Rick Ross mix on, I can work out with probably any planet, any athlete on any planet in the galaxy. Now in the galaxy. Now I know you like your women, uh, your women artists. I thought you'd go back to like some Evanescence or like, uh, you know, a little Alanis Morissette or something. You know, horses for courses. I think I need Rick Ross to get me through this one. <laughs> All right, folks, you heard it. He's going to show us what his 100-mile time trial is on your Strava. Upload it to Strava, Brack, and you don't do that enough. No, I don't. The people want to know. I haven't been outside doing stuff. I've been inside, and I don't know. It just it feels mm-hmm. weird to put a manual entry for a stared master. But anyways, we are 13 minutes into this episode, and it is time to get to the episode. That was a long preamble. Today's guest is my esteemed colleague, Kirk DeWint. Last week, if you didn't tune in, we had Kirk interview me as Get to Know Your Host Part 1, and this is Part 2, Get to Know Your Other Host. The hostess with the most is Kirk DeWint. And Kirk, you know, like with, with no more further ado, take us back. Rewind yeah. in time to when little Kirky became or started planting the seeds for who you are today. It's funny. All my uh, my family calls me Kirky still. I'm, you know, so your mom said I reached my- out to her about this episode. I'm sure you did. Yeah. My mom, you wouldn't even know how to get in touch with my mom. She, she called uh, me. Oh, she calls you. Oh, uh, so we're going back to the beginning, huh, Bracken? Yeah, to the beginning. I started back at crawling around in a diaper, hitting a ball with a bat. What was the moment Kirk DeWintz showed flashes of who you are? You know what? I think I bet you a lot of people have this similar story in the sense that I was a child who couldn't sit still for more than 30 seconds. You could call it ADD or you could just call it like a surplus of young energy. And that was me. So me like gravitating towards sitting inside playing video games or doing those things like didn't appeal to me even a little bit. Um, And I was always a kid who was up at five in the morning when I was, you know, three or eight or 10 or 12. Like I was a kid who just wanted to get up and get outside. So um, I would say like the foundation of like movement started like, I don't know, as soon as I knew how to like walk, to be honest. When I was growing up, um, my dad uh, was an accomplished runner uh, and my parents divorced when I was seven. So I didn't I split time between the two. But before that, um, I would go to his races. He would go run road races on the weekends and stuff. And um, he was like a 35 minute 10k or maybe but in green bay wisconsin you know the big city that was uh that was quick enough to like place in the top five in most races so when i remember like some of my youngest memories i'd like go watch my dad like race like a road race and i'd sit there and cheer i didn't really understand what was going on but i knew i wanted to do that so some of my first memories actually like when you start to comprehend like like your consciousness was like riding my bike along with my dad as he went for runs uh, that sort of thing. But I don't remember, like, I don't have any early memories of like sitting inside doing anything. I'm always like outside doing something. I would say that was like, those are like some of my first memories. That's interesting. Now you alluded to it maybe we'll get to it more later, but I think I want the audience to know that your dad was more than just a 35 minute 10 K runner later in life. Uh, give, give me some, your background bio on your father. And then, uh, yeah, he was, um, he's a farm kid. He was one of 10, 10 kids. In fact, my whole family. So I'm from green Bay, Wisconsin, Um, which I'm sure a lot of you sports fans probably makes you not like me already. However, uh, and my, my dad and mom both grew up in small towns. My dad was one of 10 kids, grew up on a farm and he was one of the oldest. So, um, as all the other kids were like, parents were just trying to keep him alive. You know, he was like kind of on his own, I feel like, but he, um, he ended up joining track and cross country in high school. 
his first year in cross country was his senior year of high school. The school did not have a cross country program, and he won state. Uh, didn't didn't know what didn't know what he had possessed. Um, and he had run track two years, I believe, uh, prior to that. So he knew he was decent, but he had a running pedigree. Um, no coaching, no idea what he was doing. His coach would send him out for a five k run every day. Go run roll out of bed, state champ first try. Uh, yeah, but I'll tell you, he, from what I understand, he, um, he didn't get it right. Like his first race. In fact, I think he was started like the third or fourth on his team that year. He lost at the sectional meet going into state to his own teammate. And then at state, he put it all together and won by what he says is about a hundred yards. That's how they quantify things back then. I don't know his time. I don't know anything, but yeah, so he was a good runner that way. Um, so I just kind of, I don't know. I always looked up to him when I was really little, especially going out and running. Uh, he no longer runs today. He's a little banged up, but um, yeah. So that was be his background. So you grew up watching your dad, and what was your introduction then? In, in your childhood, were you right into sports, or did you have other passions? Um, that's a good question, man. I was, uh, I was kind of a, I was a shyer kid. I know that might be hard for you to believe, but I was a little shyer. I was probably one of the more quiet ones in like elementary school. Uh, beginning of middle school, I was more like a, a wallflower instead of, you know, I did not like the eyes of me. Maybe the kid who went up and if it was like time to give a speech, I would turn beet red. And it was obvious I was more uncomfortable than anything. You and I both. You were that way too? Yeah, this is not about me, but I almost I'm dropped out of, the, out of the school of education because I couldn't talk in front of people. Uh, really? Seriously. Like I dreaded student teaching with every fiber of my being. It was awful. And that was in your, that was in your, uh, like your, what, 20? Uh, yeah, I, w- I would have been 19, almost 20, still considering not becoming a teacher because I couldn't speak. <laughs> I think you grew out of that bracket. Eventually, just reps, right? Yeah, man. Yeah, but I, uh, that's where it kind of started. But I did this, some reason, do you remember the, I don't know if they have these anymore. They're the Hershey races. Yeah, the Hershey it's, track meets. The Hershey track meets. Well, somehow a Hershey track meet came to Green Bay. God, and I think I was fifth grade, maybe sixth grade, fifth fifth grade or sixth grade. Anyways, and so uh, my dad was just like, "Hey, there's this Hershey track meet," or my mom, one of the two. And I said, "Well, yeah, obviously I'm a runner because my dad's a runner, whatever." So I entered the 800 meters. I've never run anything before. Um, I led the first quarter mile, like it was only a quarter mile and I basically walked the whole second lap and I was so embarrassed. I never wanted to run again. In fact, I didn't, I didn't go, I didn't run for four more years after that because I was so ashamed. Oh, I got so smoked bracket. It was so humbling. And my little family came out and everybody thought I'd crush it. And I got, I got smoked. I mean, it was like tears and I hate this and I want to go home. My first experience was sour. Did you ever do a Hershey track meet? No, I, I don't know. No, no. We had Badger State games. You remember that? Oh, yeah, I remember Badger State games. So Badger yeah. State games and junior Olympics, I would do every year from like third grade on. But I was I did the 100 and the 200 every year. I was a sprinter at that <laughs> oh, age. Oh, come on, really? Everybody yeah. was a sprinter at that age. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but that was my first running memory, man. I got just trumped it was and there were only like four kids in the race and they all beat me by like half a lap yeah. and it had nothing to do if i just would have knew what i was doing and i had some guidance i think i could have maybe even won or run with everybody but when you have a 50 meter lead after the first lap and then you lose by 50 meters it was a pretty humbling day, pretty humbling day Brad. so you yeah. went fifth grade to ninth grade without joining 
structured running? What what did you fill your time with? No, eighth grade. Uh, eighth grade, oh. I actually joined too. Um, as an athlete, so uh, I played soccer growing up. Because I was so shy, I was one of those kids that would just like follow the corral of kids around the ball. I don't know if you recall that phase of soccer, where it's just like one mob following the ball. Oh, yeah. You poke at it. Um, and then I started playing a lot with my buddies around the around the house. And I was a very good athlete. I was just a little timid mentally. Um, and I found a coach my in fifth grade who um, realized that I was actually good and I was like kind of holding myself back, so to speak. And he sort of gave me the talks I needed and blah, blah, blah. Well, I went from scoring zero goals the first four games to scoring a hat trick or more the rest of the season. And in that fifth, in that fifth grade season, uh, I realized like, uh, I quit being shy. Like that's not the purpose of like this. Uh, I don't know. I learned. So I don't know what it was about something that like a switch flipped. So then soccer was all I get, cared about. Soccer, 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 soccer. So then I started playing traveling competitive soccer at a high level. Um, moving forward, I quickly became the captains of all my traveling teams. We were moving around. Everything was just soccer, 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 uh, growing up. And that's what I thought I would be. I thought I'd be a soccer player. So you, you asked me a question. When did that dream die for baseball? Uh, when, when did that dream die? Like what, 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 how did that run its course? It ran its course when my track coach, my junior year of high school said, Kirk, I think it's time you start taking this running thing seriously because I was very doing very well, but I would have a soccer game in the springtime. I would have a soccer game and then I would go to track practice afterwards or I would have a, or vice versa. And I was showing up like dogged and I was starting to run into injury issues. I had a back issue. I was starting to get stress fractures in my shins, which I'm still dealing with. So having all these issues and he said, Kurt, you got to decide what, what is uh what Avenue for you is going to be best. And I'm telling you that running is your running is your thing. Like you need to listen to me on this. And I fought it, man. I fought it. In fact, I had that conversation with myself um, going into high school. I went out and tried out for the soccer team. And at my high school, we only have JV and varsity. There's no freshman team. So they take maybe a handful of freshmen, mostly sophomores and a few juniors on JV. And then varsity is the stud. So not a lot of freshmen make the team. Well, uh, the first day of practice, we have something called the T. And the T is where you basically just run down to a T in the road and come back. It's three miles. It's nothing. And it was this big dreaded day of our soccer tryouts. And I said, well, if I'm going to get attention, it's going to be now. And I, I won that, the T by like three minutes. And the upper, yeah, as a freshman, and the upperclassmen were pissed at me. Like, you made us look bad. And I got shunned by everybody because I left them. And isn't that were, funny? It's, isn't it? It is funny. As a team member, you should be thrilled that we've got a guy with some juice on the team. <laughs> and instead, you're immature. And it's like, nope, can't handle that blow to my ego yet. Yeah, some guy actually came up to me. I started just doing my thing right away. And I remember one of the seniors came up to me. He ran, like sprinted to catch up to me. And he's like, dude, you better fucking hold back, man. He's like, you can't make us look bad. We don't want to work too hard today. We got a whole day of tryouts. He's like, come back and join us. And I was like, okay, fine. And then I just kept running fast. I just ignored him. So I got back and everybody was pissed at me. Nobody would talk to me. And all I remember is coming back from that day and coach was like, what's your name again? And I was like, it's Kirk DeWitt, sir. And, and he wrote something down on his little piece of paper. And I was like, that's ah, probably worth it. Yeah. So I, made, so I made the team. So I made the soccer team as a freshman in high school. We had a good soccer team. We went to like st- the state tournament where they don't take a lot of teams. You know, we had an accomplished uh, soccer program and it came to our first uh our first soccer game. And I sat the bench. I didn't play a minute. I didn't play anything. 
and I cared too much about it. I, my ego was starting to get bruised and I still was being treated differently by the other kids. Like they just didn't like me. And it all came back to that stupid run. I swear it came back to that run. There, I had a few friends on the team, but like nobody passed me the ball. And that's how I felt at the time. I'm sure maybe I'm looking at this biased. So uh, our game was on that Saturday. I did not show up to uh, soccer practice on Monday afternoon. I went to the cross country coach and I said, can I, can I join the team? And I quit soccer after the first game. Wow. Did you that's continue to play traveling ball? Yep, I played traveling ball all the way through junior year when I had that conversation with my track coach about maybe picking my avenue. Yeah, interesting. So, so I quit the high school. I quit the high school soccer team to run uh, cross country. Um, and the interesting thing about that was is we had a meet on Tuesday. So I showed up to cross country practice on a Monday as a freshman, and I was an underdeveloped freshman like you, uh, maybe like five six, hundred and ten pounds. I looked like like a little girl, I mean, honestly. And so he put me in JV, of course, because I didn't even run once with the team. And I won by three and a half minutes. I soccer's practice and had me in just enough shape where um, I must have had something to me. And I would have taken second in the varsity race. There was a, there was a golf cart leading me through the JV race. And I remember running and people are be like, did that kid cut the course? Where did he come from? Uh, and on that day, that was, that was it for me, man. Like without question at JV day. That's awesome. Yeah. That is, that is really cool. So freshman then through junior year, I assume you progress decently well and you get to junior year, you have enough potential that your cross country coach wants you to give up traveling soccer, AU soccer, and you yep. still have passion for soccer. Yeah. Did you have interest from colleges either direction at that point? Um, you know, I guess maybe you don't know, maybe you do know this. Really, if you're like a, an accomplished high school athlete, you get you start getting your recruitment letters your junior year. They start I, this. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't mature them. early enough. I didn't get <laughs> anything junior year. Yeah, I started getting uh, recruitment letters um, junior year based off of my like sophomore running year times, I think, and mm-hmm. and maybe after junior cross country or something like that. But uh, I still wasn't sure to be honest with you. But the problem is at that age, if you don't play high school sport, like like competitive traveling soccer doesn't get a lot of eyes on it. Just like if you play competitive traveling summer league basketball, it doesn't get a lot of eyes on it. Most recruiters are looking at the high school performances. So not Just as interesting because now that shifted. Has it? Not when I was playing. Sports. Yeah. I mean, not even when I was in school, I'm not much younger than you, but like in the most recent generation, you can get away with just playing traveling ball because there's eyes everywhere, social media videos of everything. You can get away with that now. especially since small town kids, it's hard to tell if they will translate to big leagues, but traveling teams play traveling teams. Yeah. That's a good point. That's not how it felt when I was in school. Oh, I'm sure it wasn't. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't get recruited uh, very much at all for soccer, mostly because I think I stopped just a hair too early, but it was, I mean, that's the sport that got me the most excited. I again was captain of my traveling squads. Um, I think I was more of a leader by example at that point. Like I just worked hard. I didn't mouth off. I wasn't the kid who had something to say to everybody. I just worked hard, put my nose down and did it. So that's more how I led. But um, anyways, yeah, it just uh, the, that conversation. I think we all get to that point, don't we? In like our, whether it's our like professional career, or athletic career, where like you're like, shit, like the road's got to split here and I got to pick a direction. You hit it. Yep. And oftentimes it's not leading in the direction of your perceived first passion. Right. So true. I avoided running for years. I, after that first Hershey race, we had the mile time trials at gym class and I would run, I think I ran six, 
555 as a sixth grader or something in that. And my track coach came and said, hey, we got to get you to join the team. And I was so afraid of embarrassing myself again that I couldn't even bring myself to join the middle school track team. I remember my, my in eighth grade, I think I ran like 540 now at like the gym class mile. And again, he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I can't do it. Like, I don't want to. I'm too scared. So I didn't join again just because, and I enjoyed soccer at the time too. Yeah, it was, uh, I really pushed it away. I'll tell you that. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting that running doesn't have the seductive quality to it. It's that it's the acquired taste of running. You know what the I years think? of work you put in makes you fall in love with it. It's so true. It's like uh, it's like trying to like skirting the obvious for years because mm-hmm. there's other like shiny objects to chase, but you ultimately realize like because I mean isn't isn't like endurance sports and running like the least shiny of all objects when you're in the athletic world? Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, even just like to a young boy, that body is such an important thing to a young boy. Looking up at what the example for a man is and like. The uh, the perfect like formulated football player is jacked. Perfect basketball player is very muscular. The perfect baseball player is very muscular. The perfect runner is a stick. Yeah, and and there's no way around that at the elite level. And it's just not a body type alone that a, a young boy would aspire to, because so every young boy is little, and every young boy wants to be bigger. And and that alone, if there was nothing else. That alone, like, prevents so many people from aspiring to be a great runner. It's kind of true. I mean, the fact that I joined soccer as a freshman in high school, one was because I wanted to, like, meet girls. And I knew that the soccer kids were cool. And that would help that way. I wanted to be popular, as everybody at that age does. And I knew soccer would help lead me in that direction. I wanted to uh, be part of a, I don't know, it just had this, like, cooler vibe to it. And that was more of the draw than anything. And the running draw was like, you know, when you looked at it and you looked at the kids on the team before I knew it, it was like, just like a bunch of misfits and cerebrals out there running because they weren't good at anything else. It's like how it was looked at. And that's horrible. And I bet you that still goes on today, but I remember looking at it that way. And so, so yeah, so soccer was like the shiny object. It's tough as a underdeveloped freshman boy too. Not to take it away from the female, but I just don't have that perspective. Having lived oh. through it, our fresh in our high school, they'd announce all the accomplishments over the weekend with the morning announcements on Monday. Yeah, they did that at ours too. And I couldn't wait my freshman year for cross country to end, so I'd stop hearing my people would stop hearing my announcements as a runner and start hearing it for basketball. Uh, so I was just like, "Oh man, I'm getting pigeonholed." <laughs> oh no, like, <laughs> I'm now that kid who's good at running rather than uh-huh. like that stud athlete who's desirable and and like. There's no other, maybe swimming in high school. There are very yeah. few sports that you would look at your success and like shy away from it. It's so, it's so true, man. It really is. Um, and my, and it also, I think a lot of it has to do with like where your friends go to. If you have a couple of friends, you can say it's a social thing too. And a lot of my friends are doing soccer. So anyways, yeah. So that, that was a, that was an interesting blip for me, but my freshman year of cross country, um, I, I ended up switching over. Right. And I, and I won that JV race and I thought I cut the course because I didn't freaking see anybody. I think I ran 18, 1851, by the way, or something. Eight, no, 1820 something. I ran 1848, I you think, did? my freshman year. Uh, it was 1820, 23 or something. It was like a relatively hilly course, whatever. I've worked hard. I've never worked that hard in my life. Um, but anyway, they got pumped to varsity right away. And uh, we had a bunch of upperclassmen 
And this is still like, I'm still feeling this out, right? As a freshman, like I switched soccer. I'm still like peeking at soccer practice as I'm out there running with the cross country team now saying, I wish I was with the soccer guys and all that. You know, I was like, ah, now they're looking at me and they're pointing and making fun of me running by being like that loser couldn't hang. Like I was still feeling that a little bit, you know, um, but I got bumped to varsity. And so then the varsity meet started and our third meet of the year was the Green Bay City meet. And for some reason, the press has nothing better to do then show up at these like high school events in Green Bay. There's a lot going on. So like sports, like high school sports makes the front page sometimes. And it definitely makes the front page of the sports section. You have camera crews out there. Like they did a really good job of covering like media. I have a whole scrapbook that my mom put together with probably 80 articles in it from my running career in high school because wow. I, Oh yeah, I should, I should, it's a little brag thing, but anyways, so I went to the high school, the Green Bay, uh, the Green Bay cross country meet three weeks later and I ran 1704 and I took third place and I lost by seven seconds as a freshman. Yeah, I had no idea that was in me. Um, and I got a little bit of like, oh, here's this young kid who, you know, could blow away in the wind and he took third place. And I got a little, you know, I think it was like that meet where um, I was like, oh man, like I, I kind of like this. Like maybe I just going to, I'm going to start accepting this. So we went on that season. You cut off 30 seconds per mile in three weeks. Yeah, something like that. That's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, but that's just youth and that's just like learning what the heck you're doing. But uh, we had a bunch of upperclassmen on the team and uh, we went to state for the first time in, I don't know, 30 years. Uh, We ended up being the second team out of sectional and we went to state. I was a freshman with a bunch of upperclassmen who went to state and the upperclassmen were a bunch of really solid kids and they they had thanked me so much. Like you are the blessing. Like you came over late. We didn't think we had a team. You ended up not only being our fifth guy, but you ended up, I ended up leading the team in a few races. And so the team took me out after the season and they got me drunk. (laughs) We went out into a technical college parking lot and drank. uh, I think they gave me a Colt 45 or something. (laughs) And they got drunk with the, with the high school team. And it was like that bonding experience and like that appreciation, like that's actually probably where it started. So it was like that. Then, then I was, I had an idea, like, okay, maybe I should like accept this. And I still pursued the soccer thing for years because it was still enjoyable. And I still thought there was a chance, but like, that was probably my moment. Drinking beers in a parking lot, honestly. Yeah. A night and day reception compared to the soccer team upperclassmen. Totally. I was being thanked for being there and the other soccer kids thought I was, you know, a loser. So. Yeah. That, was, that was nice. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was my first experience. In fact, we, um, so they had drunk and there's a few kids that didn't drink, which I, you know, of course you respect and they were driving. And so we went to, um, we went to Perkins at like 11 o'clock at night, right. Which is where it all began and went to a Perkins and I'm what, 14. I don't know. Well, somebody had had a little too much, one of the seniors and he threw up on my jacket. No, it was just like an old Adidas girls jacket. And so, and I had like three beers and that was enough to make a wind. That was windbreaker material. That doesn't do well with vomit. (laughs) It was the windbreaker. It was was like a forest green. Anyway, so we went to Perkins and I'd throw up on my jacket. It wasn't my throw up. Uh, But anyways, and so I forgot my jacket at Perkins. Uh, I don't know what it was like, you know, 10 degrees out and I was in a t-shirt and I walk back in the house in a t-shirt and my mom's standing there with her arms crossed. She's like, where the fuck were you? And I was like, I was just hanging out with the guys, mom, like trying to pull it together. She's like, you're not wearing a jacket. It's 10 degrees out. And you left with a jacket. 
I was like, oh, shoot, I must have forgotten it at Perkins. So she made me drive with her to Perkins, and we got the jacket still sitting on the back of the chair, you know, and it's got throw up all We've all been there leaving a vomit-covered jacket at Perkins. <laughs> oh, man. And you know what? She didn't even really care. I don't even know how to describe it. She was upset with me, but she kind of got it. Like, the upperclassmen said, hey, can we take out your kid for the night? Say, like, they did it right. Yeah. And then she realized we were out drinking. But anyways, someone threw up on my damn jacket. So that was, uh, but all that, that whole night, I'll never forget. That was a great night. It's a magical moment. Yeah. I still wore that jacket. I cleaned her up good. Don't worry. Got to. Yeah. So 1705 as a freshman? 1704. I ended up running one more time. I think like a second faster. To, at sectionals, I ran 1704. Wow. So yeah. how'd you progress then from freshman till junior year when that coach had to talk with you? Um, I didn't quite have the speed as a freshman in track. Uh, it didn't quite come around yet. So, um, I then went on all our upperclassmen had graduated after my, a lot of my freshman year. So, uh, I was then the number one guy my sophomore year, junior year. We didn't have a lot of people running with me. We had a few kids that came on later, but, um, I continued to get better. I won, I think most every meet my sophomore year. And again, I was a big fish in a small pond. I'm in green Bay, uh, Wisconsin. When I start looking at other times in the state, I realize like, Ooh, I'm good, but I'm not that good. And so, uh, it kind of became my identity. Just like you talk those like morning announcements. I remember my name and this week we have, you know, Kirk DeWitt wins this and that, and it started to feel a little bit good. I wasn't embarrassed to hear that anymore. And I think through all that, my confidence came around. So I wasn't like the shy meek kid anymore. I was like kind of happy to, I was like finally like starting to become content with who I was, you know, like this is me and that's fine. Um, but uh, anyways, yeah, running just progressed. I think I ran 1643 my sophomore year, 1630 my junior year, and then I was injured my senior year. I didn't run till midway through the season. I think I only ran 1627 or something. So I didn't progress that much. Um, and in track, kind of the same, but just enough where I was getting good enough to get like a little bit of recruitment. But um, yeah, I became I became life man, and because there wasn't a ton of competition where I lived. Like I was, I was just racking up medals, you know what I mean? And well, and you and, learned how to race. There's something to be said for learning how to be in the front of a pack. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I did. I did learn how to race. I definitely did. And we don't get me wrong. I got beat. And once in a while I get, I get smacked and, and a reality check would happen, but that was just, I don't know. It was, it was, was what it was. I was showing up to morning 7am practices in the summer with the kids leading workouts, doing that whole thing. It just became me, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's what happened. And we were, and I was trying to make it all work for a while. I was playing, I was playing summer soccer, traveling soccer. Then I was going into cross country in the fall. Then I go right into indoor soccer and we traveled for indoor soccer sometimes indoor soccer, right into spring soccer overlapping with track. So many days, like I mentioned, I would go from soccer practice to track practice. I mean, one day I remember having a soccer game. I had a track meet and then I finished the track meet and went right to my soccer game and these are these all-out efforts, like back-to-back. You've been there. Yeah. You don't know any different. You just go and hustle. That's what that's what it is. Yeah. That's interesting. So you're, you you went in on running after your coach said you got to decide. Did you have a big, like, leap forward with that <laughs> new, you know, mental focus? Or did it take until college till you got your next leap? It's uh, a good question. I think I did. So I left soccer my senior year. I said, okay, I'm going to focus on this. And what do you know? I, I got hurt. I got hurt. Oh, uh, yeah. I was running 15 miles a week, 20 miles a week. I got hurt going into track season. So I had to take a full month off of running before practice started. I got hurt going into cross country season, had to take almost two months off. Both were stress fractures in my tibia. 
And uh, with that free time I had, was I was doing more running, ended up getting hurt. I learned some hard lessons that first year. And so my running got good. I mean, I went to state in track and I went to uh, state and cross country all four years. I qualified with the team as a freshman and individually sophomore, junior and senior year. And then with the team and track, uh, I went in, in track two years. Um, but I didn't get that much better my senior year because I was banged up, man. It was like, it was all anticlimactic. Yeah, that's, that's tough. It's a, it's a brief snapshot of what happens to some people when they quit their day job to go full-time pro. It's so true. Some people get that instant boost up and some people run into some hardship when they have all the time in the world to do everything they want to do. And it doesn't always add up to a better final product. Yeah, it's true. It was like the first summers I was like, oh, this summer I'm going to run now. I'm going to run and get ready for cross country before my senior year. So I had to play soccer all summer. And I got a stress fracture in July (laughs) because I was running too much. And same thing happened leading into track. And hindsight, if I would have just played my traveling soccer and then played soccer again in the winter, I probably maybe would have been better off. But those are lessons you learn. I'll tell you what, I've learned a lot of those hard lessons with the injuries. And it started at a stupid young age. So I have that perspective. That's good. That is. So what brought yeah, you to UW Oshkosh from there? Uh, yeah, UWO. Uh, UW Zero is our uh, competitors like to call us. I've never heard that. UW Zero? Oh, and God. I went to a competitor of yours. Yeah. Huh. I chose I chose college based off of athletics solely. Um, I'll tell you what, of all the state schools, Oshkosh and Stevens Point were the two groups of guys we got along with the best. You guys always seem to have the most level-headed, like laid back, normal people on your teams rather than robots or your typical distance runners or like the lacrosse crazy slash robotic vibe, you know? Uh Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's how we felt about Whitewater too. Whitewater and Point... I feel like everybody was it was kind of like a group of similar dudes. And then you looked at others like like lacrosse. Nobody liked anybody that went to lacrosse. No. A bunch of freaking pricks. Weirdos and, and jerks. Yeah, we, weirdos Macaulay and jerks. went there. <laughs> oh, did he? oh, that makes sense. He didn't get along with people there. I guess that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, Bragg and I went to the same. So I know you've heard this, but we have the WEAC conference, uh, which is like a bunch of like larger state schools, like 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 kids, but we're all division three. So we have like a really highly competitive, like Wisconsin state school college, like circuit. I'd say probably one of the best, or if not the best D3 conference in the nation. Yeah. That and the SUNY schools out in New York are is the D3, I guess you call it powerhouse. It's, it's like, it's not D1 and it's not high school, but it's like the middle ground between there. Yeah. Like we had a bunch of athletes that could have and should have been running D1. The best guys you know. in D3 could have run D1. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of the way it goes. Most of yeah, us I, couldn't. Yeah, I would say that was that was accurate. In fact, we had a number of guys transfer from like, they'd go to Wisconsin for a year, they'd go to Illinois for a year, and then they'd be like, ah, I'm not feeling this vibe, and they'd transfer to the Wisconsin State Schools and run the rest of their career and fly. And we had Matt Gross, who ran 358 in college, Division three on my, you know, he's a teammate of mine. So anyway, some fast guys. But um, yeah, I chose School of Athletics and uh, not academics. In fact, Brack, and this is embarrassing to admit, but I was, guess what my GPA was after my sophomore year of college? Oh, we should play this game. Who had the worst freshman year GPA? Oh, I don't know what it was after my freshman year. I know what it was cumulative after my sophomore year, though. All right, what was it? I had a 2.3 GPA after my sophomore year of college. What was yours? No, I don't know what my sophomore, but my freshman, I was a 1.7. Oh, no. Why? <laughs> uh, we can get into this another way. I, I believe my D1 hype. I thought I was God's gift to that campus. Oh yeah. I didn't need to go to class very often. If I didn't feel like going, I wouldn't. I didn't do homework. I didn't study. I 
watched the 24 had just come out on Netflix. That was a big time in history. And Halo 2 was out. <laughs> you were the uh, you were the epitome of too cool for school. Oh, man. I got the taste of freedom and it did not sit well with me. <laughs> yeah, so 1-7 and then I was probably around 2-2, two, 2-3, two, 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 that sophomore year. You were. I um, Point being, I was just thinking about athletics. I was going to school. I was going to class. I wasn't really studying much. I didn't know how to. Until uh, I realized after my sophomore year, you're going to be very proud of me, Bracken. I ended up 4 owing my last five semesters, and I graduated with like a 3.2. You probably had to to get into the school of whatever business you did. Well, no, I, I went to grad school for ex- exercise physiology and sports psychology. Um, but yeah, so I, uh, I pulled my shit together eventually. But I still chose school off of athletics. And I had actually strung together my first um, – our cross-country team was very accomplished. Uh, I think – this may not mean a lot to you guys, but you take set, your top seven run like your big races and then the rest. We have a 24-man roster, so you've got like, I don't know, 16 guys running smaller races or running like the JV race in college. Um, I mean, all of our guys at our best meets were running 25, 30 or under, like seven of us, which is for an, fast. For an 8K. For an 8K. So, ru- yeah, so roughly five miles, just shy. So I was like our 12th guy as a freshman and then track came around and it was the first time I'd been healthy for a whole year. I like stayed healthy. I didn't get injured. I had no real breaks in my training and my, my fitness popped my freshman year of college. That's when I realized I was actually good. I qualified for division one or division three nationals in the 1500 meters. And I actually got, got the call, man. They took 17 of us for the 1500 meters division three. And I was the 16th guy. So I had qualified, qualified in front of one dude. So I was the 16th ranked freshman going into Nats, but I freaking made it. And I remember everybody, you know, after my 16th ranked overall, not just freshmen overall. Yeah. Of of all division three, 1500 meter runners. Um, what'd you run that year? Uh, 356, nothing crazy. 356, uh, three. Um, but I went to Nats and, it was two heats. There were eight of us in one heat and I think, uh, what was it? Nine in the other. And the first heat went out slow and tactical and the winner ran like four Oh three. And my coach looked at me in the second, second qualifying round and said, just run your race. Now uh, let's give the audience some background. If you haven't been to a nationals, how that works. Yeah. So, so basically at a national meet, uh, there's like the, the first round, let's just call it, where there's multiple heats of the same event, and then they end up taking the top times from the multiple heats that will qualify under the final. first two finishers. Yep. And then the next, however many fastest times qualify. So if you win your heat, you're in automatically. Yep. And then the next fastest times go. So in case you get into a, a weird heat where 10 people run faster than the other heat, they don't punish you for that. Right, right. I think they actually took the top three from each heat and then okay. the rest online. Anyways, first heat went slow and tactical. I was not in that heat. We all saw that in the second heat and we all just put out a pace and everybody from the second heat qualified. Every single person swept the board. We all went in. So suddenly I'm the 16th ranked guy and now they took uh, 10 of us into the finals. And the cool thing about national yeah. D1 and D2 and D3 is that if you're top eight, you are you earn all American status. It's not a voting thing for all, all American and track or cross country. You just finish top whatever. And so if you take 10 to finals to be successful, you only have to beat two people. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. So suddenly here I'm the 16th ranked dude as a freshman. Uh, now I'm in the final with 10 guys. Somehow I squeaked my way into the finals. And I, by the way, I did beat one guy in that trials. 
the day nice. before. So I, I wasn't dead last in my heat. So we went to the finals that next day. Um, and I was smoked. I was didn't have enough mileage under my belt to run hard back to back days. I remember was towing that line in the warm up, being like, "Oh, this is gonna be a long day." And we went out in two hundred one. Okay. And a uh, coach said, "You're gonna hang on to that pack for dear life, and if you die and get lapped at the end, I don't even give a shit. Just set yourself up to succeed, because all that matters is top eight or nothing." Uh, and he was right. And I held on to the back of the pack. Uh, we're one clump of dudes all the way through eight hundred meters. The leader and the winner from the year before got tripped and fell and stepped on and spit out the back. So now there's nine of us left. <laughs> I almost now, now you got to pick out one guy. <laughs> now there's one left. If I can beat one dude, this other dude's 10, 10 meters behind. You can't catch up in a race like that at that pace. And he was the favorite to win. So now there's nine of us left. We, uh, we got about 600 meters to go. Now I stepped on the guy, in fact, when we went over him. Like he just, there he was. And you st- stepped on his like, leg. Um and with about three meters to go before the finish line, I kicked past my own teammate and I crossed the finish line in eighth place by like a, uh, I don't know, four one hundredths of a second. And I took the last All-American spot in the perfect storm and I didn't even run that fast to do it. But I uh, I squeaked out the last All-American spot as a freshman. And uh, that was um, probably one of the best days of my life. That day, going in with no expectations, um, I, I almost feel like I cheated a little bit because of the circumstances. But you got to show up on race day, and I was assured this by my coach. And you got to put in the work. And it's not my fault somebody tripped, and I and I and he wasn't in the race. It wasn't my fault I outkicked my own teammate. Like I earned every bit of that. And so I, so I was an All American as a freshman in college division. Three. That's awesome. And it's a great yeah. reminder that like championship races are not about finding out who the best runner or best athlete is. It's finding out who is the best on that day at, at handling all the different situations. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was probably the most I'd hurt ever in my life up to that point. There's probably a good 800 meters of inside out. I hate my life. I cannot sustain this for another second type pain. And I held on to it for another two minutes and it was probably the longest two minutes. I mean, I don't know if many of you listening have been in that state where you are bankrupt, you are drawing from nothing, and everything in your body is telling you like you can't continue. That was I, I discovered a new level of like a pain threshold that day. In fact, that day changed me as an athlete because I realized what that what I thought were limiters physically and mentally were now completely shattered. Yeah. And yeah. to put it in perspective, you had run three fifty six that year which mm-hmm. is let's call it 4.15 pace for a mile, roughly. Yeah, probably like, I think maybe somewhere around there, probably, yeah. It could be a second faster or so, but let's just say okay. 4.15 for a nice round number. And you, yep. went, you went out hanging on at 2.01 for the first 800, which is 4.02 mile pace. Yeah, so, on tired legs that had raced the day before. Yeah, so you had raced the day before and then gone out at 4.02 mile pace for the first half. Like you are so far above what you should be doing. <laughs> There is not a worse feeling. So people talk about what's the most painful race. And that's so subjective because what's pain. But in terms of what is the most intensely painful for the longest time, I think it's either the mile, the 3K or the 5K. Yeah, And the 5K is a different type of hurt as is the 3K because there's still some bit of like pacing and, and such involved. But the mile has the ability, I think, to hurt the most intensely for the longest period of time where over half your race can be already dead and dying. 
Yeah, I was a mile specialist, so that's all my focus was in track. So you also learn how to hurt better in the event that you're best at. You know what that's I'm true. saying? Point being, though, I, that race hurt more than any race I've ever done. Even still to this day, a mile time trial is going to put me in a new intense level of pain beyond I hate to say it, the intensity of a mile time try or like a mile race is going to hurt more than any point in a Spartan race, even if it's a beast. Any point, like the, it's not going to last as long, but the, the sting is much sharper um, for sure. But uh, yeah, so, so that was it freshman year. And then, um, and then my, my, I qualified again as a sophomore in the 15. I was third ranked going into this nationals. Um, what did you run that year? Uh, 354. And, I got pneumonia two weeks out, so oh. I did not make finals. In fact, I was the guy spit out the back in trials, and uh, it was a bust, unfortunately. So, so I had a disappointing sophomore year there. And then uh, Bracken, I know we don't, we haven't talked a lot about this, but then I never really had a chance to run again. My my college career was was cut short uh, after my sophomore year of college. So, so I had some health issues that prevented me from kind of seeing my potential through. Did that start with pneumonia? Uh, no, 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 not pneumonia. That didn't start with pneumonia. Um, that started with, I, uh, I had moved into a, a house. I finally got off campus housing. Like in Oshkosh, you had to live in the dorms your freshman and sophomore year. Um, my junior year, I finally got off campus living, which is like the life. You get your real freedom. You get to go. And there's this old house called the Pink House. It was built in 1895 or something. It was just off campus. Somebody painted it bright pink and all the cross country and track runners lived in it. Um, and it was cool to live in the Pink House. And so I got my ass to the Pink House, lived in the Pink House. And it was the most disgusting house you've ever lived in. And um, I moved into that house, uh, started my junior year and everything was fine. Everything was whatever. started cross country and, and there I started to notice they started having breathing issues and I couldn't really tell what it was. I'd start going asthmatic on some of my runs. Um, couldn't seem to get my breath. I was. Had you had more. asthma symptoms or diagnosis prior to this? Yeah. Oh yeah. I had, I had, um, I had asthma symptoms. In fact, when I was young, I got pneumonia. Uh, like when I was like seven and I had a collapsed lung, I had to go to the hospital. And then ever since, and I was in the ER because the pneumonia is so bad anyways. So I always had breathing issues after that, but like they were just temperamental, like seasonal or allergies. Sometimes they'd act up. Um, and it all stemmed back from that pneumonia with the collapsed lung situation. But anyway, so my running started not going that well. I couldn't freaking figure it out. Um, as the season progressed, I had gotten worse and worse. Um, did not end up racing my, my fall that year with the team came back out for track somewhat healthy and then my best time I was a 404 in the 1500 the year before I ran 354 10 seconds quicker I didn't make nationals I couldn't I couldn't figure out what was wrong and I'm sure you had big expectations for the year huge and everybody you know teammates are good supporters of mine but they're like man is he a head case now he was so good what's going on and all I knew is I just felt like shit anyways as the year progressed it got worse and worse and worse and to the point, every time I went into the house, I'd have an asthma attack and I couldn't figure it out. I ended up in the ER every other week, like gasping for air. And I went from a high level runner to somebody who couldn't even like catch his breath, which was really bizarre. And so in a month time period, I lost almost 20 pounds. Uh, hair started falling out of my head, my arms, Jeez. all sorts of weird stuff. Uh, I was having major issues. And all I knew is when I was in that house, I didn't feel well. So I had I stopped running. I withdrew from athletics. I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. And I just felt like shit. So I knew that house wasn't doing me any good. So I moved out to a different old shitty campus house 
just knowing that that house definitely made things worse. But I didn't finish out my junior year. I didn't finish out my senior year. I uh, started doctoring to figure out what the heck was going on, um, which was really kind of a crazy time. You lost two years? Oh, yeah. I lost two. I mean, basically, in hindsight, two full years. I tried to make my junior year work, you know, trying to run and figure it out and being frustrated. And, you know, I was one of the more muscly guys. I was 155 pounds at 510, which is the pretty much the biggest fast guy on the team. And now I'm down to 135 pounds. Uh, you should see pictures of me. It's kind of gross. Um, but anyways, so I'll just fast forward. So you guys get an idea what actually happened. So years later, we found this out, uh, this, this house that I lived in, I lived on one end of the house above the stairwell that went to the basement and the basement was an old girls college basement. It was full of standing water. It was that dark, dingy, you know, damp situation. Um, down in this basement was full of black mold all up and down the rafters, all on the walls, on the ceiling, through the floorboards, in the walls, all the way. And my bedroom was right above that. All the vent work came up into my room. And when you came into my bedroom, it was like you'd step on the floor and it'd feel gross, like slimy in the carpet and everything was. And anyways, I just basically sucked in black mold spores for a whole year and it slowly was killing me. And so that's insane. Uh, it was awful, man. I'm telling you, it was the craziest shit happened. Like I would go to like talk and no words would come out of my mouth. I tried to, I would walk into a grocery store and forget how I got there. Like it affect my short-term memory, affect my breathing affected. Like I was so exhausted. I couldn't even go to practice, let alone get to class. So I was like, it turned everything upside down to the point where like I was sleeping 20 hours a day, going to the bathroom was exhausting. Just getting up. I mean, I was 180, but we'd figured out that eventually that it was the house that made me sick. Like there's no other explanation other than like this situation. So, so anyway, so then my career is freaking gone. I barely hung on and I graduated school. I, I got done with school. I graduated still had to drop athletics, drop everything. Um, and I somehow managed to get into grad school and they offered me a running scholarship because I had eligibility. I had eligibility left because I didn't compete. So the cross country, I said, I'm going to try to get my school pay. I just tried to move forward with life. The only thing. And where was this? Where was grad school? uh, UW Milwaukee. And so I'm going to doctors every week. I went to the Mayo Clinic a dozen times, flew to California, New York, Baltimore, Chicago, trying to get help to figure out what was wrong. Eventually we figured out. This was like, this is intense. Oh, my whole life. Yeah. For two years, I didn't work. I didn't went home, live with mom. Um, my, everything was done, man. I was just hanging out for dear life. Yeah, that was 2004 through 2007, I would say. Uh, 2005 through 2007, was I was just hanging on, man. Just trying to get through the day. Yeah. I would I would go for runs still. I remember like the one thing that made me feel normal, though, was running, like workouts. Like I would feel so shitty and so tired and so crappy. But I knew if I could go run, I, I knew like... I wasn't that sick. I would tell myself like, you're okay. Like you can still go run. And so I, I would. And so I ended up still, like I said, I was like, don't let this like run your life. Don't stop living. So I still applied to grad school. I still got in, I accepted the scholarship, my freshman or my, for my first year of grad school. Um, and I went feeling like death warmed over. I went down to Milwaukee. Wasn't sure I should. I uh, went on a D one scholarship to run track cross country and track as a kid. I didn't tell anybody about it. No, my coach didn't know teammates didn't know. I just wanted to go and try. And I got two weeks into practice and I broke down and I was like, I, what am I doing? Like, I, what am I kidding myself? Um, so I had to give up my scholarship. I hung on to school 
for as long as I could. Ended up dropping out, going back, living at home uh, with my mom and just like trying to figure it out. So then we just doctored for like a year. We just doctored, went all over, tried to figure it out. Um, I ended up going back and re-enrolling in Milwaukee uh, a year later. But um, yeah, so that was it. So so through this, I eventually started to get like a little bit better over time, started running a little more, um, ended up having to take my first full-time job because I fell off my mom's insurance. Because when you hit a certain age, you fall off your parents' insurance. So I was mm-hmm. forced to get a job so I could pay for my medical shit. So I got a job uh, as a uniform and textile rental service salesman for, because they took me. Yeah. So, uh, so that's where I actually ended up starting to work after school. Um, slowly started getting better, slowly, not like day to day. Like you don't just move out of a house that makes you sick and get better overnight. You, it, takes, it takes years because mold, as most people aren't aware of, and I wasn't before either, it's like a neurological degenerate. So it it really affects your nervous system. It works a lot like like napalm would in like the wars. It like messes up your system. So so once it starts messing like with you neurologically, it takes a while for that to recover. It can mess with your digestion, your brain function, your energy levels, cardiac. I mean, I was having cardiac dysrhythmia going into all sorts of crazy stuff. It was like one symptom after another. So I took years, but eventually when I started forcing myself to go back to work, I started forcing myself to work out again. And being like, okay, I'm gonna like try to get back into this, and I was feeling slowly better. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's this is bizarre. Yeah, I bet you didn't expect to go in this direction, did you, Bracken? Well, it's no, I didn't, and it's it's not the kind of thing you expect to hear from someone whose end game turned into being very successful athletically. Um, it sounds like a kiss of death. It was. There were moments. I'll tell you what, Bracken, and I don't share this with a lot of people, but since we're doing this, I bet I bet you there were. But you, there were a half dozen nights where I laid in bed and I wasn't sure if I was like going to see the next day. Like that's where I was at for years. Like I felt so sick that I couldn't, and nobody could tell me what was wrong with me. Nobody could tell me, you know, I knew is I felt like hell and, and I was going through every crazy symptom in the book. It was wild. Um, so, but the, the point is, is then I started going down like naturopathic healing routes while seeing traditional medicine doctors uh, I don't know if you know this, but I have a degree in naturopathic medicine. I ended up trying to learn how to get myself better. So I went, uh, I took a degree in naturopathic medicine, learning about homeopathics or biology, holistic nutrition, supplementation. Uh, so I did that three years while I was sick from home, trying to learn that stuff. Um, and through a combo of like just getting out of that house, doing some health things along the way, and then just deciding like, fuck you, I'm going to move forward with life. I slowly started getting like, slowly got better. I don't know if that... Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Not to shortcut the process, but start to finish, like Mm -hmm. first symptoms to I'm, I'm me again. What was the scale of that? I'll never be the same. Oh, never. Yeah. I'm never going to be the same since before that happened. Um, That's why sometimes I'll have up and down performances. Like sometimes even today you'll see, you'll see like a, like I'll have a rough race once in a while. Like sometimes my body just. This like, was the longest buildup to a race excuse I've ever heard. This was <laughs> masterful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's totally my intention. I, I, I led you right into that one. But like, I, like my breathing issues for one. Like sometimes it's just I have a day and like it's just like, like there's got to be some scar tissue in my freaking alveoli and my lungs from this process. That like some days when I'm aggravated, it just it cuts me off. For example, but I would say I went from I lived I moved into that house in 2003. I moved out in 2004. Um, I would say from then until I'm going to say 2008 or nine, 
I would say was totally sick phase where I didn't, I didn't go out. I didn't socialize. I didn't do a whole lot. Um, I would say then I started to really live life in 2008, 2009. I said, I just got to ignore it. And I got to try to get back to being a person. So that's when I started to like sort of train again. I started to really, and through that time, but I don't want to like mislead you. I was still running. I was still doing a little bit of weightlifting, just trying to like go through the motions, even though I didn't feel well at like working out was the one thing that made me feel normal. Um, and then slowly but surely, I started to feel a little better, a little better. And I think I entered my first race in 2010. You lost the better part of a decade. Uh, I lost a good five years. Yeah. I never got to see out my college career, which was the disappointing thing. That's why this Spartan race thing is like my second lease at being a, an athlete, which I, I always felt like I was shorted back in the day. I never found or saw my potential because it, the rug was swept out from under me. And now I, it's like, it's like my second coming. And so I'm going to bleed this thing to death. Let me tell you, because it's, it's, it's given me new purpose and focus. So, so anyways, I ran my first actually race. I did, I think my first race back, in fact, my sister did a warrior dash in 2010 and she said, Hey, there's this warrior dash. And I'm telling you, I'm starting to feel a little better guys. Like I don't feel great. Some days are better than others. Um, but like, I'm getting back to life. I'm like dating again. I'm I have a job. I'm like doing it like from the outside, I'm looking like a normal person again. But uh, anyways, yes, I did a, a warrior dash. Uh, my first race in 2010 with my sister. She just said, come down and do it again. I was running now. I'm running like somewhat regularly. I'm getting back into training with no purpose. And I got crushed. It was at a ski hill. Uh, and I got smoked. It was awful. The popsicles weren't a deal. It's a warrior dash. You give me, you kidding me, but I got smoked. So that was my first race back 2010. So I, I think I probably had gone five years without racing. Um, and then it sort of began. Then I was like, you know what? I want to get back in. And then it sort of started, I would say. Wow. Um, yeah. That couldn't be more different than my college to Spartan transition. <laughs> I competed yeah. as a fifth year senior and ran my first obstacle race nine, less than, um, less than six months later. Yeah, I suppose, huh? Man, we had different routes to get here. Yeah, we did. I think we all have different routes to get here though. You know, I don't think there's one right way to do it. I, um, and but I was the wrong way. That's for sure. Yeah. You know what, though? I'll tell you what, Bragan. I, through all that stuff, um, I think the one thing that I can take from that for sure is I have such like a, a perspective on things now that like when when everything's going your direction, like it's hard to see more than what's in front of your face. Like you're just there. Like, I, you know, I was on top of the world. Everything was going well. I had nothing really holding me back. I'd never gone through like a real trial in my life. Like I was one of the lucky ones. And when you go through something like that, you question like, hey, am I going to like live? Am I going to see tomorrow? I, you lose all your friends, your athletic passion. And then you finally get some of it back. Like the appreciation I have now, there's no fucking way I would have this appreciation if it wasn't for going through what I have. And I know it's easy for me to say now that I'm removed from it. And it is easy for me to say now that I'm removed from it because in the thick of it, it sucked. But um, I don't know if I would change it. I don't know. I don't know if I would change it, man. I really don't. Well, th- what is it about humans that we don't appreciate things until they're gone? And that sounds dramatic, but like you don't every day like think, oh man, my knees are so responsive. And then you tear a meniscus and they're not responsive. And you're like, wow, I cannot wait until I have responsive knees. You don't every day think, I don't. Oh, my lungs are just just so on point today until you don't have lungs anymore. You know, like we mm-hmm. we truly don't we have an embarrassment of riches with how well our bodies work yeah. and you don't get the fact that you're rich until you go broke. It's I have so many clients that I have to like, 
it's like splitting hairs to get them to go out and train or do their workouts for the day. Either my personal training clients in the gym or sometimes athletes I coach, and then they'll have an injury pop up. And suddenly, like, I was like begging them to do their workout. And now that they're injured and they can't, they're begging to do their workouts. It's the same perspective, just in a more elaborate sense. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're so exactly there, right. There, there is some truth to that, that sometimes the best thing for you is that setback. Now, I would say that you were, you had an embarrassment of riches with your setback. Like, you, you didn't need that much. <laughs> no, I'm sure you could appreciate life without that, but you've seen a lower point that a lot of us will see. Yeah, it was some dark years, man. They were, it was dark years. It was my mom quit her job basically to cart me around. She would go into doctor's offices and cry and beg for help. And I would sit there helpless. I mean, we traveled all over the country. Yep, for years. Yeah, my mom basically went bankrupt because we had to spend money on medical bills. Had Each I don't story know, keeps coming back to her. She's just the rock it, of the family. Oh, she was such a, I mean, she, my dad was helpful then too, but my mom was like, you know, and she told me like once, she's like, you don't know how much you care about something until you have a sick kid. You know what I mean? Till your kid, like, till something that you've brought up, like, isn't, is like, isn't doing well. So she, yeah, she basically, I remember midnight drives to the Mayo Clinic. We'd leave at 2 a.m. and, and drive to get weekend testing done. I would, uh, and she would, she'd be like, we have to go. And she'd go and she'd just sit there and just beg doctors to listen. And I knew they'd say, you're the healthiest sick kid we've ever seen. They'd say, all your stats are normal. I went through every, I mean, I went to a psychiatrist. I went through a, a full day psychological evaluation at the Mayo Clinic to make sure it wasn't in my head. I went through uh, the ringer cardiologists, um, infectious disease doctors, internists, GI specialists, um, everybody you could think of in multiple places. Yeah. And she was just with me along that whole thing. So she spent all her whole, all her money on me. We had to, she created a fundraiser for me at her work and we, we had some help that way. And I mean, it was a whole mess of stuff, but um but yeah, we don't need to dwell on that any more than just the point being is that like it was uh, it was an interesting time in life and and it, you you don't I think the only reason I'm probably still here is because I chose to keep pushing forward. Like I never like the one thing was like you have to like keep trying to live. And then eventually you you can you snap out. I snapped snapped had, out of it so to speak. Had it been tempting not to at any point? Oh yeah. To just like throw it in all the time, but I recognized I felt better like uh, fitness like like was the one thing that made me feel normal as I mentioned so I think that's what kept me on the hook um so yeah and so after this time and not to just 180 this conversation but like I was suddenly starting to feel a little bit better around 2008 2009 and then I got a call about this freaking bachelor to do the bachelor thing how, how did how, how did that happen I know it's like a, it's a little bit of a tangent but uh a buddy of mine um Anthony and his wife had watched the bachelor bachelorette I don't watch, I didn't watch those shows uh, at the time. And it says, if you or somebody, you know, would like to date our next bachelorette, you know, submit an application. Well, they submit an application for me without me knowing. So <laughs> I got a call in 2009. Again, I'm like, what was just, their rationale? I mean, they, 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 it's a good buddy of mine. They knew I was starting to get back into fitness. So I was like, and he knew I was sick for a while. I knew I was starting to feel like I just, maybe something, maybe he thought I needed it. I don't know. You know what I mean? I'm not sure. Um, we're good buddies. And again, I'm starting to like live again. I'm starting to, you know, have do normal things and I'm starting to just yeah. be like a normal person. Um, and so anyways, I got a call. I was like, Hey, this is Lane from the bachelor on ABC. And I was like, who, who, who is this again? Anyways. And so I went through the casting process and, um, did not tell them any of my illness story in the casting process. I just, I did wanted to put that in, in the, you know, I wanted to just put that behind me. Uh, and they picked me 
So I was one of the 25 losers that went on to LA to date one woman all of a sudden. So I had like a whirlwind a uh, couple of years because of that too. Uh, let's not brush over that. <laughs> you, you weren't just on the show. You were, you were the one on the show. No, I was one of the 25 guys that was going for one. Yeah, girl. but suddenly there weren't 25 anymore and you kept sticking around. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why I kept sticking around. But yeah, we. so on The Bachelorette, uh, anyways, they cast me. Um, my job at the time, I was, you know, selling shirts and pants. I was a uniform textile rental service guy. Uh, so I was knocking on doors, uh, selling this uniform and textile rental service to uh, to people, getting doors slammed in my face, all that. But the one thing is that I was good at it. And so I could, I could sell somebody water when they already had a lake in front of them. You know, I was just like one of those guys. And so they, the company said, hey, go ahead. You have your job. We're going to pay you while you still go. We just want you to come back and sell shirts and pants for us again. <laughs> so I was like, all right. So they kept paying me and they let me go off to do my thing. They were a very good employer. And so, um, yeah, so I uh, went to the show and it was craziest experience in my life, dude. I never experienced anything like that ever. And I ended up getting dumped after hometown dates. So I brought her home to meet my family. There were four of us left, brought her to Green Bay, Wisconsin. Still have what they call the second most creepy uh, hometown date of all time. Because <laughs> uh, my dad is a taxidermist. Now, out uh, of respect to you, I've never yeah. watched your season. Just like I never finished my brother's mm-hmm. season of the selection. I have a hard time watching people I care about in compromising or emotional situations. So I just haven't uh, ever watched it. I think if you watch it, you're just going to say, oh, that's Kirk. Like, there's Kirk. Okay. Like, being Kirk. Yeah, I don't think you're going to think anything of it. Uh, you're going to have to watch me make out on TV, which is going to be awkward for you. But, I mean, you know. Only just go get jealous. <laughs> just the jealousy factor. <laughs> so, yeah, so I did that. Got dumped after the hometown dates when there were four of us left, um, which was just an opening experience. And that experience, you know, we went, started in LA, then we went to New York, then I went to Reykjavik, Iceland, Istanbul, Turkey, Lisbon, Portugal, then brought her back to meet my family. Um, all of this is being filmed on national TV. Did it ever get normal with the constant buzz of cameras around you every second? You know, I think what, you know, the first couple of days, it, it seemed like the people who could just ignore the cameras lasted. That was part of it, like lasted longer. And I'm going to shoot you straight, man. Alcohol helped. Like, I think alcohol got me through the first week there. I don't think there was a moment in which I didn't have a blood alcohol content of legally drunk that first week while I was out with her because it was like such an intense experience. When I walked out of that limo, I remember that first night, <clears throat> it's this big lead up process and I don't even need to get into it. But there were five of us in the limo and I was the last limo to say hello to this bachelorette. So um, 25 guys, 24 guys have already met her, basically. I was like one of the last. And I was so nervous that, and they have vodka Red Bulls in the limo and there's every, and people are taking shots and they want you to get all buzzed up so you're not lame, you know. And I remember having to pee really bad too. I remember being like, they sent me this limo with no bathroom and I had to meet this girl and I was so nervous that I steamed up the whole side of the window of the limo. So I couldn't even see her out of my window because I was just like perspirating, <laughs> like heavy breathing. So I remember like squeegeeing off the window with my hand to just see her. And here's this like beautiful blonde girl. And, and I look around and there's a guy with a hose hosing off the driveway to make it wet and glisten. And there's probably a hundred people in a half circle and two dozen cameras. There's people in trees with like tree hats on with cameras there's, I mean, you watch people get out of this limo and it looks like this intimate moment where it's just you and her and you don't see the hundred people and the 25 cameras 
and everything. It was probably the most nervous I've ever been in my life, knowing that 10 to 20 million people are going to see you be an idiot on TV. And this is the and, kid who would turn deep red giving a speech in high school. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't even remember. I remember I pretty much blacked out because of the intensity of the situation. And then suddenly I was done talking to her and went into the limo. And I don't even remember what I said until I watched it, to be honest with you. Um, but yes, anyways, that experience as a whole, we don't need to dive into too deep there, I think, as far as the intricacies. But um, I did a couple of shows after that. I did something called Bachelor Pad, which they invited me back for a year later. And then a show, Bachelor in Paradise in 2015, all because of one stupid friend with one stupid nomination that I took said yes to a, a situation. Did you ever get to read his his uh, submitted application for you? They read it to me only once uh, when they gave me that initial phone call. And it was two... He's a writer. He's a journalist. Okay. He, he's, uh, he does a lot of music reviews and concerts. Anyways, so he's very well written. He's, so it was the most perfect three sentences. It was the shortest little blip. And it was a picture of me shirtless on the beach, uh, you know, looking fit in his eyes. And it just, I don't remember. It just was like a very nice brief summary of like, I think he just made shit up about like a desirable human. Like he just knew what they probably wanted to hear and wrote it. And it was, you know, it was half truths, but it was short. Yeah. The casting process in itself though is arduous. It was a nine month casting process. I flew out, you see psychologists, you see lawyers, you go through a in-person like roll through anyways. It's a, they get tens of thousands of applicants and then they narrow it down to 25. So it's kind of actually a long process, but um Anyways, yeah, so then I had that distraction after I was starting to get healthy. So then that was all whirlwind stuff. But I stepped, kept working out through all of that. So the Black Death period, it took you five years to get normal. How long did it take from the moment you stepped like into the first meeting there to the moment your life got back to some semblance of normalcy? Because you were like paid to come to clubs, mobbed up. Mike Ferguson has a story that he did, he realized who you were like in the world when he went to Summerfest with you for the first time and you guys couldn't walk places because you were mobbed and surrounded. Like when did life get normal again? Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what, I couldn't go anywhere. I remember the first time after the first episode had aired and I was living in Madison, Wisconsin, and I went out to a bar, um, with buddies. So the episode aired on a Monday and I only had maybe two minutes of airtime in that first episode. I went out to the bar and I was like an A-list celebrity. It was like hundreds of people. I bet you I took 300 pictures that night. I'd be like, I have to go to the bathroom. So we're out drinking. And it would take me an hour to get to the bathroom and back because I was stopped every two seconds. Um, I couldn't go to the grocery store without getting recognized. I couldn't do anything to the point where um, at one point, at one event, I got tackled by a mob of Canadian women in Edmonton, Canada. It's the most polite uh, tackling where, you've ever had. <laughs> yeah, I was like, it was very sexual tackling. Um, it was, we had bodyguards. Oh, I used to fly around and go. One weekend would be Chicago, and I'd go do a two-night nightclub stint. They'd pay me, basically, to show up at these clubs, and I would be like, they, people would pay a cover to get in, and I would be the party facilitator and people would stand in line to take pictures with me and hang out. And, and so I did that for months afterwards. I've been everywhere. All Were you comfortable the- with that role? I became comfortable with that role. You don't, you know, you just adapt, man. Like I, having eyes on me like that was so bizarre. Like, sure. I mean, just, I'll just go unfiltered. Like I did okay with meeting women at the time and dating and, and, and everything. But I was like a normal guy that got rejected, like at times, like everybody else and things. And then suddenly like people are throwing themselves at you and suddenly you feel special and people are giving you this attention. And it's usually for the wrong reason anyways. And it was like a weird 
it was a weird time. I, I got had a lot of distractions because of that lifestyle. I saw another side of the world. Like you end up in a club at 4 a.m. where people are doing drugs and you don't want to be seen doing. Like I've had some weird things checked off my list because of this experience, like for sure. And that I knew better than, of course, um, nothing I was interested in. But um, it was you you just like adjust. I don't know. You just like adapt. You was just, that a seductive like, lifestyle for you or one that you knew like? I'm okay when things stop being like this. It was seductive for about six months. Yeah. Yeah. Until I woke up. So I was trying to travel on the weekends to do these paid events, which paid good money. It was fun. I got to see another friend or two from the show because I made friends through this. So we'd travel to someplace, do this event, have a blast. And then I'd come home and have to train clients at 6 a.m. on Monday morning. Because I started started my personal training business in there too, which is a whole other story. But um, so it was seductive until I was like, I'm miserable. What am I doing? And all of it was meaningless. Going to random clubs and, you know, meeting women and drinking too much and doing all that and waking up in different places every weekend. I was like, I just want to go home and be my normal self again. It wore out really fast. Did they I, let you do that as quickly as you were ready to do that? I could have done that whenever I wanted to. I'm but talking about like the, the publicity, the, the ability to be normal again. Did that take a while until you were allowed to? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, I, I knew if I chose to go do something social, I was single after that show. Cause obviously I get dumped on national TV and everybody feels bad for the guy that got dumped, you know? Um, so if I went out to like socialize, if I went out to the bars, if I went out somewhere, like it was going to be the same thing, a mob of people around me trying to talk to me, buying me drinks, taking photos, you know, asking for after parties, like all those things, like that was the life I actually lived. Uh, and so if I didn't want to deal with it, I just didn't have to go out. Like I just had to not go out and I slowed down. I don't go out at all anymore, but there was a, you know, it's, it's easy to get caught up in that when you didn't get that much attention as a man, like from women beforehand. And then suddenly like you're getting a bunch of it like that and having fun times with your buddies. Like, and now men remember I had to hold back for years cause I wasn't feeling well. Suddenly mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm fucking alive. Like I'm living my life. Like it felt good. So I did that for, I did that for six months. About six months stint after the Bachelorette, maybe about a six month stint after Bachelor pad, and then I was pretty I was pretty burnt out. Now I just don't want attention on me. I want to live my life in the shadows as much as I can and just like be simple. I want like it made me want to live the simple life. Like and that's what I'm doing now, and that's what I enjoy, I would say. You swung as far left and as far right as almost as attainable by uh, by a person in this world. Yeah, I remember this is gonna sound kind of bizarre, but I remember when I was really sick. I was living with my mom. I dropped out of grad school and I couldn't sleep at night sometimes because I was feeling like shit. And I would go drive to downtown Green Bay at like 1 a.m. And I would just watch the kids go in and out of the bars because I wanted to like be social, but I didn't feel good enough to be social. I did this a lot, which is really creepy and weird in hindsight, but that's where I was at. And then when this all came full circle, because I was just so withdrawn, I couldn't go socialize. And then after the bachelor experience and being out in like, public and having that sort of attention i was like i was i mean i was sick at the time and looking out at people having fun is what i thought at the bars when i was sick and then after i'd worn all that out six months into it i was like eh. looking at those kids longing to go to the bars and have fun like is kind of overrated after i had then finally got it out of my system do you know what i mean yeah it was like it all came back around so to speak but um yeah, so that so that whole bachelor stint was uh, it was actually a really good way, man. I'll tell you what, the biggest thing the bachelor did for me it it taught me to like just move on with life. I like, quit being the sick kid, start living and having experiences, and it almost like shook me out of it. 
like, hey, you're alive, you're moving forward with life, you're having new experiences. Like it was the honestly, it was like a godsend. It was like, like a reward have, for your years of dragging yourself through the ringer. Yeah, and it, it was forced. It forced me to. It forced me to live again. Like it forced me to just be like, "Yep, you're back." Like go. That's in the past. Now you're just looking for. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. That's. It's crazy. It's. I mean, it's. There are things you've gone through that people just don't, and mm-hmm. they. It was like they were complementing pieces to to your puzzle. That one without the other doesn't. You can't balance that equation. Like your your equation was almost balanced back to all right. Now I know what I want. I now have the skills socially and financially to do it. And now yeah. I can move forward. And most people, not I shouldn't say most, many people you see who get this taste of whatever that, you know, quote unquote, better life is, fail to capitalize on it. They either become mm-hmm. addicted to that pull of it and their entire life is now spent seeking that again and trying to become irrelevant again or trying to get the attention again, or they move on, but they haven't used it as the springboard towards what's next. And you seem to have craved normalcy afterwards, but also found a way to take your notoriety and your, you know, small windfall from it and channel it into long-term stability and success. Like you started personal training business off of that. And yep. you, rather than seeking the TMZ route, you used your name to to become a, a success. And that's a, that has to stem back to all those years back with, with your upbringing to be able to capitalize on that moment. Yeah. It's sad, actually. A lot of a lot of my buddies that I did those shows with are still, I mean, every conversation it has to come up, you know, like the bachelor has to be snuck into everything and it's still like the framework of who they are. And, you know, it was six weeks, seven weeks of my life in 2010. You know, that doesn't, that's not worth talking about every day of your life. Like a lot of these people are still stuck in that, like that's going to be the best thing they've ever done with their life. And it's so sad because these people think it's something and it yes it was a blessing and a life experience for me but they're still stuck there it's bizarre i mean half the people that i know are still stuck there and then half have chosen to move on and and live like a normal life um that's so it's very it's very true um i i actually with that you know shirts and pants job that was very glorious that i had i uh my ceo of the company i had worked for at the time saw me they heard oh a kid that's working for me is on the bachelorette and so the CEO, we're a billion dollar company. We had like 12,000 employees. CEO decided to start watching The Bachelorette. And, uh, he, he called me up after the show and he said, Kirk, he said, you don't know a lot about the company. You haven't been here very long, but I like you. He goes, <laughs> he goes, can I know he's like, I know you're getting sick of this company or your role. He said, can I fly you out? Can I fly out and talk to you and, uh, and see if you're interested in a new position with the company? And so he flew out. He knew I was getting antsy to leave that job. I basically had come back from this bachelor experience and then I was cold calling auto garages and people were telling me to fuck off. Like I was like, I had this life, like I had this crazy life around the world and now I'm getting door slammed in my face again, being this outside salesman. Anyways, he promoted me to uh, like a, basically like a regional manager for our company in Minnesota. So that moved me to Minneapolis. Is this when you bought the Madone? This is when I bought the Trek Madone we had talked about. Yes. I thought I was big time. Big time. Yeah. So I got this new salary and moved here. The bachelorette was airing and I started the job. And I'll tell you what, Bracken, shirts and pants didn't seem so damn important after you do the bachelorette and see the world. They just didn't seem to matter anymore. So so I uh, I started, um, I had to go on this live talk show on ABC here uh, called Twin Cities Live. They wanted me to just talk about the experience and so I went on their live talk show and they want to talk about The Bachelor. And they said, what are you doing now? What made you move to the cities? 
And I was three weeks into that job. I moved all the way to Minneapolis for it. And I had quit on that Friday. I called in and said, I can't do it. I'm so sorry. Thank you for everything. I'm out. So the next day I had to go on this live talk show and they said, what are you doing? What are you doing here? And I said, I have a personal training business uh, <laughs> and you can reach me at uh, kirk.dewint at gmail.com. I ran home, created the email address. And I, <laughs> you didn't uh, have the email address. <laughs> I, I had nothing. I made it up on the spot and I ran home and I created the email address and I had five, five inquiries in my inbox by the next day. Uh, that next week I started sneaking people into my apartment complex. I fobbed them in because it was like a high-end apartment complex. I started, I uh, made a website and a caribou coffee by myself over the weekend with a buddy who knew some things about that. And thus it began. And so I started sneaking people into my small studio apartment complex gym. Uh, and then about six months later, management came to me and said, are you running a small business out of our apartment? And I said, yep. And they said, you got to get the fuck out. And so I got kicked out of my apartment complex and I, was, <laughs> and I was forced to grow that way. So I found a gym to partner with and then I moved on and that's where that all started. Had that, all was that a pre-planned statement you made on that morning show? I had thought about after I quit my job, I had thought about um, what I want to do with my life. I was like, I know I can use this notoriety to do something that I actually care about. And fitness was becoming very important to me again. I've been practicing it my whole life. Um, and so I, uh, I had an idea. That was my intent was to, was to try to do some sort of training. I always got it. I was always a leader that way. I knew it, it felt right. Um, and while I was in grad school, sick, I was trying to personal train part-time to make some money. And so I had done all that. I'd been in school for it. Um, so I had an idea. And then when they, I knew that, I figured they were going to ask me. So I didn't know how to put it. And it just kind of came out the way it did. How different honest. would things be right now had you not blurted that out? I'd still be doing what I'm doing. Yeah. I just don't know if it would have gotten the jump start it had. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So so that's where that spawned. And and it was a hustle. I, I had to get some side jobs as I was building that business uh, for the first two years. I started teaching on Orange Theory Fitness to make ends meet. Um, I was doing some other work, trying to figure it out. And then I got eventually busy enough to make a living doing it. And then it sort of has grown over the last 10 years into what it what it has, but it's still, you know, still pretty simple setup, but yeah, it began from that, uh, that move to Minneapolis and that one, that live talk show. Yeah. That's bizarre. Did, have, have you ever talked to them? Like, I assume you had more contact with that studio or those people afterwards. Did you, did you ever, uh, let them know, like that was totally off the cuff or, uh, you know, I co-hosted that show then a couple of times. I was oh, the actual cool. host. Yeah. I was the co-host on that show a couple of times. I was a guest for them another dozen times. Um, I don't know if I actually ever had that conversation with them. You just spoke it into of, existence. And because of that, then I went on and I was, God, there's so many things we could touch on. I was the host of the CW network here in town for two years. I was Fox nine's fitness expert, right? In morning fitness segments here in town for a while. Um, I, it led me into a lot of things. It all was like a lead up into certain things. But the great thing about that bracket is like, I took my lumps early. I, you know, I was in the mud for a long time with figuring out what the hell I was doing, but um, ultimately it all led me to where I'm at now. Like, and I think something we talked about with you on your podcast is when we interviewed you last week is like, people look at lives. Like you look at successful athletes in our sport, like a, let's say like an Atkins or a Albin or a Hobie, or it doesn't even matter. And everybody thinks that it just happens for them. Everybody thinks that they just, 
like they're just an amazing athlete and everything like nobody, everybody sees people's fucking highlight reels on Instagram. They don't see what's really going on. And the perspective is, is I had to go through all that to get where I am today. And every stepping stone led to the other. And I met it all halfway with hard work. And here we are just like, here you are like, you got to take your lumps. You got to, you got to still like earn your place. And when the sign tells you to go one direction, sometimes you listen to it, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how else you take it. That's it. You, you make the move when it's supposed to, and you just decide you're not going to stop. <laughs> That's really it. Like success sometimes is just being stubborn that all signs point to I'm done, but we're going to try for another day. Yeah. You just got to stay, you just got to stay hungry. And that's exactly what it was at one point in time, Bracken. It was like, I can't worry about what I'm doing next week or next month. Like I just have to get through today. Like that's how, and I think it framed my mind a little differently. It's actually made me very productive because most people like, for example, with my clients who are trying to lose weight, they get, they get lost in the process, like overwhelmed. Like I have to lose a hundred pounds. It's so daunting. How the hell am I going to do that? Like, and they get overwhelmed and then they just give up where really they need to be thinking about what can I do today? What can I do right now? What can I, what do I eat for lunch? What do I eat for dinner? When do I schedule my workout? And it's just a sum of all parts that leads you to like a big end result. And my, my process may sure it looks different than other people's like what I've had to go through, but, and I'm sure in 10 years, I'll look back on today and this will have led me to the next thing too. But um, you're, it's exactly right. You just got to keep moving forward and you got to look at Think, take things one day at a time. So the bachelorette and all of this really just prepped you for Spartan Race. It just <laughs> like, prepped you for the running public. That's it. It was the cum- the, This podcast is the in Spartan Race with the culmination of all your years of grinding. <laughs> it was the epitome of my career, yeah. But like seriously, you got to OCR then with a unique skill set. You had college 1500 meter speed with some expanding range you had got into strength and conditioning afterwards you had those two components added to a naturally athletic childhood and skill set and you found spartan race yes i did what yes i did did it speak to you immediately did you know like the way most of us knew like you did one and you thought oh this this right here might be my venue uh the ironic thing about the bachelor stuff just to tie this together is because I knew I was going on TV, I started hitting the weights hard and I put on a lot of power and a lot of strength because I knew I had to go on TV shirtless, to be honest. I mean, at my lowest, I was 135 pounds when I was in the depths of my, being sick. And I went on the bachelor at 175 pounds, you know, yeah. I gained 40 pounds and it was all lean weight. Um, but that strength kind of, then I started, um, that was all because so I could look good on TV, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, it is what it is. And then, and then I started to miss running and put it all together, but I, you know, I saw, I was at home, the Spartan thing for me began, I was doing some five K's. I started to get interested. I was racing five K's training, doing interval work every week. This was after the bachelor time frame. I was running mid 16s, low 16s. Uh, I think I ran 16, 11, like three or three fricking five K's in a row. I'd pick like one a month and just go do it. Yeah. Um, running maybe 20, 30 miles a week. Anyways, I was at home over Christmas in 2015 and they were airing the Spartan race world champs on NBC. And I was really starting to like running. I was really starting to feel like, Hey, maybe I want to like really give this another go. And I saw Robert Killian kick that bell in his yellow, like triathlon shirt Mm -hmm. at Spartan race world champs. And I remember ignoring my family basically for that whole hour. It was on in the background while our family had our gathering for Christmas. I think it was Christmas Eve, maybe. It aired anyways, and I was just enthralled, and I was uh, I never knew that sport existed. So that was actually the catalyst for me, is watching 
I wanted that moment that Robert Killian had. I remember seeing them carry the buckets and the strength stuff and thinking that, wow, I've been training for this. You know, you hear this a lot from athletes. Like I've been training for this and didn't even know it. And right. I had that exact cliche moment. So that's where, so that's where I was exposed to Spartan for the first time was coincidentally, if NBC went to Ben on that day on at Christmas in the background, I don't, I don't know if I would have run my first race. It was that simple. That's crazy. Those little, little moments that did or didn't happen determine our path sometimes. Yeah. So I signed up, uh, I signed up for my first race in Chicago that year, uh, 2016. Um, I think it was in June, mm-hmm. 2016. I ran my first race, started training, building up from, for, for that. Uh, and then, you know, the rest is history. I got DQ'd from that race. Yes, you did. Uh, yeah, you made fun of me for uh, for failing my over under through. You you skipped the the Atlas Stone. Yeah, I just thought the Atlas carry was a stupid obstacle. I just blew right by that thing. I suppose if you've never been in a race before and you were leading, right? No, or no, you were no. behind and couldn't see the leader. I was Robert Killian was in that race. Robert Brian Gwiski, oh, that's and right. Mike, Ferg- Mike Ferguson. Um, in fact, I ran next to Robert Killian for like a mile and a half, and I he was the reason I was there to start with because I'd seen him on TV. It was really surreal experience. Um, but no, we were in the swamps of Chicago. If any of you run the Chicago venue, it's really thick back in there at times. And I popped out where the Atlas stone was in the middle of the swamp. There's like a dry land and Mike Ferguson had just got done and started running. So all I saw was Mike Ferguson running into the swamp. I didn't see him do the Atlas carrier, the burpees. I just had seen him right after he completed it. Right. And so I just saw Mike Ferguson in front of me running and I thought, Oh shit, I made up some time on him in the swamp and just kept my eyes on him. No volunteers stopped me whatever. So I ended up getting DQ'd, which sucked. Yeah. I remember being devastated driving all the way down to Chicago for a race uh, and getting DQ'd. But yeah, that was my first experience. So I was at that race and I, I saw the, you I, were saw at the race? I was, yeah, I was at that race. Huh? I saw the potential there. And, um, Oh yeah. And, Cause you were coaching those guys. You were coaching Mike. Right. And Garrett Toll and, and some other. And this guys. is when I had had my first stint of injury and whatnot. And so I wasn't racing, but uh, did that. Um, and I actually stood on the podium that day as Robert Killian. He oh, that's a- right. I have, a, I have a photo of Mike Ferguson up there and you were Robert. Yeah. Yep. So I saw what was to come and, and I would say that your career has been very successful without ever hitting your ceiling. I feel like you've not yet had your races where you did the things that you're still going to do. Much as you talked about, you think like, I'm going to get back to what I was and I'm going to be on the podium. I feel like you're going to get to what you still are going to be. And I, I, I don't know how you feel about that, but I don't know if that's an insult or, or not. I don't intend it to be. I just feel like you have still some things in the sport that um, like you haven't scratched that that your final level of performance in the sport. You've had a couple top five finishes in U.S. National Series races. He just took 11th at the world championships at altitude mm-hmm. with a breathing problem. Like you've done some very good things, but I don't know if you would claim that you have your signature moment yet. And I believe that that, that that's plural. There are moments mm-hmm. still to come that are your signature moments. Uh, you know, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. And I think the, the reason I, I agree with you a hundred percent is because I'm still hungry. I, I feel like I had some pinnacle moments back in college before I had not, you know, gotten sick. And, and because I, I had some years taken away from me, I like super, super motivated right now to do well. And, you know, the longest streak I'd put together Brack and staying injury free was, 
the 2018 U.S. National Series, and I was fourth in Seattle, sixth in Big Bear, fifth in Chicago, um, and then I got injured and didn't get to run West Virginia or Tahoe that year. Um, I was on the cusp of podiums. I've taken two fourths in National Series races. I haven't podiumed yet. And I know my performances can be up and down some days. Um, and, and that's, I think, the card I'm drawn. It's it's just sometimes my body can be a little funky. But what I do know is then after that season, I got hurt. And I've now strung together some training. And and, and this season, honestly, would be the season I, I feel confident and poised to go out and really hammer. I'm hoping that hoping that we see it. But I'm, I'm confident I can run with anybody in this sport, at least on the flats, not at elevation. I think a lot of people don't believe that, and that actually excites me even more. I, I, I just need, I need a couple more chances. I've gotten a lot smarter dealing with my current injuries. I have a great rehab program going to keep myself injury-free. I'm now realizing that holding myself back and training a little bit is actually the winning formula instead of trying to be a hero and do what I think. I don't need to do 100% of my capacity. I need to stick at 70% of it all the time. And if I do that, the pieces are going to fall right into place. And so I just, uh, I need the chance to go race, Bracken. And I yeah, need the Yeah, that's where I'm at right now. And, yep. and, and you're going to get that chance. You have a, you yep. have years left before you age out. You know, you have, yep. you have the ability to string more training together. You know, this could become your longest uninterrupted training block that you've ever had in your adult <laughs> life. You know, that's it's true. These pieces I see aligning. I see that if Abu Dhabi happens, that you're among the favorites. I think that these kind of things are on the on the horizon. But I, I guess I, I had questions coming into this about, are you still hungry or do you still have excitement for it? But the Black Plague story kind of answered all these questions for me as to why you're still feeling so excited and confident and motivated. You, you, you've had a little bit of a a bigger issue pop up than stress fractures or quarantine. And that really yeah. frames, it frames, I think in all of our minds now, why a little bit more, why you tick the way you tick. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you what injuries as frustrating as they are, don't seem like a big deal compared to uh, real health struggles. You know what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm fine taking lumps now when I have to, because like, that's just a small speed bump and I've experienced much worse. And so I think you're right. It's, it's, I, it is, I have my frustrating moments because I know it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. You know, I think I get looked over uh, constantly because I haven't earned the right not to. And, and I've been on the precipice, but I've never stood on a, a, a national series podium and I've never done it more than once, obviously, which is when you really start getting noticed for, for your efforts. So um, I don't think I can quit Bracken until that happens. I don't unless, think there's other, unless there's some other glaring sign that tells me to do so. So that is, that is my full intention right now. And yeah, I'm 36. I'll be 37 in two weeks. But uh, if you look at other athletes, history shows that it's not too late. So, I'll so say, that's what's going to happen. I will say this, and this is kind of based off that, kind of based off all of this. I've, I've had a, a decent amount of people. Um, I shouldn't say there's droves of them. We, we get a ton of support for our coaching and for our podcast from our listeners. But I've had a decent amount of people like – without trying to be offensive, say things like, you know what, you guys are not the best in the world at what you do, but you're very informative and authoritative when you talk about it. Like, do I take this with a grain of salt because you're not a world champion? Or like, there are better athletes out there who offer coaching. Why Why is your, co- why is your coaching something I should consider over someone else's? And yeah. 
and I, I'll just speak to yours. Like, I'm sure you got okay. those questions too. Like you, your story is the reason why you can speak with authority. People who whirl out of bed and are successful don't necessarily have to always think about and psychoanalyze why they're successful. Mm-hmm. People who haven't, who haven't struggled to make top four or haven't struggled to come back from an injury or who haven't ground for 10 years trying to attain something, haven't explored every possible facet of why they are the way they are and why each style of training does or doesn't work. People who are just naturally dominant haven't experimented with seven different diets and 10 different styles of mileage and volume and non-impact mm-hmm. cardio and all these things. Like These are the reasons people should trust your coaching and trust the things you state in a podcast because you've had to find every angle in order to get where you are. Not yep. because your ceiling says you should listen to me. It's because what I did to get my floor up this high. Yeah, there's nothing. I couldn't agree with that more. You look at top level, like athletes who have been the prodigy since day one uh, in their sport. How many of them have gone on to become great coaches? I'm pretty sure like zero. Or if they have, I mean, it's not, it's it's really in not just talking endurance training or OCR. It's, it goes across all, I mean, look at, NFL coaches, how many of them were great players in their day? Maybe they were good or maybe they struggled or they, they, they were people who had to find a way. Not saying that we're never going to be the, you know, maybe could be the epitome of this sport. I sure as hell hope to. However, uh, the ones who it comes easy to and they don't have to rework the inner workings of training, they don't have to try to experiment constantly with what they're doing. They don't learn as much and then they can't project that and facilitate others to do the same. I agree with you 100%. Yeah, I got a, I got a message the other day. It said, loved your, your non-impact training, you know, training through injury, that kind of stuff episode, but you and Kirk are injured a lot. I thought like, yeah, yeah, that's true. So you Mm -hmm. could choose like, don't listen to us because we've had injuries. Or you could say, does anyone know more about rehab than these guys? You know, (laughs) and and that's up to people to decide. But I think it's worth noting that like, you are the culmination of the experiences you've been through. And the more bad things that have happened in your life, the more skill sets you bring to the table if you've gotten through all those. And I see now this interview did not go the way I thought it would because we didn't prep this. We didn't plan what you were going to say, but I have a greater appreciation for the things you're going to accomplish in the sport, knowing the things you've gone through. Well, thanks Bracken. Yeah. You, uh, I don't think, I, I don't think we've ever even talked about my, my past that way. I don't, I actually don't bring it up a whole lot because, um, I don't want, I guess I'm a little, I'm a little screwed now because we've got listeners who are going to hear this of course, but um, I don't like people to, I don't like people to look at me that way. A lot of, some of my close friends now, Bracken, if I'm being honest, I don't know why I feel so unfiltered today, but um, they don't even know. They don't even know my history that way because um, I just like to worry about now and and moving forward with things. But you're right. We're the sum of all of our experiences. That's why when people are doing weird shit or crazy stuff or things I don't understand, or people are doing things with their lives, like I don't judge anymore. I say, I don't know what lens you've looked through for years. Like you got to, I just, you do what you think feels right. Yeah, that's, but you're right. That's exactly right. The perspective uh, I have now, and you have now too, based on your upbringing and banging your head against the wall with so many other sports along the way, it's, uh, it gives you perspective you can share with others. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes a good coach. So, so the, the, this seems like a natural time for you to, to get out there, the people who are, have supported you, the people who are currently have in the past, like who, who do you have on your list of, of people that are, are the reason you're able to do what you do right now? Yeah. Uh, right now. Well, I think we should go back in my family for years. Uh, especially when I was, you know, kind of down and out, they 
God, they were, they did so much for me. My mom, especially my dad was a big supporter. My sister still to this day calls the check in, knows how things are going. Like we and you will have a race talk about like, Oh, what went well, what did execute? And my sister and I'll have a race talk and be like, how was your breathing today? How did your body actually feel? Like she knows that angle. So I have that support system, which has been huge. My girlfriend, Jess, uh, you know, she tolerates, uh, my, uh, I don't know. Sometimes I, I get this crazy type a, uh, I don't know, life going. And she, uh, she puts up with it. And I have some days I don't feel great still. And she, uh, she's always there for me. She's been a huge supporter. Um, as far as, uh, all this, you know, as silly as it sounds, a lot of people don't think Spartan, but Spartan's given me a way to go race without, you know, uh, give me something renewed to like focus on. Like if it wasn't for Spartan, I don't know what would excite me. So like, even the fact that the sport exists, like that's great. I get to race for free. I mean, I can't complain, even though I'm not making millions of bucks, you know, uh, from that. And then, uh, if we're just talking people outside of sponsors, dude, having you to sit here and, you know, I think this has been a good thing for, for me and for you just to have this, uh, to focus on. And then my sponsors, um, VJ shoes has been fantastic. Uh, Matt Gorski over there is, uh, genuine dude who uh, has been supporting you know you know you know matt and he supports us pretty well mm-hmm. um matt mosman and Endurelite, uh they take great care of me never ask questions send me what i need um their stuff is awesome uh and then uh partnered with gone rogue this year and a shock uh energy i do sip on energy drinks once in a while don't uh, hold that against me um so yeah so so those guys um still wearing mud gear products they've been they've been great it's been really fun over the last few years to like build a team of like supporters to say oh i can be like a semi-professional athlete uh in my mid-30s has been uh has been pretty sweet um so i think all that together has been really nice man they've uh they've been good supporters if you haven't checked out any of those companies and i know some people bag on like gone rogues like product for example i love them i'm one of those people who just like love them. I have a bag every day. I don't know. Just, uh, I guess it hits me right. So, so those guys have been supporting me. Um, super thankful for that. Yeah. We're in a strange spot where we have, we're not professional athletes in like the, the sense of multimillionaire famous around the world, but we have a pretty cool support system in this sport that allows you to do what you love. And at the end of the day, like that's what matters. Are you allowed to pursue the things you love? And you and I are both lucky enough to be able to do that. Oh yeah. I tell you, I would, if it were just off of race winnings, I am at a net loss in my career as far as expenses versus income. It's because of a few sponsors that allow me to maybe break even or maybe make a small amount of money pursuing a passion. That's really what it is. So I think I know the answer to this, but my final thing I'm going to put before you is let's say the bubble bursts. Spartan doesn't recover from quarantine. It goes away and OCR is no longer a thing. Where does your next outlet Laya, where's your passion go? What are you doing for competitiveness mm-hmm. if Spartan's gone? Yeah, well, um, I don't think you become a tenured personal trainer uh, and stick with it as a career unless you don't actually get excited about other people's successes. Uh, you don't coach people with vigor unless you genuinely get excited about their successes. And and I understand that one day I'm going to live vicariously, exclusively through my athletes and through my clients. Um, I'm also really, uh, I'm business and career minded in the sense that I understand this isn't going to last forever. And this phase will lead me into the next. And I believe my next phase is solely coaching and putting even more focus on other people. Right now I'm expending a good bit of energy on myself and my own training and athletics. 
and a good bit of energy on others, but I will be able to shift that focus into full-time, you know, I'll still pursue this as a hobby eventually when the signs tell me that, Hey, maybe, maybe you're not top end anymore, but it's coaching and it's still, you know, I've had my personal training business now for 10 years. And so it's going to be more focused on that is exactly what it's going to be. Yeah. That's, that's as altruistic as you can get. I thought you were going to simply say fishing, but, oh. <laughs> but, well, but yeah, don't. feel free to be, be a better person. I, well, that's, that's a whole, yeah, it, honestly. And that's funny you say that is I got a couple of buddies who, so I have this big passion, passion for bass fishing and I go do bass fishing tournaments. I did before Spartan, I fished bass fishing tournament leagues with my free time every weekend. I was out bass fishing. Like you pay money, you go weigh your fish at the end of the day, you get trophies. It's like this weird it's just very exciting. Anyways, when Spartan's all done, whenever that is, I will enter a bass fishing league again, and that will be another way in which I spend my time. So you aren't wrong. It's you aren't right. wrong. I, yeah. Oh yeah. I, I was I, I was thinking your pursuit of pleasure, but you're, you're all about the people. So I oh, should have known, Kirk. Oh yeah, you should have known. I think I think that you know you can get those race jitters, like the you can't sleep the night before a race, or like you know um, that excitement. Yeah. I still there's two things that give that to me in life. Three things. It's, it's racing, Spartan racing, the night of a bass fishing tournament. I'm like a kid on Christmas Eve and once in a while to go deer hunting. There's only three things in my life that get me that excited. And if one goes away, I still have two more. So I think we'll be all right. I've always thought that the day something doesn't give me that anymore is the day that I no longer need to pursue it. Like the what gives day, you that? What did you say? What gives you that feeling? Oh, racing, racing, competition for sure. It doesn't even matter what. Like when I play men's league basketball, like I'm like a little jittery. Like the day before, I can't wait for it to get there. And that's just like nothing on the line, basketball leagues. And then like drive into there, I like my hands are a little bit like clammy. And like I get up for this stuff, like competition in general. Like there are are several things that when they don't do it for me anymore, that's time to move on. But as long as, as long as I get the pre-race jitters, I'm a racer. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. If if you get, people complain about pre-race nerves, I get so nervous and it's so miserable how lucky are you to feel that way? How lucky are you to have something you give a shit about that much that you still get nervous in your adult life? Like those experiences become fewer and further between like the things that really make you nervous, the things that get your heart racing, the thing that gets the adrenaline going, like anything you do in your life that makes you nervous, keep doing it. Excited or nervous. Yeah. Yeah. I I think about racing. Like I think about a relationship, like as a guy, and I'm sure it happens to girls too, but like when your hands are sweaty, your pits are sweaty, and you're shaking, like you're ready to make a move and kiss this girl, but oh, I'm so nervous. You think, man, <laughs> just get yourself under control. I can't wait till this goes away. And then you see people that 30 years later in a relationship can't even work up like the energy to give each other a goodbye kiss or something. Like you <laughs> yeah. miss those days when you were nervous to be passionate about that person. That's how racing is too. People, oh, I wish I didn't have the pre-race poops or I wish I didn't have anxiety. Yeah, well, in 15 years when you don't care anymore and you stop competing, you're going to wish you had pre-race anxiety. So love mm-hmm. it while you have it. Did couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Anything else you need to get across, people you want to shout out? Um, I think I, I think I, I think I did that, Bracken. I, uh, I, pre, I took this kind of in a, a little bit of a left field direction here, but I appreciate everybody listening and being patient with my story. I think... Uh, I think we're ready to have some guests on next week. What do you think? I think so too. And this was this was a perfect time, I think, to do this because everything we say from here on forward is now framed by what people know about our past. And yeah. maybe we should have led with this, but <laughs> I think that that it will add some depth to everything we do moving forward because there is some framework for why we are the people we are. Yeah. 
And I, I hope they took something out of this. This was fun for me last week, and it was fun for me this week, and I hope it was fun for the audience as well. Yeah, guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for being a great interviewer, Bracken. Not a problem, Kirk. You were a fantastic guest. Thanks. Thank you.